As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Astonishing Legends is bringing you a commercial-free bonus show as a token of gratitude for our listeners, without whom the show wouldn't be possible. It's your ongoing support of our sponsors and patrons on Patreon.com that keep Astonishing Legends free to listen to. Thank you so much, and we hope you enjoy the show tonight. Last week, we acted like we were going to talk about all of the D.B. Cooper hijacking suspects. Unfortunately, we had so much more to cover regarding the chain of events following it that we ran out of time. So tonight, we take a look at a dozen or so of our favorite suspects and more than a few theories about who D.B. Cooper may have been. Although the FBI doesn't take it seriously, conspiracy theorists have even floated the idea that he didn't exist at all. The perfect crime? Maybe. Tonight, we'll take a look at the FBI's profiling of potential suspects and the evidence that has been put forth as possibly connected to the crime. After that, we'll finally take a look at some of the most prominent suspects and leave you with our theories and conclusions. Wherever we end up, as of today, D.B. Cooper got away with his crime. And if something definitive isn't figured out soon, it may go unsolved forever. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Forrest Burgess, and this is Scott Philbrook. I, I'm pretty sure we're going to have to go to three parts. I, I don't think there's any way that, <laughs> that this can just be part two. It would be like five hours long. Scott Philbrook, like at Fortiana East, as we sat down to record part two of our series on D.B. Cooper. Join us tonight for part three, our final part of our series on D.B. Cooper. And we're back, and we didn't even mean to be. <laughs> yeah, we're uh, stumbling back into your lives and commercial-free tonight. Uh, not only that, our editor Sarah was busy this week, so <laughs> I actually had to edit this show myself. Now, oh, having dear. not actually done that as of recording these words that I wrote for us to say and this housekeeping stuff, I'm going to go ahead and apologize for the edit. I do <laughs> not possess her mojo, and on top of that, it takes me three times as long. But believe it or not, I did cut. All of our shows for the first, uh, I think it was the first 36 episodes, so. Aha! That's why none of them make sense. <laughs> and you're cutting corners so you can save yourself some free time later. Exactly. <laughs> Let's keep this moving. Let's keep this moving. <laughs> Jeez. All right. I, I don't blame you, actually. You know what? Really, uh, our, remember our idea back in our uh, post-production days for what was a machine called the Edit Box? Yes. 
and you just throw your tapes into this magic machine, or I guess it'd be now digital files, and it just spits out a show. Yes. And every now and then I read an article about something that supposedly does that, but when you watch what it made, it stinks. So <laughs> sooner or later, yeah, they'll get there. bot editing. Well, okay. I don't know how we were even, though, doing what you just described. Uh, I was working all the time, well, full-time, yeah. uh, late hours, and you were editing the show by yourself. Yeah, in addition everything. to us recording it. I'm not sure how we did that either. Sometimes I wake up in the morning, I'm like, how, how did I get here? Letting the days go by, <laughs> let the water hold me down. That's not even my favorite Talking Heads song. That's probably my second oh. favorite Talking Heads song. Yeah, what's your first? Uh, this Must Be The Place. That's one of my favorite. That's oh, a top 10 yeah. song for me, actually. Uh, not just Talking Heads. Yeah, I love This Must Be The Place. Me or too. Home. And I think in parentheses, it's home. But when you look it up on Spotify. That's true, yes. Yeah, you, yes. Uh, yeah. You're right. And speaking of editing, that thing fits with anything you're editing. Yes, it a does. A cooking show, uh, a car, uh, you know, a car reveal. It works for everything. Yes. Which is another jam of it. It's yeah. too bad an ASCAP license to actually play it legally is like $30,000. Just for the <laughs> license. And then to license that track would probably be half a million. So it's going to be a yeah. while before we can put that in the show. You just have to listen to us. Right. Uh, anyway, we've got a we yeah. got a lot of fun D.B. Cooper stuff to talk about tonight, but a few very quick thoughts first. Uh, one thing is a lot of changes are coming very soon. Big changes. Wait a second. Wait, wait a second. You're, you're going to drop this date now? I'm dropping the date, October 1st. I mean, why not? The rest of the secrets are going to stay secret until our special announcement about it all, which is probably going to drop into our feed around the 28th. So mm. don't overlook that just because it's short and doesn't look like a show. There's a lot of big <laughs> news in that. So when that comes out, uh, be sure and check it out. And it's, you know, it's all directly related to Astonishing Legends. It's not an RSS drop or something uh, advertising mm. another show. This is uh, mm -hmm. pertinent stuff. So please check it out. Well, all righty, Mr. Spoiler Alert. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, though, thanks again for purchasing the Kecksburg Volunteer Fire Department shirts. Only a few more days to do that as we're taking it out of the store the night of September 30th. All right, that's all we got tonight, mostly, so I'll have less to edit. But trust me, folks, mm. do not miss the announcement uh, that's coming up. A lot of exciting stuff there. And like I said, I'll probably be out on the 28th. Okay, well, let's pick up where we left off. And not to torture you, but first, <laughs> a shameless plug for myself. <laughs> well, really, come on, it's for the show. And to let you all know about a great way to find terrific new podcasts to listen to. It's called Find That Pod. So Sebastian Archieszewski, whose title is Chief Podcast Discovery Dude at Find That Pod, reached out to us for an interview, and since Scott was busy doing his Scott stuff, I took up the challenge. So it's just me answering the questions, and if for some unimaginable reason you haven't gotten enough of me assaulting your ears by blathering on and on and on and on and on in our usual audio format, you can now read about me blathering on and on and on, and assault your eyes and brain as well. And no, it's not a podcast about finding great podcasts. It's an online blog and a weekly newsletter you can subscribe to about finding great podcasts and getting to know the podcasters. Anyway, I spent quite a while really thinking about my answers, and it pretty much tells the story of our show, uh, my thoughts about AL and podcasting in general, etc., etc. And no, they didn't have to set up a whole other website just to post all my jibber-jabber. So go check it out at findthatpod.com slash interview dash forest dash burgess or just go to find that pod dot sorry or just go to find that pod dot com and poke around and, and where was that at find that pod dot com no 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 i mean where did we leave off last time oh <laughs> well where we left off last time and are just about to begin now is what does the fbi think about all this 
because of course, all of us uh, who who do love true crime and and uh, fake crime as well uh, want to get to the profiling because that's such the hot topic nowadays. Well, what was the FBI's profiling of Cooper? So Scott and I will just talk about some discussion points here as they were laid out in the case at the time. Uh, the first one, Cooper may have been with the Air Force, uh, as we mentioned previously, because he knew the driving time was about 20 minutes from SeaTac Airport to McCord Air Force Base, and he was familiar with the Seattle area and could recognize Tacoma from the air. Yes. Now, when he could also yeah, have been so a pilot. A pilot might have been able to make that recognition as well, but that's yeah. But yeah, but it it makes it makes sense, especially to know about the the how far it was on the ground, and then also to recognize it from the air. Now that doesn't necessarily mean yeah he he was a seasoned Air Force pilot or a smoke jumper. All all these other conclusions you have to keep in mind that anybody who took a lot of flights from Portland to Seattle for business or or whatever would know that looking out the window. Anybody who drove around the area, uh, my friend Arnie in Seattle knows the driving time between McCord and uh, SeaTac Airport. So a civilian uh, could know that as well. But it does start to point to a picture, a background, a profile of who this guy is. And that's all you got with this guy. He's so mysterious. You have to put these clues together. Well, there's really two major main investigators from the FBI on the case. And the first one was uh, retired FBI chief investigator Ralph Himmelsbach, author of Norjack, The Investigation of D.B. Cooper. Uh, at the time when this happened, he was the lead FBI investigator assigned to the case. And I believe uh, he wrote that book after his retirement and has now sadly passed away. But like any good investigator will tell you, uh, he stated that criminals like extortionists who steal large amounts of money, they need the money urgently because of a desperate situation. Otherwise, it's really not worth the risk to them. Uh, or Cooper could have just been a thrill seeker, uh, seeing if he could get away with it or just that the feat could be done. And regarding his book, Norjack, The Investigation of D.B. Cooper, here's a little uh, intro from Amazon that sums up the book uh, and his beliefs, uh, that Cooper probably had a criminal record, that he'd probably received military training, and that he was obviously familiar with the Pacific Northwest. And then the book also gives reasons why he believes Cooper died in the fall. And now here's something uh, from the Wayback Machine, that Internet Archive that we've been referring to. It's an article uh, I think we mentioned in part two called Enigma, D.B. Cooper. And the wording from this article sounds like they pulled it from official FBI statements or the official FBI website at the time. Some of those articles on the FBI.gov website have been taken down or compiled into something else. They've done some rearranging because this has gone on quite a long time. I think there's over 60 volumes of investigative material that's been compiled over the years. So yeah. it's a lot of material. So they, they just summarize at this point. But thank yeah. God it's the FBI, because if it wasn't an investigation this old, a lot of stuff would just be gone because uh, yeah. partners burn them up in sheds behind houses. <laughs> You're still sore houses, about that. Houses get yeah. moved. People leave them behind in attics. You know, the FBI did did what they can for so many decades. And it's like, look, we, we've come to the end of our trail here, uh, but have at it. If any of you can figure this out, by all means. Uh, and there's a point at which they want to stop spending money on it as well. So. Well, yeah, but, yeah, right. Because there, there, there are other things that they need to attend to. Well, these next statements pretty much sums up retired agent Himmelsbach's thoughts on the case, that he was most likely injured on impact. Uh, and, and again, he worked on the case from 1971 to 1980, and he basically posits that Cooper died by the side of a creek, and then, quote, and then later, 
the creek overflowed and carried him and the money downstream where the money was found. And Himmelsbach believes if Cooper's body is going to be discovered at all, it would be near the Washougal River. And he has that one quote here, I have to confess, if I were going to look for Cooper, I would head for the Washougal. Well, there's another agent as well who took over after he did. I'm not sure directly in succession, but he's the other famous FBI agent on the case, and that's Special Agent Larry Carr. Yes, and I don't, I don't think he's on the case anymore, but he does no. feature prominently in Brad Meltzer's uh, Decoded uh, series on D.B. Cooper. So you get a chance to hear and see him talk there. And he's one of the guys that's like said, we got, you know, we're going to take information from the public here and let people participate in this, uh, especially people who have professional experience. And that's when the, he gets involved with the paleontologists who we mentioned before and, and other scientists who could help sort of, and other scientists who could help deduce what they could from the evidence they had. So he led the investigation team for the FBI uh, in the Seattle field office from 2006 until 2016. And this is actually from the Enigma article Forrest was just referencing. Quote, Cooper was no expert skydiver. We originally thought Cooper was an experienced jumper, perhaps even a paratrooper. We concluded after a few years, this was simply not true. No experienced parachutist would have jumped in the pitch black night in the rain with a 200 mile an hour wind in his face. Carr goes on to say it was simply too risky. He also missed that his reserve chute was only for training and had actually been sewn shut. This is something that a skilled skydiver would have checked, end quote. Mm -hmm. So there you go. That's Carr's position on it. The hijacker also, according to him, had no help on the ground either. He, to have utilized an accomplice, Cooper would have needed to coordinate closely with the flight crew so he could jump at just the right moment and hit the right drop zone. But Cooper simply said, fly to Mexico. And he had no idea where he was really when he jumped, most likely. There was also no visibility on the ground due to cloud cover at 5,000 feet, and the plane was at 10,000 feet. So it was a mile over that. And that's the important part, is that visually he doesn't know. It's night, it's dark, there's cloud cover. There's no GPS back then. So right. he doesn't, he's jumping into the unknown, literally just a blanket of clouds. And uh, how could he know? Uh, and how could he arrange a rendezvous uh, with someone on the ground or even a general landing zone area? He, he couldn't, he's just jumping into nothing. So that points to, uh, as I say, a lot of his um, rationale about this. What is he doing? Is there any method beyond just getting this thing together to begin with. So in summation, the FBI thinks that for him to survive, he would have needed help on the ground or, you know, like somebody picking him up after he landed, taking him to a safe house location. Uh, or he may have also needed help from the flight crew. And there's no evidence of that at all. Uh, and even if he survived those conditions, um, you know, again, he can't do this on his own with what he has on him. So therefore he needs an accomplice. Uh, and that's even if he survived the jump at all, as we talked about last time, this is very perilous. This is also why uh, both of these agents here believe that, uh, you know, he, he probably didn't survive at all. He's jumping into a national forest here uh, with a lot of tall trees that, just think about it, you're wearing a chute, you're most likely going to get hung up. Yeah, I agree with that. And there's a couple of things about that. I mean, one thing too was he couldn't necessarily be sure of his altitude, which was interesting because he had told the pilot to right. fly at 10,000 feet with the flaps at 15 degrees, but there was no way for him to know that. Now, there's some reports that he had warned the crew that he was wearing an altimeter, but according to Sluggo's mm. website that we mentioned in part two, that seems to be a really good source of information, um, that's a myth. 
there that yeah. he warned that he was wearing an altimeter that somehow got into the story, <laughs> as details do along the way with stories this old. Yeah. Well, the other thing that we mentioned, I think, in part two is that, uh, yes, so he would have, uh, to avoid having get hung up in uh, tall evergreens, he would have had to steer to a patch uh, or a clear patch or a meadow uh, of farmland. And this chute was not steerable, the one he chose. And although the initial FBI military air and ground search did find some broken treetops and what looked like parachute remnants, uh, upon closer inspection, none of these provided any directly related clues. So Carr goes on to say, diving into the wilderness without a plan, without the right equipment, in such terrible conditions, he probably never even got his chute open. Yeah, and I just want to quickly say a couple of things about that. One is Himmelsbach is convinced that he was maybe a career criminal. It's a very yeah. specific kind of profile idea that he has. And then Carr is convinced that he didn't survive the jump. But I would just want to remind everyone, all of that is speculative. They have no proof either way that he did or no. didn't survive it. They have no idea. And I can't help but wonder, like when Carr says, ah, oh, he probably never even got a shoot open. If this is meant to needle the guy that's mm -hmm. out there and get him to come back and be like, bet I got it open. <laughs> what are you yeah. doing saying I didn't get it open? Because I feel right. like it's a little bit too uh, too much of an instigation to be like, oh, this guy never made it. Because you're trying to yeah. get the guy to be like, I made right. it, I made it. So I, I think that's, you're, you know, you got to think about the psychology yeah. of all that. because. Uh, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, that's another tactic that law enforcement does is sometimes they can provoke a response because think about it, this guy has got a pair on him. You know, it, it's to try and accomplish what he did with as little as he did, either he just doesn't care or he does have a great plan or he thinks he does. There could be some amount of ego that goes with this that might get him to respond. And as we'll see, there were some responses later. But in addition to all that, Carr states that Cooper either didn't bring with him or didn't request a helmet. That's another thing. In such a dangerous jump, very easily he could have knocked his head against something. Uh, and he didn't take the newer and technically better parachute with him. And he jumped into what likely would have been a 15 degree temperature uh, with a wind chill effect uh, at about 10,000 feet. So even with maybe wearing long underwear or long johns, as we used to call them, with a rainstorm he was jumping into and knowing Western Washington is wet, cold, and rainy that time of year in late November, uh, he would have likely been soaked from head to toe soon after jumping and possibly could have succumbed to hypothermia if he didn't have help. Well, there was this eyewitness and you don't hear a whole lot about him when, uh, mm -hmm. when you look at the broad strokes of this case. A lot of people don't know about this guy. His name was William Mitchell or Bill Mitchell. He was a sophomore in college and he sat in the row right across from Dan Cooper, whoever he was. Yeah. And he got a good look at him. And I'm pretty sure, you, you don't hold me to this, but I'm pretty sure that the second drawing you see of Cooper in the illustrations, the sketches that the FBI has, I'm pretty sure that came from Mitchell's description of him. Mm. And what I remember reading about it, now, honestly, I, I want to cite where I saw this, but now I honestly can't remember where I saw it. It mm. might have been on Sluggo's defunct website. Um, I think so. Yeah. Was that, you know, they didn't know the hijacking was happening. They knew the plane was circling and that sort of thing, but they, they were right. doing a very good job of not uh, making it seem like a big thing was going on. But Mitchell, at one point, I guess he got up to go to the bathroom. And when he went by... Cooper to go to the bathroom, he noticed that Cooper was staring at him really hard. <laughs> yeah. 
And it was so odd how he was staring at him that he actually remembered that, even though he didn't know that that was a hijacking taking place. Right. And uh, he he brought it up when he was debriefed after all the passengers were taken off the plane. So it's pretty fascinating that he noticed that. And that was his description, it's my understanding, that makes up one of those sketches. And That's interesting, yeah. I, yeah, I like that because it's different from one of the flight attendants or someone else. It's, it's a corroborated image uh, in right. terms of what he looked like. Although there's some dispute over how accurate those images are. The FBI says, well, we don't know if he really looked like that. So there's, there's some questions there. But the, those two images look pretty similar to be uh, developed independently by two different people. But the other thing that Mitchell saw, which is pretty fascinating, was he could tell, I don't know how, but he noticed that the gentleman was wearing long underwear. Yeah, I'm sure when his pant leg rode up, if you're, you know, if you cross your legs and back then you could... You could cross your legs sitting in an airplane seat. Yes. Uh, not so much, so much nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, more space. Yeah. You, had, you could actually stand up from the window seat and edge your way out to the aisle. Not so much anymore. 12 people have to get up before you can do that. But back then, I could see how if, if he crossed his legs or he looked down, you could see the long underwear. Uh, maybe it was over his socks. Uh, maybe his socks were pulled over, but he could notice that. The other thing is that it does point to, well, a couple of things here. One, I totally agree. That really cements for me the idea that these sketch drawings, these composite sketches are pretty accurate, which will, in the long run here, put a lot of doubt on some of these suspected suspects, these proposed suspects, because they just don't fit that. And they had such a clear view of this guy that they, the FBI at least seems to think that these things hold up. And if they're not fitting, the suspects don't fit that profile, that what they look like basically from the sketch that you have to rule them out. Well, um, the other thing as well, though, is that you also can't uh, judge too much about uh, his pre-planning on that. As I said, back in the day, a lot of people, especially, you know, Washington State, Idaho, the colder states up north, it's not uncommon to wear that old-fashioned waffled uh, long underwear under some clothes if you knew you were going to be outside for a bit. If you worked outdoors, uh, you had to walk a long ways. It was pretty common to wear that uh, under your clothing. I feel like That's it's a weird thing. combo with a suit, though. I feel like that's a blue collar operation. Uh, <laughs> you know, you've got your long yeah. underwear and then some overalls or some Carhartt, which they didn't have back then, something <laughs> on. Like, I, I do feel like it's a little odd for a suit. Like you're combining, you're kind of saying, hey, I'm I'm an executive. I've got an important job. Also, I might be very cold and outside tonight. Well, so, the, no, listen to, listen to this, though. Back then, uh, a lot of people dressed up a lot more than they do now. And if he was a middle manager type, somebody who had to wear a suit at one of these jobs where uh, perhaps it was a plant, he was an engineer, uh, he, he worked in scrap or metal fabrication, uh, as evidenced by the microscopic particles that ended up on his tie, then he might be outside a lot but also having to wear a suit. And in that case, uh, that's all I'm saying is that back then, people I know that would dress up for some of these jobs that people don't dress up for now would have to wear some kind of a suit, uh, but also be outside a lot. And then you can't really, uh, you're still wearing an overcoat. You have to be uh, dressed up. So you want a little more thermal protection. So I'm just saying it's not necessarily points to him knowing that he's going to jump from a plane or you could you could look at it, anything like that. The other thing is that uh, him eyeballing the college student, you might chalk that up to situational awareness. But yeah, this is a potential threat to me if I don't potential do this threat, right. Yeah. Perhaps like a CIA agent would. Yeah, yeah. 
sizing up. He's Jason Bourne. He's uh, he's sizing all that up around him. Like, you know, that, that guy over there, he's 230 pounds and can handle himself. You right, know? Like, right. All that kind of stuff. Is that part of it? Or is he just like really nervous and waiting for his bourbon and, and his other four uh, Raleigh cigarette smokes uh, as he's sitting on the plane? We, we don't know, but it's an interesting insight, whereas most people on the plane, as you said, they didn't know what was going on, so they didn't pay attention to Cooper. But this guy was close and he could see him. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure, I know we speculated in part one about what row he was in, 15, 18. I'm pretty sure right. in the notes that I've seen, some of the files, released files, that it was 18. Not that it really matters. I'm sure people are like, oh, it changes everything. But I, I think he was in yeah. row 18 because I think Mitchell definitely was in 18. And he said he was what, across. Right. Row. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there's some speculation on what, what seat. You think you could nail that down. But getting back to the Enigma article here, it goes on to state, uh, based on what he has learned so far, here is Carr's profile of Cooper. Uh, one, he served in the Air Force and at some point was stationed in Europe, where he may have become interested in a special comic book. Uh, two, he worked as a cargo loader on planes, giving him knowledge and experience in the aviation industry, which was in its infancy in 1971. Also, because his job required him to throw cargo out of planes, Cooper would have worn an emergency parachute in case he fell out. This would have provided him with working knowledge of parachutes, but not necessarily the functional knowledge to survive the jump he made. That's interesting. That's an interesting fact. Yeah. I like I like that assessment. Not that yeah, agent, not that Agent saying, Carr gives two craps what I think, but like, <laughs> but <laughs> he, I do like. He, I, I don't think I came across that. Yeah. yeah, I don't. I, I don't right. think I. Yeah, but that that makes sense. Like uh, just enough to you know. I mean, there's lots of reasons that that might have been his knowledge about parachutes, right. which we'll talk about. Right. But that's a good one. That's a good. One. Well, I, again, I, I look to uh, investigators, professional investigators, uh, private and public, and and uh, law enforcement because they do this for a living. They've seen a lot of this, and they also follow up on the results. So, after a while, you start to develop. Uh, pretty good profiling techniques. Not that it's infallible, certainly. And a lot of it is due to bias and, and, and what the individual thinks, whoever that investigator might be. But so far, it's, it's pretty solid. And yeah, he, he, he knew a little bit about parachutes. Like if you threw one to the average person, would they even hook it up right? Yeah. Would they get the straps right? Would they know where the ripcord is to, to pull? Would they would they have it on upside down? But isn't in Patrick, a Swayze, Patrick Swayze standing right there? He tells you everything to do. <laughs> That's right. Or Treat Williams. He yeah. was the uh, yeah, oh, pursuit yeah. of D.B. Cooper. The yeah, TV I was making I, reference to I Point loved. Break, which is one of the That's best, right. one of the best film skydiving sequences <laughs> in the history of action filmmaking, I think. Oh, there's a bunch of them because, it, yeah. it, again, that's another part of this uh, legend that is so appealing to people because it's, it's an exciting thing to do. Look at... Uh, uh, James Bond, uh, remember he, he dives out of the, well, there, there's a ton of parachute sequences, but uh, one of my favorites is he, he rides the motorcycle off the edge of the, the snow cliff there yes. and catches the plane. Yes. That's not really skydiving, but he, he catches up to the plane <laughs> and steers it just in time. That's what people love about the story here. Uh, but it, to go on with the profiling by Agent Carr here, he may have come from the East Coast, but taken an aviation job in Seattle when he got out of the military. Uh, it's possible he lost his job during an economic downturn in the aviation industry in 1970-71. If he was a loner with little or no family, uh, nobody would have missed him after he was gone. So you have to consider all these things. It's like, yeah, there's a missing person here. Yeah. Or he was missing for a, a good long weekend 
what's the story there? If oh, he did survive? I got some things to talk about there. I'll bet you do here. Well, so anyway, but to your point about Agent Carr not caring what you think, yeah. uh, his closing statement is, look, so if the public can help by whatever means, maybe we can shake something loose. So have at it, Scott. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a couple of things about that. One is that, uh, you know, the sense that I got from Special Agent Carr in Brad Meltzer's show, Decoded, about mm-hmm. D.B. Cooper, was that he very much was trying to beat the Bushes and let's get some people involved. But I also got as, you know, as being an older guy and having wise ways about the world. I'm talking about myself <laughs> oh, here. Talking about I myself see. here. Um, uh, it's easy to recognize when someone's boss has said, you don't get any more money for this. You want to keep looking at it? Great. <laughs> because it seems to me like Special Agent Carr is like, uh, yeah, come ahead. We're inviting the public. It's exciting. Because the thing is, they still want to solve it, but there's only so much budget they have. They, You know, they got a lot of bigger problems to worry about at this point, bigger right, fish to fry. Right. Uh, so let's come back to that. You mentioned that he had an interest in a comic book. That's a big central part of this story that we, I don't think we've mentioned yet. What is the story with the comic book? Well, do we talk about where he may have gotten that alias? Uh, because it's, it's pretty well known to people who follow the case, but a lot of people uh, in the general public may not know. Well, Special Agent Larry Carr believes Cooper may have taken that alias from the name of a character in a Franco-Belgian comic book series called Dan Cooper. It was popular around the time of the skyjacking. And what the the background is on it, it's a fictional comic book with the main character, a Royal Canadian Air Force test pilot named Dan Cooper. And he has adventures in outer space and with real events of the time period. And in an edition that was published around the date of the crime, November 24th, 1971, comic book Cooper is seen parachuting in a paratrooper uniform on the front cover illustration. Yeah, that's pretty good. And I just want to remind everyone, in case you don't remember it from the earlier parts of the series, Dan Cooper was the name he gave when he bought the ticket, not right. DB. That was right. a mistake by a journalist. So he gave his he gave his name as Dan Cooper. So it's a it's a perfect match with this comic book. That's a pretty strong coincidence. Well, yeah, but listen to this now. The origin of it uh, was conceived in 1954. This is from the wiki entry on the uh, on the the magazine and the. Uh, series here. It's uh, Tintin Magazine's answer to the Buck Danny series. Uh, it was published in the rival Spiru Magazine. And speaking of Tintin Magazine, wasn't there a character we we, we mentioned in some previous episode uh, where there was a character name taken from Tintin? That, uh, maybe it was Gremlins. I can't remember now. But Yeah, I can't remember now. That It does seem familiar, though. I know that we came across it in research prior to prior to this episode. Yeah, there there will be some listeners out there that will remind us. I I hope. <laughs> so there's a bunch of listeners that yeah. think we already did DB Cooper. So maybe they know. <laughs> Isn't that strange? <laughs> yeah, there, there's. If Tin Tin comes up one more time, I'm going to officially freak out. Well, but listen to this, Scott. This series was never published in English, nor was it imported into the U.S. So it does fit with Agent Carr's theory that the real Cooper had spent some time overseas in Europe while in the Air Force. And Carr, interestingly enough, had come across the comic book connection in the D.B. Cooper web forums, which is also where he found the citizen sleuths who would volunteer to rejuvenate the investigation. That's according to that, uh, yeah, the Enigma article here. Uh, Well, the the Cooper research team, remember we talked about them part two, um, made up of scientists, which sounds like an awesome, fun thing to be a part of. (laughs) They found out that the comic book was also sold in Canada. And they also took note of Cooper's wording with the request of, remember this, negotiable American currency? That's not something most Americans would say. Uh, The witnesses who came into contact with Cooper also said he had no recognizable accent. So if he wasn't an American citizen, 
being a Canadian citizen would be the next best guess, I think. Or yeah, or living far enough north to be going back and forth across the border and, you right. know, having a taste of life in, in both cultures. Well, possibly. that's, yeah, that's the thing. If you live near the uh, the Canadian border there in northern Washington state, a lot of people go back and forth. So you would be familiar, though, more so, though, with Western Canada, which is British Columbia. It's, it's more English. So if you go, when I was a kid, if you if you went into the McDonald's there, it said biscuits. And it's like, well, no, I want a cookie. It's like, no, no, that, that's what they <laughs> call cookies there because they're British. Eastern Canada Biscuit being Royale. more French. Yeah, so this is, this is more <laughs> the Belgian Franco uh, sense of Dan Cooper and uh, why it, it may have a more European connection here. Yes, I'd like a McBiscuit, please. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, does, I could go for one right now. I Well, around here in North Carolina, you get your biscuits at either Bojangles yes. or Mrs. Winner's uh, or Biscuitville, which is not a cookie <laughs> restaurant. All right, so here we go. No, wait a second. What about Roy Rogers? you have those there? Uh, no, we don't have those here. Oh. No, yeah. no Roy Rogers. Never been to one, but uh, I do love the Timmy Hortons when I go uh, into Can Canada land. Yes, I, I feel like uh, our friend Jordan Bonaparte, uh, who's in Halifax, Nova Scotia, just posted something about a spooky Hortons or something. Yeah, oh, he's got a couple of uh, episodes, <laughs> yeah. Uh, weird stuff that happens in Timmy Hortons, uh, Tim Hortons. Uh, that's kind of like uh, where weird stuff happens here at McDonald's. Yes, they don't call it Timmy, do they? You made that up, right? When I'm that's editing the, this, do I leave yeah. in that you said Timmy? Yeah, or leave it in, do that's I the slam. No, okay. I think Canadians, right. uh, it's Tim Hortons, but they call it uh, Timmy Hortons, I think. Well, something else that Tom Kay and the Cooper Research Team considered was Cooper's choice of Thanksgiving Eve for the Day of the Caper and his choice to wear a suit when he knew he'd be jumping into the wilderness. Mm -hmm. According to Tom Kay, quote, the FBI searched but couldn't find anyone who disappeared that weekend. If you were planning on going back to work on Monday, uh, then you would need as much time as possible to get out of the woods, find transportation, and get home. The very best time for this is in front of a four-day weekend, which is the timing Dan Cooper chose for his crime. If he was planning ahead, he knew he had to hitchhike out of the woods, and it is much easier to get picked up in a suit and tie than in old blue jeans. That's okay, a quote true. From Tom K. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but think about this. That would also then mean you had to risk exposure to someone while hitchhiking who could report you. Uh, maybe you could try to buy them off, but I think that's even riskier. Uh, if it's somebody you don't know, uh, it's another person citing you and giving a description and you look pretty suspicious. <laughs> what are you doing out here wearing a, a thoroughly soaked suit with long underwear and carrying a weird parachute satchel? That's true, but there are numerous people that reported somebody coming out of the woods that night. That is also true. That is also strange and, and weird. I, it just makes me think of Walter White having to, to bribe the older Native American gentleman uh, for his truck in Breaking Bad. Remember that? Yes. He's got a barrel yeah. of cash. Like, can I pay $6 million for your, your old truck? Back to something else we've talked about and uh, is another significant factor because it's one of the few remaining clues he left on board here. Uh, the parachutes and also his knowledge about aviation. Cooper's actions would suggest that he was somewhat knowledgeable about aircraft uh, flying and, and also the terrain he'd be flying over. And as we discussed in part one, he requested four parachutes. And that may have been a tactic by Cooper to help make sure the FBI wasn't going to sabotage or or mark or electronically tag the parachute he was going to take. Uh, although by accident, uh, because of the haste, the skydiving school gave the FBI a dummy chute sewn shut, and that, uh, that one was meant for training. Uh, so that might be further guard against FBI sabotage 
would possibly be the motivation for Cooper's uh, also possibly taking some hostages with him, uh, skydiving. Remember, they said that one of the fears was that he was going to take one of the stewardesses with him and then possibly blow up the plane. Yeah, while the plane was still on the ground in Seattle, ground control, part of the control tower staff, advised the pilots of Flight 305 that they had been asked to relay a message from the Federal Aviation Administration, chief psychiatrist in Washington, D.C., and the message was, quote, he believes the second parachute is for the stewardess to use with him to go out, and after he leaves, the airplane will be blown up, Oof. end quote. Yeah. So that was the message they're giving the crew. It's like, I, yeah. you know, which also says uh, we probably shouldn't, do anything to these parachutes because then it'll be on us if one of the crew gets uh, killed yeah. from a sabotaged parachute. That's what I think. Yeah, I, that's my uh, thinking about why Cooper wanted four. Although, uh, again, it goes back to that recurring motif there where he, he, he knows some things. He's planned ahead, but he also makes some mistakes or we don't know his reasoning. It's like, why would you grab one of the dummy chutes that was sewn shut? Uh, so again, that's a big factor for Agent Carr thinking like, you know, this guy, he knew a little bit, but uh, as my grandfather used to say, uh, a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. Yeah. You, you know, just enough to what you should be doing, but you're not an expert in it. And that's how we got started in podcasting. <laughs> and it's still dangerous. <laughs> We're dangerous podcasters. Dangerous. <laughs> well, uh, uh, tell me about the Boeing 727-51. Well, the, the plane originally was a 727-51. It's now considered to be a 727-100. I just thought we'd touch on that because mm -hmm. we mentioned at the top of the, of the at the first par part one that it was a 727-100. But back then, they called it a 51. And it was right. operated by a flight crew of three and could carry up to 131 passengers. And it was 133 feet long with a wingspan of 108 feet and an overall height of 34 feet. So mm. uh, this particular aircraft, I, we did track it down. I, I can't remember what's on an aviation forum or something, was scrapped in 1996. Eventually, it had been sold uh, from Northwest to Eastern or, P yeah, Eastern Airlines, I mm -hmm. think. And they flew it, and then eventually it was scrapped. There was uh, a good period where it was flying with a test equipment on it of some kind. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. And I can't remember what that was about. It's not really important. But uh, either way, I did wonder if the plane was still around today, and it is not. It was disassembled. I see. Like number five in short circuit. And then... Oh, disassembled. <laughs> Stop it. We're going to get so many emails again. I know, I know. Uh, Johnny I know. Five. Okay. Uh, well, yeah. Another interesting point here. Whether knowingly or not by Cooper, the 727 turned out to be a good passenger jet to jump from with some advantages for uh, this, what you could say is non-recommended use. Uh, first, of course, it, the 727 had aft air stairs, so he could jump out the back and the stairs could be lowered by a switch in the back and the deployment couldn't be overridden by the pilots. We probably mentioned that in part two, perhaps, but I think it's worth noting that he knew that. And if you'll also remember, uh, the 727 could take off and land with the aft stairs deployed, which... Northwest Orient headquarters told him couldn't be done safely. So according to author Max Gunther of the book, D.B. Cooper, What Really Happened? Civilian flight crews didn't know the stairs could be lowered during flight since it's not something that would happen normally. Uh, again, another nod. Of course, I, I love this angle. I'm not sure how much I believe in it, but uh, that may be something a CIA agent might know. And speaking of spycraft, like a spycraft hack, something that James Bond would know, that's according to Himmelsbach. 
he made a note of that. It's like, okay, if he knew about that, that's not a usual thing. Was that taught to him as an evasive uh, maneuver, a possibility? That's something else that they uh, they teach agents in the field. Well, the 727-100 had a newer modification that allowed all the fuel tanks to be refilled from a single point, allowing for fast refueling. So uh, whether, again, whether Cooper knew that, again, whether Cooper knew that or not, that meant the turnaround time on the ground would be fast because you don't want to dally when you're in the middle of a, a skyjacking. Get that thing refueled and back in the air as soon as possible. And one of the things that we didn't talk about, at least I, I don't know if we did, but there there was a point at which the refueling was taking too long. Right. Um, and one of the things that they had suggested was that there had been uh, a vapor lock or a problem with freezing. And the pilot was actually getting mad about that, about yeah. how long it was taking. Because he was like, I happen to know that, that the temperature we're at now, nothing is frozen. We need to get it fueling. And in addition to that, Cooper was getting uptight too. Yeah. So they... They are pretty sure that that was all stall techniques, which right. he probably came to expect. But because the pilot said, um, and this was on Sluggo's side, I think the truck went away and, and then it came back and it filled it up pretty quickly. And the pilot was like, I'm not even sure it was a different truck. So, jeez. <laughs> oh, well, but I mean, that's to hey, be expected. I mean, they're, they're trying to do whatever they can to keep it on the ground. No, so. it, it, you know, the, the, the more time the, the FBI and the authorities have to figure this thing out, get people in place, the better for them tactically. But Cooper knew that at the beginning. Remember, he said, like, no funny business. That's right. Or I'll or do I'll the do job. job. <laughs> yeah. So uh, another thing that uh, turned out in his favor was the 727 could fly low and slow without stalling, which is not typical, as far as I know, for a, a passenger jet. And Cooper knew about the 15-degree uh, flap angle setting that was specific to the 727-100. Uh, also, another thing that is often mentioned is that the three aft engines, even though they're, they're towards the rear of the plane, uh, that actually makes for a safer rear hatch bailout with the the jet wash, I think. Oh. Maybe that warmed him up. I don't know. Um, well, the other thing that uh, people point out was that, yeah, he, he was savvy enough to remember things like, uh, he took the ransom note back from Florence Shafter, and he wore dark sunglasses for the remainder of the hijacking, or, although, you know, I mean, they've already got a good look at him. Uh, that was only afterwards. But, but it might have been a psychological thing where, even somebody gets a good look at your face, the last thing they see is you with sunglasses. That may throw you off a little bit. And also, at least one other note that was created, he had one of the stewardesses uh, or flight attendants write it down. Yeah. He didn't write it himself. So yeah. he, he was uh, pretty careful about that stuff. But there's been a suggestion that he may have had ADHD as well, because oh. what they saw him, uh, I guess from a profile standpoint, is they saw him as someone with a big picture, but not great on the fine details, thus the loafers and yeah. the suit. And the, you know, so it's like he's got the big goal set up, but not is not zeroing in on the minutia. Enough. That's fascinating. That's a, yeah. I, yeah, that's starting to fit with my mental picture of it is that, yeah, broad strokes, yes, small things uh, were, some were left by the wayside. Maybe he didn't think about it. Maybe there's too much going on in his head at the time. Uh, another thing that he was thinking about, and you can speak to this, Scott, is that he, we always see this in the movies. I want small denomination, non-sequential bills. Well, Cooper's got to know that these things are going to be tracked, the, the money, the bills. They're going to be recorded somehow, at least a few of them. Uh, if he plans on spending it at all, it's going to turn up somewhere. That can all be traced back to at least where he was. That leads to somebody meeting with him and exchanging money. And uh, so he could assume that the bill numbers had been recorded and would be tracked. And, and, and again, that's always going to trail back to him. 
But here's the other thing. It's that bill tracking, you think like, well, what's, you know, what's the importance of that? Money gets passed around so much. But that's actually how the Lindbergh kidnapper, Richard Halpman, was initially caught. Uh, and they trace the bills back, leading to, to him. And of course, the story goes is that I think they found a shoebox of the money in his garage. Hopman always said that, like, well, no, that was a guy I knew. Uh, he owed me some money. He left the cash behind. I I hung on to it. I had nothing to do with the kidnapping. But uh, during the trial, Hopman's handwriting was uh, analyzed, and that also sealed his fate. Plus, of course, mm-hmm. back then they were just really anxious to nail somebody for kidnapping. Uh, one of the most beloved people in the nation at the time, perhaps the most famous right. person in the world at the time. So it didn't go well for him, but it's also to think about clues like, yeah, leaving handwriting behind, uh, tracing bills. But you were talking about um, a discrepancy of Cooper asking for $20 bills. That might be a myth, right? Yeah. Again, according to Sluggo's site, which is now defunct, but is uh, on the Wayback Machine, uh, the Internet Archive, which we yeah. have a link to, um, According to that site, he never specified the denomination. So, uh-huh. uh, which is again, it points to the n- not the highest level of attention to the details or the minutia of right. the operation. Uh, maybe he assumed he would get twenties, but it, the point that uh, I think it was Special Agent Carr made, or or somebody made in one of the documentaries we watched, was that had he requested hundreds, mm-hmm. it would have been about a five pound. Um, bag right. to jump with. And right. because it was 20s, it was closer to 23 pounds or something. Yeah. So not a big difference here, really. Uh, and, you know, and then people also wonder if he's not specifying, did he care about the money at all? That's another consideration. Uh, some sleuths wonder if Cooper's jump wasn't just a last hurrah suicide of sorts, uh, taking his own life in a big, uh, a big blaze of glory here. Uh, and comparative analysis with World War II aircraft bailouts under hasty, non-ideal conditions do suggest that the jump was survivable. So it's a mystery as to why uh, or what Cooper was thinking for his second phase of the escape. Uh, Another debated mystery is how the money ended up at Tina Bar on the Columbia, whether uh, Cooper lost some of it during the jump or maybe a run through the woods if he did survive. Or did he ditch it, knowing he couldn't spend it without being tracked eventually? Uh, maybe it wasn't about the money at all. Maybe it's just to, to prove it could be done, as Agent Ralph Himmelsback postulated. Yeah, I just want to point out one thing. I'm going to come back to Tina Barr with yeah. our suspects. But just here's one thing, a little food for thought that I'm not sure you know. I'm pretty sure this was in Brad Meltzer's Decoded mm-hmm. series, which again had Special Agent Carr and the Citizen Sleuth being a part of it. The money on Tina Barr was upstream of where he would have theoretically landed. Just keep right. that in mind. I want everybody to keep that in mind. Yeah, we're going it, to talk about that, it, actually. Yes, it shouldn't ha- It shouldn't have been there, even if it was from the night of the jump. Oh, okay. I, I have another a buzzword term here for theory, but it, it specifically deals about this money-washing-down business. And how It's so weird. It's such a weird yeah. thing to have discovered, and, and such a one-in-a-million shot, or yeah. one-in-200,000 shot, of somebody actually finding this stuff. Well... Aside from considering the suspects, which is hypothesis, speculation, and conjecture, the only real piece of evidence to focus on is the money. And for the FBI, uh, then, of course, after that, the amateur sleuths and enthusiasts, uh, the investigation always follows the money. Uh, But the discovery of the partial ransom money in 1980 opened up a new round of questions and theories, and then it questions some of the initial conclusions by the FBI. Because if you remember, it was first assumed that the packets of bills Brian Ingram found 
had washed up there from uh, one of the connecting waterways or tributaries that fed into the Columbia River and was ultimately deposited at Tina Bar. One theory stated in the Himmelsbach book is that Cooper hadn't landed near Lake Merwin or the Lewis River as originally extrapolated because those feed into the Columbia River quite a ways downstream from Tina Bar. Oh, right. So this addresses what I just said. Yeah. yeah. So the <clears throat> recovered bills were stuck together, remember, and an Army Corps of Engineers hydrologist determined that the money was deposited at Tina Bar by the action of the river water brushing the bills against the rocks or, or uh, and the riverbed or, or the bank as well, uh, not from being deliberately buried. Keep that in mind. This was the conclusion because the corners of the bills had deteriorated, uh, causing them to have a rounded shape. That also, I believe, is something that geologist Leonard Palmer had also noted, uh, if I remember correctly, is that the rounded corn, the, the edges yes. of the bills had been worn off. Yes. Okay, uh -huh. so that suggests that this thing's, uh, this packet of bills has been bouncing around uh, against the rocks and in the water for quite some time for it to be able to do that. Uh, at some point. <laughs> at some, well, exactly. Not necessarily right before it was found. No, absolutely. You don't know when yeah. the water did that to it. That's, no, that's something as as we're gonna as we're gonna see right here, because this could also give way to the recalculated landing zone extrapolation of Cooper, more likely landing near the Washougal River, which feeds into the Columbia, uh, again quite a ways upstream from Tina Bar. So this has generally become known as the Washougal washdown theory. You like that? Yeah, yep. I do. <laughs> well, the like, except that's, yeah. All right, go ahead. That's got to be a Native American Washougal, right? A Native American name. Yes, you notice that the Western Washington Native American names uh, differ slightly than Eastern Washington, Idaho, and Montana, of course. Uh, but yeah, they have a lot of uh, uh, interesting names. Uh, also, like a squim for <laughs> a town in the on the Western Washington side. Uh, a lot of fun, funny names. But the, here's the thing about the Washougal washdown theory: uh, it doesn't answer all the questions. Like if three packets got separated from the rest of Cooper's bundle, why did these three remain together? Why did one packet have 10 bills missing from it? Since the rubber bands were still intact, since the rubber bands were still intact, the packets would have had to have washed up at Tina Bar within a couple of years of being lost. The geological layering, as we've covered above, means that the bills would have had to been deposited quite a long time after the Army Corps of Engineers dredging operation in 1974. But Tom Kay and the Cooper research team questioned geologist Leonard Palmer's finding, stating that the clay layer was possibly a natural deposit, which means that the depositing of the bills could be less than a year after Cooper jumped. See what we're saying here? Uh, one right. finding says, uh, uh, no, that was from the dredging. And so then it has to be way after 1974. Uh, the Cooper research team and Tom Kay say, well, no, if that's a natural layer, uh, it could be within a year. However, it still doesn't explain how the packets got to Tina Bar in the first place or where they started out from. All right, I'm chomping at the bit here to get to my part of the outline. But <laughs> before I do, yeah. I, I see this next section here, which I've been looking at for a couple weeks now, with the word diatom in it, D-I-A-T-O-M. Yes. What the hell is that? I have no idea what a diatom two, is. Two toms or a daily tom. <laughs> I'm just extrapolating <laughs> myself here. This freaked me out because uh, I, I believe this came up in River in our uh, research pool here. And then ah, I that's was where triggered. I, saw it. I did uh, see it. Yeah, I was triggered to find it again, uh, or it was on my places to, to check out as we're developing this. But I, I got 
hooked up with us pretty late in the research process here. And then I was freaked out by how recent this discovery was. You think this thing is all uh, wrapped up and sewn shut like a dummy parachute bag? It isn't. Uh, because uh, some very, very recent uh, findings have been found. Some later hypotheses for how these bills got there. Uh, to, to just to back up, it, obviously somebody other than Cooper could have put them there. Um, somebody who found the bills, uh, thought about keeping them, but didn't want any notice. Maybe they were wanted for something else. They, it was too hot. So they decided to uh, take them somewhere else or they carried them around for a while, then just like, ah, I'm going to bury these. Uh, that's one possibility. Uh, other theories, uh, possibly a wild animal carried the packets there. I know that sounds crazy, but uh, I've had dogs that just picked up and found stuff and carried it for a long ways to deposit it in your backyard. Or like yeah. the little kitty who steals shoes. Have you seen that? Yes, I have. Seen it, it traveled like a like a hundred miles around the neighborhood <laughs> in a week or something, something crazy. But animals do that. Well, There's a children's look, book like that, by the way. I yeah. used to read it to my son. Aww. I can't remember what the cat. It's the cat. I can't remember now. To, Who loved just one of a pair of shoes from everyone. It, it was taking stuff from the whole neighborhood. Oh, everybody's dear. stuff. Yeah, I remember reading it to my son. <laughs> well, at least it's uh, an equal opportunity yeah. uh, for furry thief. <laughs> Uh, well, well, look, people have been searching the Washougal River Valley since the recalculated potential landing zone theory came to light, and, and still nothing significant has been found. Although some folks wonder, uh, maybe if some piece of evidence had been covered up by the Mount St. Helens eruption in 1980, which blanketed some parts of the region in a thick layer of volcanic ash. So, you know, to me, if Cooper was alive to bury the money himself, possibly hoping to come back for it at some point, uh, once the heat had died down, I think he would have placed it in some kind of container that would have protected it. Even a plastic bag would have been better than nothing. And if he didn't care about the money, I, I would imagine he would just have burned it up to keep warm and destroy the evidence. That's what I would think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To me. So it, that's, since that happened, I remember it happening in 1980. That kind of freaked me out as a kid thinking like, how did the money get separated? What's the story there? Uh, sometimes those accidents just kind of happen. Sometimes they're planned. Sometimes uh, a random action causes a whole myth and story to follow up around it. Well, back to the big breaking news here. Um, it seems Cooper, Cooper's legend anyway, isn't done giving us clues and more puzzles to solve. So what about your diatoms here? Well, a very recent finding that's highlighted in an article from Seattle's NBC affiliate King 5 News Station, uh, get this, dated August 3rd, 2020, last month, right? Oh, yeah. I, I can't keep track of the months now, but uh, it seems that way from the numbers. That here. was last month. That was the, <laughs> okay. the time that we're recording this, yes. Well, that's when this came to light here. That's all freaked me out. It's like, really? People are still searching? Well, yes, they are. And that's why next year, next week, five years from now, another major piece of evidence could pop up. But here's something that... Uh, Tom Kay and the Cooper research team found, okay? Now, this article was written by Chris Ingalls, and I'm going to read a little bit from it here because uh, Tom Kay says it much better uh, than I could ever possibly hope to. And also, he's a scientist. Well, it, it also may shed a little bit of light on the case here. So um, it, it seems they are still on the case. And yes, they just made a new discovery. This time, Tom Kay, using an electron microscope, has found something on the recovered ransom bills. They're still looking at them. Seasonal diatoms or tiny little bits of star-shaped algae on the bills. Isn't that fascinating? And you'll find out Are why. Are we Here's saying this right? I, I suddenly got scared. It's diatoms? Di di or diatoms? 
That just sounds, that sounds even more preposterous, sir, but well, go ahead and look it up. Yes. No, look it up. I'll look it up. You keep talking. I'm All right, I'm, I'm going to keep saying it wrong or okay. perhaps right. Here we go. Well, look, uh, Kay published these findings in a peer-reviewed journal called Scientific Reports, and it's the first time Cooper evidence has been peer-reviewed and published. So this is getting back to the wording of the article here. Kay examined the ransom bills 12 years ago at the request of the Seattle FBI, but only recently turned his attention to algae that could have been present on the water-soaked money. So, quote, uh, So, suddenly, the light bulb came on, and we wondered if we could use these different species of diatoms that we found on the Cooper bills a long time ago to determine when the money got wet and when the money landed on the bank of the Columbia, said Kay. Continuing on with his quote here, the diatoms that we found on the Cooper money are a spring species, said Kay. They bloom in the spring. They do not bloom in November when Cooper jumped. Kay said that's because it shows the money ended up in the river months after Cooper jumped on November 24th, 1971. Okay, continuing on. Because the bills only had one season of diatoms on them and did not have diatoms that bloom in the winter, Kay theorizes that the money came out of the water and landed on the bank of Tina Bar, a sandbar on the Columbia River, after only a few weeks or months. Goes back to quoting him. The money was not floating in the water for a year. Otherwise, we would have seen diatoms from the full range of the year. We only saw them from the spring, the springtime bloom. So this puts a very narrow range on when the money got wet and was subsequently buried on Tina Bar, Kay said. The scientists of the new information scuttles the FBI's original theory in the 1980s that the money somehow flowed down rivers from Cooper's believed drop zone near Lake Merwin in southwest Washington into the Washougal River and out to the Columbia, the so-called Washougal washdown theory. Quote, uh, we are now able for the first time to use this piece of evidence and eliminate a bunch of theories, Kay said. However, the new finding also raises more questions than it answers. How did the money end up in the water months after Cooper's daring jump? How did it end up some 18 miles as the crow flies from Cooper's suspected drop zone? How did the money get out of the Columbia River and end up mostly intact with rubber bands holding three stacks of $20 bills together? Cooper is still messing with us, Kay said with a grin. Uh, Cooper, who was believed to be around 40 years old at the time, uh, would be around 90 years old now if he did survive the jump, which several FBI agents believe he did not. So yeah, he's Kay is publishing his findings so that citizen sleuths can have a chance to crack the case. He does not believe the FBI will reopen its investigation. And the last quote here, it's really left to the public and Cooper files like me to work on the case, he said. The FBI did not have any comment about Kay's findings. So you see what we're saying okay. here, okay? Money did not get into the water right after Cooper jumped or around that time. Yeah, I'm going to shed a little light on that here okay. coming up. But I also wanted to wait until you finished that whole thing to tell you that you were saying diatom wrong. <laughs> Diatom? No, I'm kidding. You did it. Wrong. Oh my goodness! Oh, I did, well, <laughs> I did look hey, it up. I hey, listened, while we you were we... talking, I, li I listened to the dictionary website say it in my ear. Just oh, to make sure. thank yeah. goodness! No, it, well, hey, that would have been on you, my friend, because I'm not re-saying all that. You would have had to. Edit no, out I would have that... just had you re-say it once, and I would have cut it in a million times. Be your voice. And with saying, you, like, like it would Diana. sound weird. Yeah. <laughs> 
Tom um, can't find anyway. There's, Adam. there's, there's, yeah. there is a really incredible theory that connects to all this right. on one of the suspects. So I'll be bringing that forth here in a little bit. Okay. Well, I'm pretty much done with my section here. That was the you couldn't get more current than that, except for maybe something happening today as we were convening to record. But something always happens when we right when we release the show. So yeah, we got to keep you know the synchronicity. synchronicity you got to keep it going. And then the I'm thing that always <laughs> the thing that kills me is that three months from now somebody will email us saying like. My grandfather was D.B. Cooper. You should check yeah. him out. And it's like, here's yeah. the proof. And it'll be all the rest of the money. And it's like, dang it. Well, I guess we'll just do an update <laughs> show. But again, to recap, because that's important. The idea here is that uh, if Cooper fell into the river upon the jump, didn't open his chute, ploop, just fell in the water, the money gets uh, separated. Some of that floats down, gets deposited at Tina Bar. That couldn't have happened in the winter. So it has to have happened in a springtime setting. So he jumps November 24th. You have to flash forward now until the spring. So that's at least several weeks or several months later that the money actually gets into the water, then gets covered up somehow. Or it had to have been a long time after that it was protected somehow, then weirdly, then ends up in the water in the springtime, then gets deposited and covered up. So yeah, he's right. At least it narrows it down to a springtime, either following 71, uh, so the spring of 72, or sometime thereafter. And we have to, you know, we got to keep in mind, this is um, about 10 years after the jump. It's not recent mm -hmm. that this money was found. This right. was 1980. Right. So it was a long time ago relative to now. But it was still also nearly a decade after the jump. Absolutely. So you got to keep all that in mind when you're evaluating all that stuff. Well, just to sum up my section here uh, and the attitude and stance as it is left by the authorities and the FBI, uh, this comes from the FBI.gov website uh, at the end of the small, short article that they have posted for the D.B. Cooper entry here. Uh, it just says, perhaps Cooper didn't survive the jump from his plane. After all, the parachute he used couldn't be steered. His clothing and footwear were unsuitable for a rough landing. And he had jumped into a wooded area at night. A dangerous proposition for even a seasoned pro, which evidence suggests Cooper was not. And this theory is backed up because of the money being found in 1980. That uh, had he survived, he most likely would have kept it all together. That was a sizable portion for a chunk of it got lost. Now, there are theories that he may have uh, fumbled some of it uh, while jumping from the plane. That's how it got separated. Who knows? Maybe he ditched some of it. Maybe he lost it running through the woods, as we said. So from their position here, keep this in mind, pretty dumb and stupid for a seasoned parachutist, a pro, to attempt. You wouldn't even do that. That's somebody who just, with a lot of bravura, thinks they could make it or didn't care. And that will now point to what kind of a person would do this? What's their profile like? Who are the usual and the unusual suspects? So before I turn the reins over to Scott here, let's take a look at a, the, the fun, <laughs> unusual suspects. The ones that are case, most perhaps. out there. Well, <laughs> they're, they're pretty out there, but they're out there. I'll, I'll tell you that here. Uh, well, one, we, we had an email from a listener, Erica, who wrote to us kindly about uh, the D.B. Cooper series, and she had a couple of interesting points. One, her favorite theory about who D.B. Cooper was is that 
he survived the jump in the heist, and he went on to reinvent himself as Tommy Weezo of The Room. <laughs> you know that movie, don't you? Yes, I do. <laughs> it's the, for those of you that don't, it, 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 Tommy Weezo is the creator of the indie classic, uh, one of those It's So Bad It's Good uh, movies called The Room. Uh, somebody who had, and I, I, I can kind of get this, he had a chunk of unexplainable money, really, like millions of dollars. And that's one thing that probably goes against uh, being Cooper, unless he invested wisely. Uh, and he just went out and made a movie based on his own ego and and uh, just wanting to do it and wanting to be an actor and movie maker, but having zero knowledge about movie making. Almost like he never watched a movie. Yeah. Because <laughs> talk about this podcast not making sense. Uh, the movie made, uh, it was just, it's just out there. It's really crazy. Uh, it came out in 2003. Uh, there's actually a pretty good film made about the making of it uh, uh, by James Franco. I think he's directs and uh, is the star of it where he plays Tommy and it's called the disaster artist. Uh, and it's just, it's just kind of heartbreaking and charming and just wacky and funny and, and, uh, just unbelievable. But, uh, but if you think about it, that movie came out in 2003, Tommy looks to be about 40 or so it's, well, I, I'll give you this. He is a mysterious dude. You can't get any information out of the guy. Uh, he said he was from new Orleans and he just does not have, it sounds like he has a covered up, uh, Eastern European accent. Yeah. Somehow it just has a weird, it's just, it's just weird. It's just, the whole thing's weird, but <laughs> The age doesn't fit, but you do wonder about uh, somebody with a weird background uh, who suddenly has come into money. That characteristic will come into some of the characters and suspects we'll be looking at in a minute here. Uh, so so there you go. Thank you so much, uh, Erica. Also, one more thing she mentioned, uh, kind of weird and talking about uh, my point about how people might come to suspect just people that give a weird clue. She was talking about a podcast called uh, Missing in Alaska. And the podcast episode, at least, was was about two U.S. congressmen who died in a mysterious plane crash in the seventies. Oh yeah! But on episode I know this uh, seven, do, do, yeah, right, yeah, remember that? Yeah, I know this. I know this. Um, I know this story. We've looked this up before yeah. for some reason. I think it's uh, right. Hale Boggs, Thomas Hale Boggs, Senior. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I think right. we looked it up. Maybe when we were talking about Amelia or something else. It, this has come up before. It's another weird mystery, right? Well, yeah. uh, she was saying in episode seven of the series here, uh, again, I think the podcast is called Missing in Alaska. Uh, the episode is titled Don't Knock Arizona. And she says it contains an interview with the son of someone who could have been potentially involved in the plane disappearance. But weirdly, at 45 minutes and 50 seconds in, this person casually mentions that uh, the only time his dad was ever interviewed by the cops was not regarding the congressman's plane, but rather because he was friends with a man from Alaska named as a D.B. Cooper suspect by the cops who loved to jump out of planes and who disappeared and was never heard from again after November 1971. Oh. Also, Pretty I was wrong. Weirdly. I was thinking of Will Rogers, uh, who died oh, in that's a plane right. crash in Alaska. Uh, and we, yes, which with... We mentioned, uh, uh, yeah, we mentioned during Amelia Earhart, uh, Wiley Post. That's right. Yeah, Wiley it's a different Post, crash, right. different crash, but yes. Ah, I see, yes. Yeah. But just a weird story, and, and that's what I'm saying. Yeah, so did they, is like there a that. name with this guy? Uh, she did not say it. I did not have time to listen to the episode, but okay. uh, again, I encourage you. It's called Missing in Alaska. Okay. Uh, it's episode seven, and the, it happens around 45 minutes and 50 seconds in, as Erica says. Uh, it's just, that's what I'm saying though. A couple of these suspects that we're going to take a look at, somebody has a weird dream 
uh, mentions something on a deathbed, these little seeds then like, yeah. you know, oh, somebody watches a documentary like, I think that's my brother. Right. I think, oh, that really looks like my brother. Oh my gosh, I got to tell somebody about it. Like yeah, that, there's a lot of that screenwriter. going on. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of that going on. All right, well, anyway, to wrap up this section here, uh, little, two other weird things. Well, this is from the wiki entry here, as uh, as as a bit of this is. Uh, it's a story about other criminals latching on, of course, or doing a little bit of a larceny here. Uh, there were apparently two men who were able to swindle $30,000 from a Newsweek reporter named Carl Fleming back in 1972. Uh, I guess they were trying to sell a an interview with Cooper. Yeah, they were trying to prove that they were connected to the case and they could do this story about Cooper by counterfeiting money with some of the serial numbers from the list of wanted serial numbers. So it's interesting. It's an interesting con because like they're not just counterfeiting money, which they could go out and try to pass in the real world and make their money that way. They're actually counterfeiting it just to get a news story done and to get that like lump sum <laughs> off the counterfeited money, pretending that it's the money that came off the plane. Oh my god! Convoluted. Gosh. That's why you know that's <laughs> when Hollywood they call it high concept, um, which can be harder to. That's uh, but it worked until they got uh, caught. So it didn't didn't really work, but it it worked for a second. Well, it sounds a little bit to me like uh, Mr. Kobayashi, another mysterious figure. I. And Mr. Mr. Kent had used uh, had swindled sixty thousand dollars to uh, from one of his associates. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, that was uh, terrible. But uh, yeah. but then he's doing an, an Indian accent, and uh, <laughs> he's not he's not Indian. Anyway, uh, two other uh, crazy. Uh, well, maybe not crazy. Two other way out there woo woo possibilities. Uh, Bigfoot uh-huh. had rescued DB Cooper. Ah, put yes. him to safety. And or killed and now, him. I would go with killed him also. Possibly could have killed him, broke him in half, stuck him in a tree. with the money. <laughs> and some of the money, like, Bigfoot no need bills. Yeah. And just threw them <laughs> yeah. in the water. Yeah. But that guy's jerk. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Anyway. Wow. <laughs> anyway, that's... No, that actually, Bigfoot ties into a lot of the lore. Yeah, uh, that's true. That's comically, true. Well, of course. Well, it was a Bigfoot t-shirts. area. That's exactly right. It's the area of uh, the Eight Canyon incident with Fred Beck. Remember, we talked about that in the 20s during our exhaustive series on the Patterson-Gimlin film. That is uh, south and around Mount St. Helens. Bigfoot country, my friend. Yeah. So uh, I know people joke about that, but uh, the other way out uh, hypothesis that most will find laughable but I've kind of come to weirdly respect and fear a little. It's the missing 411. Ah, the idea People that... People go missing. He went missing. Weirdly. He landed and he met the wrong thing in the wrong space-time continuum and evaporated. Well, obviously he's... <laughs> he may or may not be missing. If you do think he's missing, there's natural means, and then there are supernatural or paranormal means by which he is missing. That is something I just thought of, but like, yeah. Well, you know, there's a couple of our listeners that have pointed to some conspiracy theories, and we just get these out of the way uh, right here at the top because we're going to dive into the more meteor stuff here in a second. But one of, I I believe somebody reached out to us on Twitter and said, you know, have you looked in the possibility, and this is one of my favorite, and we mentioned it at the top of the show, is that that he didn't exist at all. That this guy, that this was an inside job uh, possibly perpetrated by the airline itself who yes, was that's right. interested in, uh, I don't know, upping uh, upping security protocols or something like that. Um, is that something you're familiar with, that story? 
Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, that was uh, a comment left by a listener named Jason, uh, who posted his comment for part two on the on the webpage for that episode. That's where I saw it. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I'm not uh, hesitant about reading this because, of course, he he left the comment on a public website. Right. <laughs> so here's the comment left by Jason. Uh, something to consider. Cooper wasn't the only one to benefit from the hijacking. The airlines wanted the airport to provide the security and offload insurance liabilities. Up to that point, it was everyone for themselves. A good conspiracy is the airline put Cooper up to the hijacking and helped to cover up his involvement in order to get the transit authority they wanted. If Cooper didn't die in the jump, how did he know they were tracking the money, and how did he launder it so those bills never showed up? It's rumored that the airline president burned boxes of something out back in the offices afterward. The money, perhaps. A small price to pay for the millions of dollars they saved since then. Well, it's, it's an interesting angle, and I would say that, um, I, I, to my point, as we said earlier here, I would think Cooper would just suspect that the money was going to be traced. And it's a bit risky to burn the bills. On the other hand, people do weird stuff in weird capers. But uh, So that's one conspiracy theory. But getting back to Sluggo, who, again, since Scott found the, the website, I've been really digging into that one. And I tend to trust it because he, it is one of those guys that uh, he's just a no baloney kind of guy. He said there was so much uh, myth and speculation and stuff as uh, added to the story as Scott was talking about. Like he wanted to create a website where it's just the real story and be a repository for actual uh, facts that had been come across and, and not a lot of people's uh, uh, speculations, as you could say. But regarding the conspiracy theories here, Sluggo will have none of it. <laughs> this is what he says uh, about conspiracy theories uh, from uh, Sluggo's Northwest 305 hijacking research site uh, we've mentioned here. So he says, what you will not find on this site, you will not find conspiracy theories on this website. If you want to read about how the FBI arranged for Cooper to do the skyjacking and get away with the money as payment for assassinating John F. Kennedy, or how Cooper worked for the CIA and the skyjacking was a device to distract the public's attention from the Vietnam War, well, you're going to have to go somewhere else. You won't find that kind of stuff here. So he's not entertaining uh, any way out theories. But of course, those are going to pop up with anything like this. Yeah. And somewhere I read, I can't remember who made this assessment, but Donald Nyrop, who was the CEO yeah. of Northwest at the time. Right. One of the things that was made clear about his character from people that knew him or had interviewed him or worked with him was that his number one priority would have been the safety of the people on the aircraft. So it's hard to imagine him engineering this whole thing that doesn't jibe with that personality trait that people said about right. him uh, from right. a conspiratorial standpoint. But it is interesting idea that uh, we didn't have cameras in the airports back then, or, you know, they didn't have a camera on the guy buying the ticket, or if they did, that footage is lost and yeah. it doesn't exist anywhere. So really you have um, a handful of people saying this guy existed and didn't get off the plane. Mm -hmm. It's not inconceivable as a conspiracy, but pretty, pretty hard to imagine, especially after all this time. And the more people you have involved, the less likely it is to be kept a secret. And that would have been a lot of people between a ticket agent and the entire flight crew and many of the passengers. That would be a pretty hard thing to pull off. So, you know. Yeah. But because yeah. we like to talk about the far out, we we, we have we to do. at least address it. I don't want to just slough yeah. it off, but I, I just don't think it's likely in this case based on everything no. that we've learned. We're not big conspiracy guys. You probably figured that out if you've uh, listened to our overview. But uh, we do like to mention them. I find them fascinating. Uh, 
and and they're they're curious but uh, you know even for us we're going to kind of stick to what's been discovered and verified but regarding uh, possible suspects this is what i will say uh, as scott is going to launch into uh profiling each of these uh folks is that there are weird things that pop up with probably each of them that make you go hmm and you know all of them have some angle and then there's other things that like well okay that really makes it unlikely but it's so weird that this coincidence would happen regarding them all right so here i'm going to do rich haddam's trademark move before i get into the suspects <laughs> and that's this He's that's when he puts his hands together and rubs them really fast because yeah. he's excited about talking about. So I am excited about talking he, about all these suspects. He's either excited about uh, what he's going to tell you. He's going to drop some knowledge bomb on you, or there's a dirty martini being made somewhere nearby. <laughs> One of the two, or probably both. Or I both. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, there's been hundreds of suspects over the years in the D.B. Cooper skyjacking or hijacking. And there are podcasts solely dedicated to this case. And we've mentioned, uh, we mentioned one already, uh, the D.B. Cooper Vortex. There are other singular mm. episodes, obviously. Lots of shows in our milieu have covered D.B. Cooper as well. <laughs> I, the, the bottom line is you could easily talk about each suspect for several episodes. You could do many years on this. My hat's off to the guys doing that. I would lose my yeah. mind if I was that deep into <laughs> it. Uh, that's not what we're here to do. But we've picked a few to cover the broad strokes and uh, one or two to go deeper on as our cursory research allows. So we, we've got overviews on um, at least 10 of them. And for two of them, I read entire books. So <laughs> mm, <laughs> I, I'm anxious wow. to share some of that information. And we pulled some quotes from those books that I think are going to give everybody a little bit of pause when uh, it comes to thinking about uh, this stuff. Oh, and we did, I think we want to mention the Generation Y uh, did an episode on this back in 2015. Yeah. Those guys are friends of ours. So, um, you know, it's it's. I'm excited to talk about it. Let me ask you this, though. Did the uh, Cooper Vortex podcast hosts, how did they find out we did the mention? Did they listen to the episode, part one, and then... Yeah, uh, because they they must have listened or they must have heard or somebody told them that uh, wow. we know. But they're you know what they're friends with our friend Chris Williamson. So and he oh, may also true. be yes. listening. So there's ah very good. There's a lot of connections there. But yes. uh, anyway, thanks for listening, everybody who listens, yes. um, especially to this one. Um, we we appreciate people hanging in there. Uh, we were supposed to be off this week, but um, <laughs> it's a bit of an outlier. It's a bit but... of an outlier, and it, our, um, uh, it's going to be a it's going to take me a few minutes to edit this. But uh, <laughs> here we go. Uh, let's talk okay. a little bit All about right. the suspects. I tried to put these in order of, for me, and this is subjective, obviously, but this order for me is from least intriguing to most intriguing. And that's, uh, remember, oh, that's the I'm, best way to go. Personally, yeah. it's my personal point of view. So there's definitely some confirmation bias coming into play here, but that seemed like the best way to deal with this. I'll go with that. All right. I've given each suspect my own nickname. Now, if other people have come up with nicknames for the suspects and I'm aping those, it is unknowingly. Um, <laughs> wait, wait are, you, are you recording this caveat here? That, yes, yes. This disclaimer? I yes. See. So our first suspect, the Boatman. Um, mm. That's what I'm calling this guy. His name is uh, nice. Joseph S. Lockich. Uh, L-A-K-I-C-H. His name's very close to a good friend of mine's name in Detroit, actually. Oh, I was yeah. like, wait, is that that guy? No, it's not. That guy that uh, owns the Detroit... Record Club, which is a great place to get records. And uh, yeah. anyway, um, 
I call Mr. Lockage the boatman because there's this theory that this uh, gentleman has put forth and he has a YouTube video, which we have a link to. It's about seven minutes long. As of right now, not a lot of people have seen it. I think it's had uh, 4,000 views. Um, is, That's is, not too shabby. No, it's posted by a guy named Bill Rollins who says uh, in, via titles, there's no narration on this, but via titles in the video that he is an instrument rated pilot and that he's figured out how this has all gone down. And he, he puts forth a pretty interesting theory. He suggests that the Merwin Dam was the drop point, that Cooper did all this pre-planning, that he had bought a couple of boats, an aluminum boat and a, a Zodiac-type boat, uh, so that he could land just below the Merwin Dam, which was well-lit and would be his guide when he would jump out of the plane. Then he would take the boats and get back to his camper, and that his base was at Tina Bar, where that money was found by Brian Ingram uh, almost 10 years later, and that this is how the whole operation went down. The most interesting thing about the lockage theory is the motive. One of the motives that is suggested there is that he was getting revenge for the untimely death of his daughter, and I actually found an article related to that that I thought was kind of interesting. Her name was Susan Lockage or Susan Lockage Giff. Mm-hmm. Uh, this article is from the News Palladium, uh, October 1971, October 5th, 1971. Um, we have a membership to newspapers.com. This is out of that. This heading here, it's, a, it's an article that says, uh, FBI caused murder of pilot. The operator of a Tennessee aircraft company said the FBI agents who foiled a hijack attempt, which took three lives, staged a desperate bluff, which unnecessarily caused the death of a young pilot. The FBI declined comment. Britt Downs, a 30-year-old captain for Big Brothers Aircraft Incorporated of Nashville, died in a volley of shots Monday when his commandeered plane touched down for refueling. Downs was killed in the cockpit of the six-seat Airhawk commander, shot twice from behind, police said. The hijacker, George M. Giff Jr. of Nashville, also killed his young wife and then himself. So uh, his young wife, she's pictured here, Susan Lockich Giff, G-I-F-F-E, was kidnapped and shot to death on a charter plane, taken at gunpoint from Nashville to Jacksonville by her estranged husband, George Mallory Giff Jr. The plane had been chartered by Giff on Sunday, but police said he used a gun to force the pilot, also killed aboard when Mrs. Giff began kicking and screaming. So the theory is that, that Joseph Lockich wanted revenge for this, and that's what um, he's saying took place there. So that's the motive that he's, you know, these are all real events, and that's yeah. that all connects somehow. But that's that's the motive that he's saying for Lockage. And we do have to keep in mind he did say he had a grudge, not right. with you, possibly though with the airline or some other entity. Just a grudge. I start with this one because it's you know it's it's fun conjecture and it's interesting how he's mapped out the route and everything, but there's a lot of stuff about it that doesn't really hold up for me. Uh, the, one of the first things is that he suggests that he was going to use the Merwin Dam as the place that he wanted to land at, and the shoot right. he picked, as we've said over and over again, was not controllable. And to, to be clear. This parachute is one of the round kind, the old school paratrooper classic. You're watching the World War II movie. It's a mm-hmm. ball. It's a circular, you know, or, or um, a hemispherical. And you can't control where that goes. So right. uh, knowing yeah. where the lights were at the Merwin Dam at most might tell you when to jump out of the back of the plane. But whether or not you're going to get to it from two miles up is highly unlikely. And also there was cloud cover at 5,000 feet. So there was no way that he could have seen the lights. Even if there was a break in the clouds, though, let's say he did see it. He couldn't have controlled his descent to come down. I agree with the FBI and everyone else about that. He's going to come down wherever he comes down. Whatever his plan right. was, it was to improvise after he landed. 
Yeah. Uh, no, I, I, there's a lot of things I, I do like about this, especially the, the change of boats and using the riverways to get where he needed, especially to, to Portland International Airport, which at the time, uh, I, theoretically, I guess you could boat up to it and just walk in. Uh, of course, as we know now, airport security was much less uh, stringent as it is now. Uh, so that's one way to get there. But the other things, as you mentioned, uh, one supposition from this theory by Mr. Bill Rollins is that in his bag, he had, uh, in his attache case, he had some avionics which could track possibly where he was at. Uh, so you'd need some sort of transponder device or something to time about where he would be at, at what point in, in time. And we don't believe that he had that. He did let Florence Shafter look inside the bag briefly just to see that there was a, possibly a fake bomb there and what she recognized were cylinders wiring a large battery. I forget the name of the, the type of battery. It's a large cylinder battery that was very popular at the time uh, as something to possibly trigger the bomb uh, with a little, little bit of electricity. But nothing is what she would describe as you know, electronic components, anything to, to mark, because yeah, he, he would need to know uh, if he was going to jump out somewhere near the dam, he would have to be fairly exact or he's going to be five miles away yeah. walking through the woods. Yeah. So that doesn't fit. The other part uh, for me is uh, him accidentally dropping the money at Tina bar. And as we just discussed, according to the diatoms, that did not happen around the time that he jumped in November. It would have had to have been deposited there uh, by the springtime diatoms sometime in the springtime. So that for me is not fitting. But I do like the the, the plan of uh, using the camper a, as a base, using the boats uh, to kind of maneuver his way to get there. And then once he landed, using uh, losing a using all that. Yeah. And I'm curious where he got this information because there is evidence that he had uh, a camper. And so right. that, that does come up. So there's some parts of it that make sense, but uh, just the, you know, the age of the money. And also I think the idea of him maneuvering to Merwin Dam, uh, especially without any kind of avionics. And I don't know at that point how you could have avionics that were small enough to fit in a suitcase. I don't think so. Allow yeah. you to figure out where you were. So um, I so for me, my verdict on the boatman, Mr. Lockich, yeah. is that he is not a viable suspect. Yeah, I vaguely remember also from uh, the research here that they weren't using the types of avionics that they have now in planes that are, that are much more precise no. uh, to track position. So our next subject, I call him uh, the hitchhiker. His name is Walter mm. Recca. Um, there's a few of these guys you could have called the hitchhiker, but I like that for this one. And <laughs> Mr. Recca's last name is R-E-C-A. This is pretty compelling uh, off of just one event and a witness. Recca was, in fact, a vet and a member of the Michigan Parachute Team. And apparently uh -huh. Recca told a close friend of his that he was Cooper over a recorded telephone call. And Recca gave his friend, Carl Lauren, L-A-U-R-I-N, permission to share his story of being D.B. Cooper after he died. Recca even drew up a notarized letter about it, and when he died at the age of 80 in 2014, Lauren was cleared to share Recca's story, and the story is pretty interesting. Lauren is also an expert jumper, and he determined that he thought Cooper had landed near the town of, you're going to have to help me with this one, Forrest, Clee Elam in Washington? Clee Elam. Clee Elam, yes. thank you. Clee Elam yes. in Washington. 
I had not heard of that town. It's C-L-E space E-L-U-M. Oh, it's very popular. Um, well, I'd like to check it out. It's I bet it's... Mostly from the name, I think. Yeah. Picturesque. Uh, but <laughs> sounds there's picturesque. Also a, yeah, there's also a George Washington, of course. Oh, of course. Well, that makes sense. Well, this whole story about Mr. Recca centers around an eyewitness saying that he was driving a dump truck and he picked up a guy walking on the side of the road looking like a, quote, drowned rat in the bad mm. weather. That was on the night, you guessed it, of November 24th, 1971. Now, after some amateur sleuthing, Mr. Lauren tracked down the truck driver. And the story was a dead match for what Recca had told him. So they had apparently stopped at a cafe. They had some coffee. Recca described the truck driver as being dressed like a cowboy. And that's how Lauren wound up finding him. Uh, it was, a, I think it was a big dump truck. So he mm. called around looking for a dump truck driver in the area who dressed like a cowboy in a, you know, small <laughs> that town hasn't area. hasn't really limited, hasn't really narrowed it down. No, that, but, you uh, know, but it, it was a small enough sure. area that, but they, but they figured it out. So okay. uh, Lauren took all of this apparently to a forensic linguist who did a thorough evaluation and concluded after looking at passports, ID cards, pictures, and clippings that he could not only not rule Recca out as Cooper, he was compelled by the fact that Recca's story of uh, being picked up by this driver and the truck driver's story gathered five years later were identical. So this forensic linguist declared publicly that he believed Walter Recca was D.B. Cooper. Mm. This is one of those ones, like you were saying, that seems to have something pretty compelling with it. There's actually a book on this. It's called Getting the Truth, I Am D.B. Cooper. And uh, mm -hmm. we'll have a link to that in the show notes. So there, there's a couple of things about this that are interesting to me. And, oh, I, I think I forgot to mention that in terms of Mr. Lockett earlier, the boatman, when you look at the picture of him and you compare it to the sketches, I just don't see yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, there's okay. something you just don't see. And here is the thing about Mr. Recca. Again, not a lot of resemblance between the pictures and him. Of course, he has a big, bushy, like Tom Selleck mustache in the photo of him <laughs> that you find online. So my, my verdict on Mr. Recca is no. And also in the photo, he does not look like him, although he has a big, bushy Tom Selleck mustache, yeah. which probably doesn't help. But I just don't know if that story for me holds water. I'm keeping in mind now because we, we you know, as we said earlier in this series, it's not our first rodeo. We went through mm. this on uh, Amelia Earhart, for example. Everybody has their theories, and some people are very, very adamant about their theories being right and other theories being wrong. I mean, no offense to folks when I say this is, sure. you know, it's not working for me. It's just, and this is my very cursory look at it. Some people have spent years and years and years on just one of these, and we certainly haven't done that. We've only been at this three or four weeks. So, uh, <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not on board with Mr. Recca based on what I know. Yeah. Well, I, well, look, here's the thing. Um, Good uh, for you bringing up Amelia Earhart. It, it just reminded me of the the doc photo at Jolliwood. Um, you say it was not Amelia and Fred sitting at the dock, and you're mistaken. That's not a white lady and a white guy. Uh, you know, her wearing a white shirt with a, a you know woman with a um, a, a short haircut. Uh, but it looks a lot like it. Now, I tend to believe that there's something to that photo. But a lot of people will say like, well, no, it's just a coincidence. You're, you're, you're looking into it. And what did uh, the cowboy dump truck driver really see that night and who he picked up? Is it something kind of close? Like there's no, he didn't take a photo of the guy. Right. And I have to go back to, well, 
the people who did really see Cooper very well give a very clear description of it. So that's going to figure very prominently for me going down this list of suspects. They they got to look like that sketch in some way. Yeah, I agree. Well, this brings us to our next suspect. This would be the one I call the Merchant Marine, mm. Barb Dayton. Barb Dayton's a pretty fascinating person. Um, Barb was born Robert Dayton in 1926 and served in both the Merchant Marines and the U.S. Army and mm-hmm. uh, also later worked with explosives. In Ooh. 1969, Dayton had gender reassignment surgery and adopted the name Barbara. Uh-huh. Barbara herself claimed to have staged the Cooper hijacking to get back at the airlines for making it too difficult for a woman to become an airline pilot. Now, the FBI has never said anything about her. Uh, People say that she reverted to her male persona to pull off the ultimate disguise. But ultimately, she, in fact, recanted her confession, uh, supposedly because she was worried about prosecution. Well, there is that, yes. Yeah, there is that. And uh, there's some (laughs) good information on this. One of of the best sources for all of Mm -hmm. this stuff is a website called The Mountain News, which is a... Uh, news organization out of Washington, and uh, this is a pretty great article that, on this that we have. There is a good book, too, called The Legend of D.B. Cooper, Death by Natural Causes, and that's actually written by a married couple that knew Barb. Um, I think they had uh, hmm. planes at the same at the same uh, airstrip and mm-hmm. uh, had known Barb for quite some time. So that's another interesting suspect. However, in looking at the pictures of Barb uh, as Robert at the time period, I did not yeah. again see a real good match. There was a low a low resemblance, but it was more of one than it was with the prior two that we've mentioned. But for me, this is a pretty thin connection. It's a good story, but a thin connection. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, again, things that, that click with it, uh working with explosives. Yep. So they could possibly fabricate something that looked pretty close to a bomb. On the other hand as well, you could get some road flares and some loose red wiring and uh, a, 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 an alarm clock and a big battery jam that into an attaché case and who's going to know the difference? Roadrunner and coyote. <laughs> right. You, you need the uh, the big loud ticking alarm clock though. Yeah. That's classic. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so again, it's another story where there are some weird points to it that possibly line up, uh, possibly a motive, uh, but they have to fit the description. Well, and this plays into an idea of doing it for a reason besides the money. And people, yeah. then you get to think about these people that want to say that they did it for this idea, whether or not they actually did it, because they want to draw attention to. I mean, Barb probably wanted to draw attention to the point that it was hard for a woman to become a pilot. So sure. it makes sense to take credit for the crime to draw attention to that, even if you didn't really do it. And then, of course, if you're going to recant it because you're afraid of being prosecuted, then <laughs> you recant it, but you still manage to make your point. And there's no shortage of suspects that seem to be wanting to bask in the glory of the crime, but that they couldn't have possibly done it. Now, I'm not saying that right. with Barb, but the FBI has actually never mentioned anything about Barb. And like right. I said, I don't think Barb lines up with the picture. Yeah. Well, let's move on to the copycat. Now, this <laughs> is pretty fascinating. There's actually a lot of copycats. Before we get into this, this, uh, this gentleman's name is Richard Floyd McCoy. Um, he's and a, he was a favorite suspect uh, at some point by the FBI, too. Yes, he was. And we're going to talk about why that was. But let's let's back up a little bit. I want to read this uh, section from Wikipedia about copycat crimes after Cooper jumped. In all, 15 hijackings similar to Cooper's, all unsuccessful, were attempted in 1972. 
Mm -hmm. With the advent of universal luggage searches in 1973, the general incidence of hijackings dropped dramatically. There were no further notable Cooper imitators until July 11th, 1980, uh, not too far before uh, Brian Ingram found that money on Tina Barr, yep. when Glenn K. Tripp seized Northwest Flight 608 at Seattle-Tacoma Airport, demanding $600,000. Ooh, up the um, stakes. Yes, it is. Now, there's, and parenthetically, it says here that it, someone else said it was 100000 but right. either way, demanding money. Two parachutes, and this is my favorite part, the assassination of his boss. That's really, <laughs> that is up well there. That That's the there. demand everybody wants to make. <laughs> so. You don't understand, that guy's a jerk. Yeah, he's got a, might as well ask for that too. A quick thinking flight attendant had secretly drugged Tripp's alcoholic beverage oh my with Valium. After a 10-hour standoff, during which Tripp reduced his demands to three cheeseburgers <laughs> and a head start on getting away, <laughs> oh. he was apprehended. <laughs> However, three years later, on January 21st, 1983, while still on probation, he hijacked right. the same Northwest flight, this time en route, and demanded to be flown to Afghanistan. Okay, what about this? No, <laughs> no money. Forget the cheeseburgers. Just Afghanistan. Just Wait Afghanistan. Afghanistan plus the cheeseburgers. When I, I just just love that. Yeah, it's like you've you've got a you got a bit of a buzz. You got the munchies. Yeah. Look, just what can you get me? Make sure they're good cheeseburgers, though. Well, according to the Wikipedia entry, when that plane landed in Portland, um, poor Mr. Tripp was shot and killed by FBI oh. agents. Yeah, they, they don't play around with that stuff. Yeah, that's uh, so no joking there. So that was, but 15 copycats, that's one of them. Let's talk about Richard Floyd McCoy. He is the most famous D.B. Cooper copycat. Uh, he yeah. committed his crime four and a half months after Cooper um, he hijacked a United Airlines plane for ransom, and he actually is from my home state of uh -huh. North Carolina, where I live now, from Kinston, which for those of you <laughs> keeping track, is also the home of Jamie Presley. Yes. Um, uh, actress that you may know. Yeah, get from, her on the show. Yeah. She also was Poison Ivy. Uh, he okay. was, uh, he served in Vietnam. He was a demo expert and a pilot. He was also mm -hmm. in the Utah National Guard and a skydiving enthusiast. Uh, Mr. McCoy yeah. taught Mormon Sunday school and studied law enforcement at BYU, Brigham Young University. He boarded this flight as James Johnson, the most unimaginative fake name ever, uh, <laughs> in Denver. It could have been, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and there was- It, it could was, have been James Smith. Yeah, James, Jim Smith, John Smith. This uh, plane had 85 passengers on it. It was on a stopover in Denver. It was um, a 727, same as D.B. Cooper. Mm -hmm. there, there is a funny little animated- uh, thing that we found a link to that it okay. shows the plane and then like a person jumping out of the back, a tiny person. And so I, I do oh. want to link to that. It's very funny. Anyway. I sent that. That's that's on the wiki page. Yeah, it's, it's on the wiki page. It's just a little, yeah, a little guy yeah. jumping out of the back of the plane. It's okay. great. <laughs> One of the big things about Cooper, though, is witnesses said he was in his 40s. Richard McCoy was actually right. only 29 when he committed this crime. Uh, uh -huh. Listen to this uh, Wikipedia entry on Mr. McCoy. A following fingerprint and handwriting matches, McCoy was arrested two days after the hijacking. McCoy was on National Guard duty flying one of the helicopters involved in the search <laughs> for him. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> inside his house, FBI agents found yeah. a jumpsuit and a duffel bag with cash totaling $499,970. So that supports that he did ask yeah. for uh, five or 600 or whatever. Um, right, right. But you're pressing your luck a little bit. Pressing it a little bit, yeah. Uh, yeah. He claimed innocence but was convicted of the hijacking, received a 45-year sentence. 
Once incarcerated at the federal penitentiary at Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, McCoy used his access to the prison's dental office to fashion a fake handgun out of dental paste. He and a crew of convicts escaped on August 10th, 1974 by commandeering a garbage truck and crashing it through the prison's main gate while the A-Team theme played. I'm kidding. The A-Team theme was not played. That does sound like... Uh, the other two were captured three days later following a shootout after a bank robbery. Ooh, three dramatic. months later, he was out for three months. The FBI located McCoy in Virginia Beach, Virginia, where he had been trying to find Edgar Casey's Institute. Just kidding. That's um, right. Well, uh, could be. News reports yes. stated that on November 9th, 1974, McCoy walked into his home and was met by FBI agents Nick O'Hara, Kevin McPartland, and Gerald Houlihan. He fired at them. And all agents opened fire, killing McCoy. So, uh, where's that movie? I'm sure it's out there, being developed somewhere. <laughs> it's um, yeah, everything it's in a is. stack on some uh, yeah yeah producer's uh, desk. It uh, was know, written, the, and the, somebody went printed out. Yeah, um, my That's verdict dramatic though. Yeah, yeah, and my verdict on this guy is no. He had an alibi uh, for right. the uh, Cooper the night of the Cooper hijacking. He was with family. It was Thanksgiving, and he was. Working. Yes, I remember that. Right, yeah. they so. they looked at him, but he had a, uh, you know, he had an alibi, a uh, lot of involvement though, and again, one of those, uh, just a, a handful of things that do line up. Yeah, exactly. This brings us to the gambler, uh, mm. the gambler, William Gossett, Kenny. Oh, no, not Kenny Rogers, not Kenny Rogers, and That's not it. Lou Gossett Jr., but William Gossett, oh. the gambler. He had the training. He had been Vietnam and Korea. He yeah. Also hosted a radio show about the paranormal out of Salt Lake City. Hmm. No way. Where were you in 1971, Forrest? <laughs> um, uh, at home uh, with my parents. Well, he was also known for being obsessed with the D.B. Cooper case. He collected all mm. kinds of stuff on it. And when he was older, he told his children and a retired judge that he was Cooper. Now, this is uh, some quoted material I'm going to read to you from Above Top Secret, a website we've referenced many times in the past. Mm -hmm. We have a link to it in the show notes. According to Galen Cook, uh, who's a name you'll see a lot if you read anything about this Cooper stuff, a uh, a lawyer who has collected information related to Gossett for years, Gossett once showed his sons a key to a Vancouver, British Columbia safe deposit box, which he claimed contained the long-missing ransom money. Gossett's eldest son, Greg, said that his father, a compulsive gambler who was always, quote, strapped for cash, showed him, quote, wads of cash just before Christmas 1971, weeks after the Cooper hijacking. He speculated that Gossett gambled the money away in Las Vegas. The FBI has no direct evidence (laughs) implicating Gossett and cannot even reliably place him in the Pacific Northwest at the time of the hijacking. Quote, there is not one link to the D.B. Cooper case, end quote, said Special Agent Carr. Other than the statements Gossett made to someone. Well, not just somebody, his own son. Well, his own son. But, you know, there's a lot of things going on here. There's a lot of things I want to say about this particular suspect, type of suspect. This fits a mold for me uh, Mm -hmm. out of this list of suspects of these guys who are kind of these 'er ne'er-do-wells that are con artists and career criminals. And that, you know, they they got it later into life and they thought, God. I really screwed this. I I just didn't do anything I thought I was going to do with my life. Right. But God, how much would the people that don't respect me, my loved ones or whatever, respect me if I if I could convince them that I was D.B. Cooper? I was the <laughs> guy. Like, yeah. If I could convince them that I pulled off a successful crime. Yeah, I did this. I made it happen. So right. it, I, I get that. And in a way, it's kind of sad. It's like, you know, because you see 
these con artists want to be like, I pulled, let me tell you what, I pulled the ultimate con. And right, right. I don't know. I don't see it. But then on the other hand, my counterpoint to that is I've made this list. I've decided how interesting people are. I'm going from least interesting yeah. to most interesting on my own personal subjective opinion. It could be the very first person I mentioned, the boatman with a little short little paragraph is the one that did it. And I've already written him off. So it's yeah. it's hard yeah. to say what's happening here. So in my note to myself here, and I don't have the picture in the outline, was that when you look at this guy's picture, Mr. Gossett, and you look at the D.B. Mm-hmm. Cooper sketches, it is a lot alike. These folks are alike. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to force, just so you know, I think I'm going to make a montage for us for this episode after the 50 years it takes me to edit it. I'm going to make be, a of, be all of each that. suspect next to the sketches. Uh, with Please their names. do. Because no one's done yeah. that. You can only find one or the other. So we're going to try and get that right. all together. We'll put that up. And then everybody can steal it for decades. <laughs> so yeah, so that's, I think that's pretty interesting, but I'm going to go with uh, Mr. Gossett not being D.B. Cooper. Well, what's interesting here in that you you mentioned, and we talked a little bit about this, but there's a psychological aspect to this. And uh, people coming forward and wanting to place their name with this. As we said at the beginning, and, and um, I probably won't remember for our conclusions, but you know, I've had friends now that have said, well, I listened to part one or uh, part two, or I knew about this before, and it's really fascinating. And the angle on that is that it, it captures the public's imagination because it's a romantic idea that somebody actually got away with it. They, they pulled it off. No one got hurt. Uh, you waste a lot of money and time of people and, and certainly got a lot of them uh, really obsessed with your story afterwards. But there is some kind of ideal there where somebody beats the man at the system, the system that beats the system. And then they yeah. they they make off with the cash, they survive, they beat all the odds, uh, or at least they they died in the woods trying, I guess. But people want to latch onto that. And, and it's a weird, yeah, the psychological aspect of it is, is odd in that people... Um, like you said, the, the angle about telling that to his son, maybe he thought his son didn't respect dad. He was just a degenerate gambler, lost all the money and this and that. But I had one good score. Yeah. I can tell you about. And true or not, it, it's it's that uh, the key jangler aspect, as uh, Scott and I call it. It's the, the, the guy who loves to tell the tall tales. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's interesting on that point. And, uh, you have just a few things that do line up and makes people wonder. And, uh, we're wondering about it right now. Well, this brings me to my next guy on my list, the murderer. And when Mm. I say list, I mean, John list who maybe should have gone further up this list. He might've should have been the first guy because I think it's just entirely unlikely. Those of you that are true crime aficionados will no doubt have heard John List's name. He is a famous killer. I'm going to read this uh, little sum up from Wikipedia about what he is known for. He uh, was born September 17th, 1925, died March 21st, 2008. John Emil List was an American mass murderer and longtime fugitive. On November 9th, 1971, List killed his wife, mother, and three children at their home in Westfield, Mm. New Jersey, then disappeared. He had planned the murder so meticulously that nearly a month passed before anyone suspected that anything was amiss. List assumed a new identity, remarried, and eluded justice for nearly 18 years. He was finally apprehended in Virginia. Everybody's going to Virginia. On June 1st, (laughs) 1989, after the story of his murders, was broadcast on the television program America's Most Wanted. 
There you go. After extradition in New Jersey, he was convicted on five counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to five consecutive terms of life imprisonment without parole. List gave critical financial problems as well as his perception that his family members were straying from their religious faith as his rationale for the murders. He reasoned that killing them would assure their souls a place in heaven where he hoped to eventually join them. He died in prison in 2008 at the age of 82. Uh, it's not a whole lot to talk about here other than people speculated that he was D.B. Cooper. I think for no real reason other than just overall loose timing and coincidences. Yeah. Uh, for me, there is some resemblance, uh, not much, but it's rooted entirely off the idea that a mass murderer has nothing to lose. You know, the yeah. idea that he did it. He kills his family and a few weeks later politely robs an airline. I mean, List himself confessed to being the killer of his family, but he made clear that he yeah. was not D.B. Cooper. Didn't he also uh, withdraw $200,000 from his mother's bank account coinciding yes. with the murder? Yeah, yeah. So that's the other thing yeah. about it. So, and, 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 and he doesn't look like him, in my opinion. Not right. much at all, really. So that's, uh, that's that guy. Moving on. I'm trying mm. to keep it flowing here because we got a okay. lot of people. We got a lot of people. Thank you. This is The Instructor. That's my nickname for this guy, Ted Mayfield. And this comes from an article by Douglas Perry of The Oregonian. We have a link to this. Mm. This was published on 2018. It says the, head, the headline was A New Clue Upends D.B. Cooper. This guy, Mr. Mayfield, was an outgoing, well-known Oregon skydiving instructor. He was a go-to for a lot of people, in fact, in terms of a suspect. His daughter said it was just completely unlikely. She actually remembered the FBI calling him pretty quickly to go through his records and see about the people he had trained because they were looking for whoever might have learned how to skydive from him. Mm -hmm. And she said no, she was on the phone when I guess the feds came into his office and she was like, he was pretty calm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, well, the, well, the, Cooper, very, yeah. very calm. Again, that's another characteristic that would rule out some of these characters here, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. His demeanor. Yeah, that's true. Strangely, in 1995, a long time after the Cooper hijacking, according to OregonLive.com, he was convicted of criminally negligent homicide in the deaths of two customers and was sentenced Ooh. to 10 months in jail. He actually passed away back in 2015. And the way he passed away is, is a pretty tragic. This is actually from a Mountain News article. I found this just today as I was doing last minute organizing on this stuff. This was posted by Bruce Smith on August 30th, 2015. Longtime D.B. Cooper suspect Ted E. Mayfield was killed Friday, August 28th, in an aviation-related accident at his home in Sheridan, Oregon. He was struck on his arm while hand-starting an air coop prop airplane and died of his injury at the scene. Oh. Oh. He was 79. He was well-known in the D.B. Cooper case as the leading suspect in the early days of the investigation. FBI officials have stated that Mayfield was fingered by at least six callers the night of the hijacking, November 24th, 1971, but was soon cleared from the suspect list. Despite the official position, many researchers continued to feel that Mayfield was an important suspect and his status was re-examined by two Portland investigators, Daniel Vorak and Matt Myers, in 2006. Mayfield's death was quickly reported in D.B. Cooper chat rooms on the internet, and on Sunday, August 30th, I spoke with Ted Mayfield's daughter, Gwen, in Sheridan as his family gathered at his home. Gwen confirmed that Ted died from an accident with his airplane. She gave me details and also a commentary on the family's interaction the night of November 24th, 1971. By the way, I'm paraphrasing. We'll have a link to this article yeah. if you want to read the whole thing. But Gwen, okay. Gwen said that Ted died Friday about 2.30 p.m. He was hand-starting a plane located in his backyard and the prop caught nearly severing his arm. 
Gwen said that Ted just wanted to listen to the engine. Because he'd been taking a blood thinning medicine called warfarin, he bled oh, out boy. within minutes. Uh, there were yep. a lot of people around. The paramedics were on the line, but there wasn't anything anyone could do. So that is the story of Mr. Mayfield. I don't think he matches the picture much at all. Also, he was super cooperative with the FBI from the jump. Mm-hmm. Uh, no pun intended. He was, yeah. he, you know, he worked with them. And he was an outgoing guy. And I think a lot of people were enamored with what sounded like he had a lot of charisma. And so they're like, oh, my God, it's got to be Ted. He could have done it. <laughs> They're, because that's okay. another thing I think people are doing is they're taking folks that they see as kind of heroic and saying, oh, it's him. It's this heroic skydiving instructor that I, that yeah. I dove with when I took lessons, you know, so. Yeah. Oh, no, that this is one of the first anecdotes I told uh, way back uh, uh, talking about uh, eyewitness testimony. And uh, because I am older, I like to repeat my story, so I'm going to do it here. It's the <laughs> the the fact that people will uh, have a bias or, or there's something, there's somebody in their mind that they've liked as the the fuzz will say uh, about a suspect. And I just remember somebody hitting a car on our street uh, outside of my apartment and uh, everybody gathers in the morning and uh, this one neighbor guy, you know, and I got a glimpse of the car. I knew it was white I knew the configuration of the uh, the tail lights, but it, as it pulled away, so I didn't get a great look. And uh, you know, we're talking about like, well, what kind of a jerk would do that? Smashed into like three cars, took off, you know, dragging a, a bumper and all that. And then this uh, this neighbor guy goes like, "Yeah, I'll bet it's my roommate. It's got to be my roommate." And he's like, "Oh, uh, well, what kind of a car did he drive? Well, he, he drives a red Thunderbird." It's like, well, no, I, I didn't see a red Thunderbird. <laughs> right. It can't be. He's right. like, no, 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 it was him. It yeah. was, he's a, he's a jerk. It was him. I haven't seen him for a couple of days. Probably came back. He was drunk. It's yeah. like, no, dude, that's not, no. But he was convinced like, no, that's the guy. Right. So it, it's like finding something that lines up. In this case, it's really just the fact that he was a skydiving instructor, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, I think he was uh, probably outgoing and well-known yeah. and he was kind of a character. Well, again, but if you look at what the FBI found, it's, this guy was not a seasoned jump instructor. This guy was not a seasoned skydiving pro. Right. He he made a lot of mistakes a pro wouldn't make. One, jumping when he did into the night in cloud cover into a, a thick wooded forest. All good chances of you not making it out. So that kind of rules it out for me, unless he was so much of a character, he was just kind of crazy and just, you know, let me, let me try that. But, but he didn't pass away until a, a while after, uh, yes. when was the, uh, when was the prop accident? Uh, August of 2015. Okay. So quite a long ways afterwards. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's uh, it's a little thin for me. Well, this brings us to the next guy on the chain. The Railroad Man. Bill so, Smith? Yes, uh, Bill Smith. Uh-huh. William Smith. I like The Railroad Man better. So, yes. uh, so far, uh, we've done The Boatman, The Merchant Marine, <laughs> The Copycat, you're, The Gambler. Yeah. I'm doing pretty good here, right? Yeah. The Murderer. <laughs> you're getting a little uh, Stephen King there. Or yes. really, uh, Rod Serling, like I, I, I will say again, the, the episode titles for The Twilight Zone, poetic, man. Yes, yeah, really he was good nails it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, no, you're doing a great job. But yeah, the railroad man, kind of spooky. And, yeah. And, uh, so the railroad man is following the instructor. Uh, this is a pretty fascinating story. This has a little bit of yeah. a, I don't know, it's like a 
Bridges of Madison County vibe, and you're going to see why I'm saying that. Yes, I, I'm getting a strong Hallmark movie <laughs> yes, uh, um, vibe here. This author named Max Gunther published a book in December of 1985 called D.P. Cooper, What Really Happened? By the way, yeah. Spelled... Oh, yeah. We mentioned him uh, uh, earlier on. Yes, we did. And by the way, every book is like, "What really happened?" Mystery solved. Blah blah blah. But they all are like that. <laughs> anyway, right. this book yes. is very well received, though. It's a uh, uh, reviewers yeah. really like this book. It's considered a mix of fiction and nonfiction, although that is open to debate. Right. The book tells a story about how a woman named Clara rescued Cooper, whom she found on her land with a sprained ankle. She took him in, nursed him back to health, and fell in love with him. Uh, eventually, they romantically laundered the money together in Atlantic City before settling down in New York State. Uh, we have links to all kinds of sources for where this information is coming from. The FBI yeah. completely dismissed this. Special Agent Himmelsbach, uh, who has since passed away, describing most of the book as, quote, filler. Uh, um, well. But there is one interesting thing. In Gunther's book, the main character visits a skydive center near Los Angeles and while there asks about jumping from a commercial airliner in the summer of 1971. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't like the uh, the peanuts on the flight. Yes. Uh, I just want to get off quickly. If I, I have need diarrhea. to go all the way through. The, the <laughs> FBI <laughs> released files in 2017 saying that nearly this exact thing happened and has been corroborated. Mm. But Gunther wrote about it 12 years earlier. So here's a fact in Gunther's book that lines right. up with an actual event that took place. Apparently somebody did go to a skydiving school in 71 and said, how do I jump out of a commercial aircraft? Yeah. So the plot thickens here. This one goes pretty crazy. A U.S. Army data analyst calling himself anonymous in, by, for all his postings or her postings gets involved yeah. in really taking the book apart and thinks at first the man in the book is William J. Smith, a railroad worker. Now listen mm -hmm. to this letter that was sent to Max Gunther before he wrote the book. This is pretty fascinating. Mr. Max Gunther, Ridgefield, Connecticut. Dear Mr. Gunther, I am D.B. Cooper, who took $200,000 from Northwest Airlines last Thanksgiving and left by parachute. If this matter is successfully concluded, I will supply evidence that this is authentic and I am the genuine article. That will come later, please be assured. I want to tell my story, particularly why I did what I did. It is important to me. The recent death of another man who tried the same foolish stunt makes me unhappy. But principally, I want to tell the story of what happens to middle-aged men in society today and how the trap, here comes the message, and how the mm. trap of, of marriage and money can close in on him until he must take a stupid risk to escape. The middle-aged and middle-income men are the forgotten men of our time. This is mm. what I must tell, partly to make amends for what I did and to make the world think about we forgotten men. Boy, this is really, this is the best time to be reading this letter. I am writing to you because an article by you in True Magazine in 1962 impressed me deeply. It was, quote, do-it-yourself divorce for fed-up males, end quote, in which you described the problems of disappearing. This extraordinary article was the start of my long journey. It started me thinking and showed me what the problems would be, particularly the problems of documents. More recently, I saw another article by you on the same subject in a woman's magazine, and I believe you have a feeling for this subject and will be sympathetic to me. I am making a similar contact with a book publisher. I will introduce you to that publisher when the time comes. I will give you sufficient facts to write my story, which I do not care to write out in full myself, even if I had the skill. You and the publisher will never, of course, meet me face to face. 
I ask you now if you would care to write my story for me. If so, will you agree to contribute to the New York Times Needing Cases Fund, 25% of your earnings from the project? Question mark. I have asked the publisher to make a similar contribution. Since I cannot participate in these earnings myself, I must see that some social good comes of it in the end. If you agree to these terms and wish to hear from me further, please place the following ad in the New York Village Voice of Thursday, March 2nd in the Village Bulletin Board section. Happy birthday. Clara, signed Max. After placing the mm. ad, be patient, signed D.B. Cooper. So, that's, mm. that's the letter that Gunther got. Anonymous, the data analyst, later amended his theory to thinking it wasn't actually William Smith himself, but in fact someone that Smith knew personally who he relayed the story through. So here's an important note. A full set of William J. Smith's fingerprints from his military service were provided to the FBI in November 2018. And uh, there's, there's an article here about that and uh, the fingerprints. And I want to read this. This is from a Fox News article, Fresh D.B. Cooper's uh, Theory Emerges Years After the Infamous Hijacking. This is by Ryan uh, Gaidos, G-A-Y-D-O-S, journalist, mm-hmm. or, or Gaidos. Okay, this actually makes reference to uh, Claire, which is Dan LeClaire, which is the character in Gunther's book. The data analyst came forward and said that they had concluded that Claire wasn't, in fact, D.B. Cooper. However, he began to suspect a friend and co-worker of Claire's was the actual hijacker. William Smith, who worked with Claire at Penn Central Transportation, became the researcher's primary candidate. Smith died when he was 89, but a yearbook of his included a list of alumni who were killed during World War II. One name jumped out, according to the Oregonian, Ira Daniel Cooper. Mm Mm-hmm. My problem with this is I still cannot figure out why anyone would use any part of their real name for this kit for this uh, skyjacking. Yeah, probably not. Yeah, doesn't make sense. Weird coincidence, though. Yeah. So the analyst determined that Smith and Claire were both New Jersey natives who worked at the Oak Island Rail Yard in Newark. Uh, the anonymous analyst found Smith had served in the U.S. Navy, and the experience Smith and Claire gained working on the railroads would have helped either man find railroad tracks and possibly hop a train back east after parachuting from the plane. I believe he would have been able to see Interstate 5 from the air, the analyst told the Oregonian. Adding a rail line at the time ran parallel to the roadway. The analyst hypothesized that Smith used his friend's name to hide his real identity when he reached out to Gunther in the 70s and that his wife took over communication with Gunther. The analyst also speculated Smith and his wife, a woman named Dolores, may have been in on the hijacking together. Dolores Uh retired at the fairly young age of 54. A grudge against Penn Central, the railroad, may have also been a motivating factor for Smith. The analyst told the Oregonian. Penn Central went bankrupt in 1970, leaving thousands without jobs. The analyst said anger at the corporate establishment may have driven Smith to undertake the hijacking. The Oregonian noted that the FBI had not responded to the data analyst's research. The analyst found, also found several other links to bolster his theory. So, um, yeah, and this goes on to point out that uh, Cooper was likely familiar with the Seattle area, and research suggests mm-hmm. that he may have worked for Boeing. The researcher also pointed out a clip-on tie the FBI determined was tied to the Cooper case had certain medals on it that led investigators to believe Cooper may have been a Boeing employee. But the researcher said a person who worked on the railroads could have had similar traces of medals. And by the way, I incorrectly stated a few minutes ago when I said Mm -hmm. that um, Smith was not the guy. Smith is the guy, but the analyst is saying that Smith is a friend of the person who wrote the letter to Gunther saying they were D.B. Cooper. Yeah, not actually DB, right, right actually yeah. this Dan Cooper, but yeah. somebody who uh, knew them and used their story for what purpose now? Um, just to relay the information, to get it out there. Yeah, And right. that so all these details would line up. And there's, and, and there's some folks that think that there are things about it that make sense, but 
I don't know. It seems pretty convoluted, you know, the love yeah. story and all of that. It, it makes for <laughs> it, a good book. Is, yeah, this is one of the more complicated scenarios, I must say. Yeah, it is. And so that, that leads us to the titanium tangent. Yes, yes. Uh, so I want to talk about this a little bit. Um, because the metals that we've referred to that were found on the tie, left behind on the plane, there was titanium, metallic titanium in there. Right, in its natural state, non-alloyed. That's right. Uh, by the yeah. way, I have a titanium car key. My 1990 300ZX, oh, yeah. the key... <laughs> Famously, <laughs> is made of titanium. I still have it, the original uh -huh. key. It's very lightweight and strong. In 1971, titanium was a strategic metal primarily used in military aircraft. And this uh, comes from citizensleuths.com about the titanium particles. We have a link to mm -hmm. this uh, section. Metallic titanium was not found in consumer products at that time. All titanium used in aircraft is alloyed, and the Cooper material was pure titanium. Right. Due to the lack of alloy titanium, Cooper did not work in the aircraft industry. Spiral chips of aluminum and other exotic metals like bismuth and stainless steel were found on the tie as well. Spiral aluminum chips of the type found on the tie are made in metal fabrication plants that use lathes and drill presses. The interpretation here is that Cooper worked in or had access to an exotic metal fabrication facility that contained titanium, aluminum, and other specialty metals. In 1971, only engineers and managers in fabrication plants wore ties to work. So the interpretation by the citizen sleuths is that Cooper was either a manager or an engineer, something we alluded to earlier. Right. Cooper's knowledge of the workings of the airplane, the use of the parachute, and his construction of a bomb, end quote, suggests he may have been an engineer. Uh, continuing on about titanium, the rarity of titanium and the limited number of places that it could be found in 1971 made it a focal point in the investigation. The fact that military or commercial aircraft all use alloyed titanium exclusively, alloyed meaning mixed with other metals, ruled them out since the particles found on Cooper's tie were pure titanium. The supersonic transport made almost completely out of titanium was canceled that year, throwing the entire titanium industry into turmoil. There were large numbers of layoffs due to the cancellation, so it's still conceivable that Cooper may have in some way been affected by this slowdown. Right. And that was uh, Agent Carr's uh, thinking that uh, this person fell upon hard times. Cooper. Right. Needed the money, had a grudge about it. It's starting to fill that profile. Right. And so they, they go on to point out that it was a rare metal in 71, and this makes it extremely unlikely it is a post-event contamination. Its presence constrains Cooper to a limited number of managers or engineers in the titanium field that would wear ties to work. This is also consistent with his mannerisms during the hijacking where the flight attendants described him as an executive, in quotes. The fact that he was also comfortable enough to pull off the hijacking wearing a suit suggests that it was a regular part of his wardrobe, again consistent with a manager or engineer type. Given pure titanium with embedded stainless steel, spiral chips made from aluminum and other exotic metals gives a best fit indication that Cooper came from or regularly visited a metal fabrication facility these types of materials are known specifically for their corrosion resistance and commonly used in highly corrosive environments, such as chemical factories. A suspect having worked in a machine shop or a company that used pure titanium in a corrosive process would be a good match to the family of particles found on Cooper's tie. So that's the titanium tangent, which uh, relates back to uh, Gunther's book about the guy working at the railroad and the possibility there. Although I don't know what the likelihood of titanium being involved in the railroad would be at that point that might rule them out. And it's another one of those things, it's this information, which obviously the FBI has, that may rule out a good portion of suspects for them. 
because they say, nope, this doesn't make sense. Why would he be around, right. t- you know, pure titanium? If none of these people would, then we, that puts a mark in the negative column. You know, they make that list on the whiteboard that says things that line up, things that don't line up. It's going right. to be pretty hard to match pure titanium and bismuth on the tie. And also, as these guys, the Citizen Sleuths pointed out, it doesn't make sense as post contamination either. Well, you wonder about that that stuff and uh, to my point is that it's it's the diverting accident. Boy, I better come up with a better title for something like that, but it's it's like you don't know where Cooper got the tie. Right. Maybe he got it at Goodwill. Right. Maybe he he nicked it off of uh, you know, some guy's lunchbox uh, as he was visiting somewhere knowing that uh, he was going to leave it. And why did he leave the tie? In the airplane, he could have just thrown it out. He could have worn it with him. Uh, you know, I'm sure he thought like it's going to be flapping around. Maybe it was left on purpose. And of course, I don't think he would have the foresight to know that they were going to look at it with microscopy and uh, determine what metal particles were embedded in the tie uh, or you know, what uh, spores of uh, plant life was going to be on it, trying to narrow him down. But uh, it could be an accident. So you can take those things and make that part of your profile, but they're not 100% certain. I think they narrowed it down, and I think it might give you a lead because uh, if somebody had reported like, yeah, I had my black tie stolen and I'm a manager at this uh, exotic metal scrapyard, you can start to put a pattern together because obviously, yes, he's a physical human being. He crossed paths with people. He went places. There's a trail there, but you do wonder uh, what exactly that trail is. This brings us to the smoke jumper. Uh, This gentleman's name is Sheridan Peterson. And uh, all of this comes from one guy, a gentleman named Eric Ulis. He's an entrepreneur from Phoenix who is, uh, quote, 98% certain that now 90-year-old Sheridan Peterson is D.B. Cooper. And uh, we're taking this information uh, from OregonLive.com. We have a link to the article that this comes from. Mr. Ulis, if I'm saying his name right, uh, forgive me if I'm not, if you hear this, Mr. Ulis. Or Ulis, maybe. Ulis, maybe it's Ulis. Eric Ulis, U-L-I-S. Um, mm-hmm. He thinks that uh, Mr. Cooper landed in a area called Bachelor Island uh, based on updated research. And um, some of this comes also from the Mountain News in Washington. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll read a little bit about this from that particular article. This was published on June 27th of 2018. Regarding Sheridan Peterson, he's only, he is one of only three people known to have had their DNA compared with the partial DNA profile extracted from Cooper's tie. This among a field of approximately 1,500 suspects. You see now why this episode is so long. We're only talking about 12. Uh, the other <laughs> Let's two, get to the other, <laughs> the other 1,400. Yeah. The other two uh, suspects that DNA was compared on were uh, Dwayne Weber coming up and Lynn Doyle Cooper also coming up. Mm-hmm. He is the only one of the three DNA compared suspects who has not been publicly cleared by the FBI. He was formerly employed by Boeing as a technical editor with access to the Boeing Aerospace Division and Supersonic Transport Project. That takes us to uh, titanium that we were just talking about earlier. He was an expert skydiver with smoke jumping experience and described as a maverick in skydiving circles. However, he was living in Nepal during the skyjacking, not employed Mm. at the time for over two and a half years, uh, provided no alibi during the skyjacking timeframe. He opened a confidential numbered bank account in Singapore in 1971. Who hasn't? Uh, and his, uh, yeah, I still have one. I had to make deposits there regularly. And <laughs> D.B. Cooper's tie clip was sold as a set that also included a tie tack and cufflinks. The manufacturer was a Rhode Island-based company called Anson. 
Uh, shout out to one of our uh, one of my favorite uh, Twitter followers, Anthony oh, Birch. That's right. Yes. Sheridan owned a pair of the cufflinks that were included in those Anson sets. He has been reticent to discuss D.B. Cooper. However, when pressured, he denies being Cooper. He resembled the physical description given by witnesses. He first came to the attention of the FBI and became a suspect nine days after Thanksgiving Eve hijacking uh, that occurred, as we all know, Wednesday, November 24th, 1971. Continued, listen to this. Actually, the FBI had good reason to suspect me. He wrote in a 2007 issue of Smoke Jumper, an obscure magazine published by the National Smoke Jumper Association. Uh, b- by the way, Big shout out right now to the smoke jumpers who are currently trying to save the entire Western half of the country from going up in flames. Um, Our hats are off to you guys. Uh, The the country owes you so much. I had a friend that used to, used to do that. And I know how dangerous the work is. And um, just, I just want to say on behalf of astonishing legends, like anyone cares what we Mm -hmm. think, but we do want to say thank you so much for uh, being out there on the front lines with all these fires. Absolutely. Um, so, in, in the magazine, friends and associates agreed that I was, without a doubt, D.B. Cooper. There were too many circumstances involved for it to be a coincidence. He then listed some of those circumstances, in quotes. At the time of the heist, I was 44 years old. That was the approximate age Cooper was assumed to have been, and I closely resembled sketches of the hijacker. But what was even more incriminating was the photo of me simulating a skydiving maneuver for Boeing's news sheet. I was wearing a suit <laughs> and tie, the same sort of garb Cooper had worn, right down to the Oxford loafers. It was noted that skydivers don't ordinarily dress so formally. These are all good reasons why the average person on the street might conclude Sheridan Peterson is D.B. Cooper. It is not enough for federal investigators looking to build a case for trial. The FBI moved on to other suspects. Yet the Bureau couldn't completely quit. For some reason, the FBI decided to send Mary Jean Fryer, an FBI agent in 2004, out to knock on his door three decades after the hijacking when he was 77 years old. Fryer says she has no idea why it took the Bureau so long to decide it should interview Peterson. She and another agent talked to him at his apartment, took a swab for DNA, and sent a report in the genetic sample off to Washington, D.C. That was the first and last thing Fryer had to do with the case. She never even heard whether the DNA matched. He was a charming guy, she says of Peterson. He had a lot of knowledge about the jump from the plane because he'd been a smoke jumper, and he was clearly interested in the case. He also seemed interested in being a suspect. I think he gets a kick out of the attention, Fryer adds. Well, there you go. During his interview with the FBI agents, Peterson expounded on the case in surprising detail, including that one of the parachutes the skyjacker had been given was a pilot's emergency rig, a detail the Bureau still held close to its vest at the time. He also insisted he wasn't D.B. Cooper. He claimed he was in Nepal on November 24th, 1971, living in a mud hut near the base of Annapurna. A couple of years ago, Eric Ulyss talked to Peterson on the phone and exchanged a few emails with him. Peterson had not responded to calls from the Oregonian. So again, I'm reminding you, I'm reading this article Mm -hmm. written by Douglas Perry from the Oregonian or Oregon Live. And some of of those prior points are actually from um, an article submitted to the Mountain News directly by Eric Ulyss. So it's a little bit mixed up there. I apologize for that attribution, but we'll have all the all the uh, links in the show notes. A couple of years ago, Eric Ulyss talked to Peterson on the phone and exchanged a few emails with him. He did not confess to Ulyss, but as he did during his FBI interview, he proved knowledgeable about all things Cooper and offered a possible motive. He told me he was radicalized while in Vietnam assisting refugees. What he describes as atrocities by U.S. soldiers radicalized him. I think he just snapped. He found himself out of a job and didn't feel he owed American society anything. Mary Jean Fryer, for her part, says she loves Ulyss's passion for the case, and she admits it's possible he's on the right track. 
When Fryer left Sheridan Peterson's apartment that day in 2004, she found herself grinning. She turned to her fellow agent and apparently said that might have been D.B. Cooper as they stood outside Peterson's home, but we'll probably never know. So there is a whole counterpoint argument to this, and I'm just going to sum this up. This actually comes from the D.B. Cooper hijacking um, blog, which is run by Adventure Books, who are fairly convinced that it is not Sheridan Peterson. We're going to talk more about their Mm -hmm. point of view here coming up. So, but keeping in mind, you always have to consider the motivation of the, of the person giving the message or, or presenting a counterpoint theory. Still, this stuff makes sense. One of the things that, uh, they said, and this was, this was written by, uh, Robert Blevins, who wrote another book we're going to be talking about tonight, um, about reasons that they didn't think that Sheridan Peterson could be D.B. Cooper was the shoot selection by the hijacker. And we've talked about all those parachutes, but one of the things that they said was that um, as he started to put on the shoot, Tina Mucklow, the flight attendant, actually later told the FBI that Cooper seemed to know exactly what he was doing. Although Peterson was quite familiar with parachutes and their use, he wasn't a paratrooper and probably would have at least given it a cursory check before putting on an unfamiliar military parachute. So uh, they're pointing out that the the fact that he knew how to use a military chute shows that he was almost certainly associated with a paratrooper outfit in one way or another, but Sheridan wasn't. They also said his eye color wasn't right, and this comes up a lot. Florence Schaffner, the flight attendant, told the FBI she was sure that the hijacker's eyes were some shade of brown. The official FBI poster listed Cooper's eyes as brown, and Sheridan Peterson's eyes are not brown. They, they, they also suggested here on these counterpoints that the terminology wasn't exactly right. He demanded uh, two front and two back shoots, which was an old-fashioned way of saying he wanted two reserve uh, front shoots and two main shoots, which would more likely be said by someone who knew how to use a parachute but actually hadn't jumped in a long time. They speculated that his level of preparedness was too low. He had loafers and a suit. Didn't make sense. Uh, they also pointed out that he was investigated and dismissed by the FBI and that Peterson's entire life is basically an open book. He's very uh, out there. He's actually written a book, which still isn't published, but it's mm-hmm. about his time in the military. And they went on to add that he was in Tibet at the time, as he said, living in a mud hut, which was interesting about this was they're pointing out that there's a passport uh, that points out his travel. And he has a kid, Sheridan Peterson does, that was born within a year of the hijacking. So in order for him to get from Tibet right after yeah. having this child and pulled it off and then gone back there without using a passport seems unlikely. So it's it's an unlikely thing. But I'll tell you what, when you look at the picture, these two uh, folks look a lot alike. There is a very striking resemblance between Sheridan and the D.B. Cooper sketches. This brings us to our next suspect on the list, Uncle Dan, I call him. This is Lynn Doyle Cooper. This one I actually remember when this came out in 2011. I don't know if you do, Forrest. Uh, This was about a woman who claimed her uncle was probably D.B. Cooper. And this was based on overhearing at a very young age, like between eight and 10, hearing her uncle planning some kind of devious thing with another family member, also an uncle. And uh, I actually got this story from ABC News. We have a link to it, but uh, here's a little segment, an excerpt from it. Marla Cooper said that as an eight-year-old, she recalled her two uncles planning something suspicious at her grandmother's house in Sisters, not far from where D.B. Cooper jumped from a plane with 200000 in cash one day later. Quote, my two uncles who I only saw at holiday time were planning something very mischievous. I was watching them use some very expensive walkie-talkies that they had purchased. She said she now believes the men were practicing for the post-hijacking recovery operation. 
Quote, they left to supposedly go turkey hunting, and Thanksgiving morning I was waiting for them to return, end quote. See, our suspects are getting more interesting. <laughs> A day later, Northwest Orient Flight 305 was hijacked, and her uncle, L.D. Cooper, came home claiming to have been in a car accident. Quote, my uncle L.D. was wearing a white t-shirt and he was bloody and bruised and a mess, and I was horrified. I began to cry. My other uncle, who was with L.D., said, Marla, just shut up and go get your dad. Marla Cooper is now convinced there was not a car accident, but that her uncle was injured, crashing to earth in a parachute. She says that she also remembers a discussion about money that day. I heard my uncle say, we did it. Our money problems are over. We hijacked an airplane. He literally just said that. <laughs> She, she really, said, he just said that. Yeah, I uh, guess he just came wait, right wait, out. Did you, did you remember what we just did? Uh, yeah. What was that? Oh, yeah, we hijacked, we an, hijacked airplane. an airplane. She said it later became clear, however, that there was no money. It is believed that the hijacker mm. lost much of the cash as he came crashing down. And some of the hijacking money was recovered in 1980, as we all know, when it was uh, washed ashore on the banks of the Columbia River. Sort of washed ashore. I'm going to put in air quotes. Marla Cooper said okay. that her two uncles wanted to return to search for the cash, but her father refused. She believes this was because the FBI search was just beginning to take shape. So, um, by the way, this is the guy that connects back to the comic book that we talked about earlier tonight. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The Franco-Belgian comic, Dan Cooper, which Forrest has already covered. Turns out that Lynn Doyle, or L.D. Cooper's niece, Marla, recalled L.D. being obsessed with the Dan Cooper comic, saying that he even had one pinned to his wall, in spite of the fact that he was not a skydiver or paratrooper. Well, this proves nothing. This proves nothing. This proves nothing. Digging well, into I mean, this. Look, it's, they, they share the same last name. Yeah, right. Which, again, why do you use your real name? If I'm going to pull, yeah, that was my big revelation for the end of this uh, segment. But yes, very simple thing. He goes to all this other trouble don't use your real name or any right. part of it. Yeah, exactly. We's using code names um, <laughs> from Raising Arizona. But like, here's, here's a little excerpt from uh, the ABC News story. The FBI said the DNA found on the hijacker's clip-on tie and DNA taken from the daughter of potential suspect Lynn D. Cooper is not a match. However, mm. FBI Special Agent Fred Gutt said, that doesn't suggest that the current lead is a dead end. Right. Remember, we quoted Agent Gut uh, earlier because he he just said, well, yeah, we found DNA, but we can't tie that to the hijacker even. That's right. There's no absolute proof to it. It's interesting. You can take samples from it. If you make a hit, boy, that's interesting. That's really fascinating. But the DNA lifted from the tie, yeah, you don't know if that's Cooper's or not. Could be somebody else. Same thing goes with the 60-plus fingerprints lifted from the cabin. Yeah. You don't know if any of those are Coopers or not. Right. Uh, and the glass, rule them out the against glass the was mixed together. And again, I want to go back to the fact that the whole thing about him drinking bourbon, and this is something I was going to bring it up in the conclusions, but I'm just going yeah. to go okay. ahead and say it now. In 1971, I'm going to guess that 98.7% of men love to drink bourbon and chain smoke. <laughs> All right. So I get tired of like, oh, yeah. he drank the same. He loved bourbon and he chain smoked. Yes. So did every freaking man in my entire family. That's just yeah, that, not, it just say. doesn't mean anything at all. I know. Um, yeah. But also, so, you know, he only had one drink and half of it spilled. That's what we uh, found Two out. drinks. Yeah, no, two drinks. it was oh. wrong. That's a myth. We talked about oh. this off Sluggo's Wait. site. He had one and half of it spilled, according to Sluggo. And also oh, according thought, to Agent okay. Carr. Yeah. Okay. One I drink. thought he... 
from what you said, yeah, he uh, drank one drink, ordered a second, but that one spilled. But you're saying he only had the it one. It was one and half of it spilled. Ah, that's, okay. what, that's what Sluggo's site says. Yeah, but, he didn't even get a good buzz going. Right. And the other thing is he had eight cigarettes, which another agent or somebody, or maybe it was in the Brad Metzler thing, or it might have been the Net right. Geo documentary, The Skyjacker That Got Away, I think is the name of that one. Somebody was like, that's not chain smoking in 71. Eight cigarettes for no. over like, because they were on the plane a long time, hours and hours. Yeah. That's not yeah. chain smoking. So. Figured uh, uh, what the, the plane took off uh, at 2.50 p.m. sometime yeah. around there, a little bit before three in the afternoon. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, five hours later, roughly. Right. Yeah. So yeah. chain smoking in that amount of time would have been a pack or two. Um, right. Just, so just something, you know, it's interesting to think about how these things get characterized. However, when it comes sure. to the pictures, I don't know. I don't think the um, I don't think that the pictures, the sketches of Cooper and LD Cooper match up. Although I find LD compelling, but I mean, for one thing, LD has uh, a really pronounced widow's peak, which you don't see yeah. in the sketches of Cooper. Right. Um, of course, I'm conveniently picking what I like and don't like because my favorite suspect is bald and Cooper has hair. So, um, <laughs> well, we'll come back to that later. <laughs> right. But okay, just to, just to back up to reiterate, you're saying though that you have found photos of each of these uh, suspects. Almost all of them. Some to, of them uh, there aren't okay. any, and some of them um, they're pretty hard to find. But yeah, there's there's one or two where you, I couldn't find anything. Certainly not from the right period. But most of them right. you can. It's the thing about this right. investigation being so popular. There's a lot of info about it online, as you right. might have been able well, to tell. Yeah. By you, the way, is it okay with you if the, I don't um, really edit this at all? Can I just like? It's just fine. Like Look, mix make, it make a four-hour file. That's fine. <laughs> it's just we, you know, folks, we flubbed here and there. Uh, we got uh, we get tired of our mouths moving so much in a articulated fashion. Uh, we flub a lot, so we we try to clear that up as to be I'll, uh, I'll do less what annoying. I can. I'll do what I okay, can. Do what you can. You know, don't kill yourself. Yeah. But you do know the uh, the the nickname for one of the composite sketches, right? They call it the Bing Crosby. Oh, that's sketch. I can see that. Yeah, yeah, the Bing Crosby. So it was a little sketch. bit a yeah. mix between Bing Crosby that. and, of course, people say uh, Kevin Spacey. Right. Hey, buddy, was it just or just hijack a plane? Oh, I had nothing to do with hijacking a plane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now it's time to talk about the Garn Artist. Hold on one second before you do. Yeah. Uh, Marla Cooper was eight years old. Yes, I pointed that out. Yeah. Yes. We did uh, a hijacking. I'm just saying, I I'm know. just saying a, a, a child's imagination can kind of run wild. Yes. Also uh, kind of a hard thing to remember. Also at eight, well, I guess hijackings were in the news a lot. You might've, that might've stuck out to you. Uh, yeah. I mean, about, I'll, I'll, I'll say that. I was uh, three, two, two yeah. or, or no, but she heard that when she was eight. Yeah. So she's like six or seven years older than me. So now we get to. The con artist. Um, Just imagine a title card if we weren't just audio only. (laughs) Dwayne Weber, the con artist. Um, This again, Douglas Perry from the Oregonian. This guy has written so much great stuff about D.B. Cooper. And uh, this is from their website. And we have a link to it. I like this one. Yeah, this one I like. I like Dwayne. Yeah. I like the story. You like Dwayne for the crime. uh, Well, uh, I I like uh, the fact that uh, the way the information comes through his wife. Yes. And some sleepwalking and the, you go ahead and tell the well, story. Well, yes, I want to tell the story. This um and the article was headlined as new evidence upends DB Cooper case. The unusual suspects continue to fuel the legend. Uh nice headline, Douglas. Maybe your editor did that, but it's a good one. Um <laughs> yeah. 
So uh, first I'm summing up a little bit, then we'll read some excerpts from the article. So this con artist, who also went by the name John Collins, reportedly gave a deathbed confession in 1995. Mm -hmm. He said to his wife, Joe, he says, come here, come closer. He's he's about to die, so I'm just doing (laughs) it. Oh, he's not being creepy. Yes. No, he's just out of breath. He wanted me to get about two feet from his face. And he says, I have a secret to tell you. And she said, what? And he said, I'm Dan Cooper. And then he died. Mm -hmm. No, I don't know if he died right after that. But after Weber died, Joe started doing some digging into his life. And she wrote into the Oregonian in the year 2000, um, which I can't say without thinking of Conan O'Brien. In the year 2000. Uh, Quote, (laughs) Dwayne always had been secretive about his past. Now Joe began to recall... Now Joe began to recall odd bits of information, objects and incidents that made her believe her late husband may, in fact, have been the skyjacker. He had a history of incarceration. He had a history of military service. He chain smoked and Mm -hmm. drank the same liquor Cooper had drunk on the flight. Honest to God, I forgot that was coming up right now before I made my big (laughs) thing a minute ago. Um, Hey, look, if if it's a particular brand... Yeah. Uh, well, that's the thing with the cigarettes. The Raleigh cigarettes were a, a smaller brand, so we we will hear something about they, those coming up here. Yeah, yeah, they they were. But if you have any older relatives who smoke and drank a lot, especially cigarettes, they had a very particular uh, preference for certain brands. You didn't yeah. really stray from what yeah. I remember. And then, uh, and if it was a rare bourbon, it's not like it is now with so many uh, artisanal ones. But you know, different uh, uh, bourbons have been around quite a long time, and. Of course, if you were able to make a match between a particular brand, particular cigarette, uh, you need a bunch more of this circumstantial evidence, then you might take notice. But yeah, you're right. These are generalizations. Yeah. Joe went on to say that she had once seen an old Northwest Airlines plane ticket that disappeared after she asked about it. (laughs) Oh, dear. Which You know what's happening here. Yeah, let's not get into it. Dwayne had (laughs) taken her on a trip to the Northwest and had driven her to a spot in southwest Washington where he told her Cooper had walked out of the woods. Of that trip to the Northwest, that's where D.B. Cooper walked out of the woods, Joe recalled Dwayne telling her. I said to him, how do you know that? And he says, maybe I was on the ground. She just took it as a joke. (laughs) Former FBI agent Ralph Himmelsbach, who worked the Cooper case until his retirement in 1980, took Joe seriously. She has never seemed to me to be interested in personal publicity or enriching herself in any way from this. All right, well, listen to what Wikipedia has to say about Dwayne Weber. Dwayne Weber was a World War II Army veteran who served time in at least six prisons from 1945 to 1968 for burglary and forgery. He was proposed as a suspect by his widow based primarily on a deathbed confession. Three days before he died in 1995, Weber told his wife, I am Dan Cooper. The name meant nothing to her, she said, but months later, a friend of her told her of its significance in the hijacking. She went to her local library to research D.B. Cooper, found Max Gunther's book, and discovered notations in the margins in her husband's handwriting. Wow. That's quite something. Yes. Uh, She then recalled in retrospect that Weber once had a nightmare during which he talked in his sleep about jumping from a plane, leaving his fingerprints on the aft stairs. He also reportedly told her that an old knee injury had been incurred by jumping out of a plane. Like the hijacker, Weber drank burden and chainsmoke. We already did this part. Um, Saying it again because everyone likes to point that out. Other circumstantial (laughs) evidence included a 1979 trip to Seattle and the Columbia River, during which Weber took a walk alone along the riverbank in the Tina Bar area. Four months later, Brian Ingram made his ransom cash discovery in the same area. 
However, the FBI eliminated Weber as an active suspect in July 1998 when his fingerprints did not match any of those processed in the hijacked plane, and no other direct evidence could be found to implicate him. Later, his DNA also failed to match the samples recovered from Cooper's tie, though the Bureau has since conceded they cannot be certain that the organic material on the tie came from Cooper. Yeah, exactly. So um, I, there is a section here in one of the books I read, which I'll be referring to tonight uh, as we uh, get closer to the end here, believe it or not. But uh, the yeah. book is called Into the Blast, The True Story of D.B. Cooper. And that is written by Skip Porteous and Robert Blevins and published by Adventure Books of Seattle. I want to read this section from that book. Um, I'm paraphrasing here. Joe told the FBI that her husband said, I'm Dan Cooper, while he lay dying of kidney disease in March of 95. She began a dialogue with Ralph Himmelsbach of the FBI and later submitted some of her husband's personal articles for DNA testing. However, the evidence against Weber is inconclusive at best, and he cannot be placed anywhere in Washington State or Oregon at the actual time of the crime. Weber, a con man and small-time crook, visited the Northwest occasionally but had no parachute experience. The Bureau closed their investigation on Dwayne Weber in July of 98. Later, they announced that his DNA did not match the small amount of evidence from the tie. Joe Weber continued to insist that her late husband was Cooper, no matter what the FBI said. That's interesting little section there, but in terms of the picture, I don't think it lines up. And in terms of reasoning, again, uh, this comes back to what we said earlier about uh, going out in a blaze of glory after a lifetime of running cons. And that's right. Know, it's it well, falls into that thing. I was DB Cooper. It's yeah. It's an I'm interesting out. take on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let me drop the mic. And yeah, please, mic drop. People, stop dropping mics. Mic drops. Yeah. Uh, just a note here about uh, people make a lot of uh, they put a lot of weight into deathbed confessions. But I think what you've summed up here outlines this uh, rather well. And that that book, if he had checked out a book at the library, was fascinated by the case, had made notes in the margins. What a weird thing that she discovers that her husband's handwriting. If it was, or maybe she's just imagining it, because at this point, it sounds like what you just said. She was 100% certain her husband was D.B. Cooper, no matter what the FBI said. Yeah, and also, it's a great cover story for all kinds of things. If he's out of town, sure. he could be getting up to all kinds of bad business well, that's and what, using that's the what I was alluding thing. to. Yeah, it's... <laughs> alluding to earlier, and then... Not to cast uh, aspersions Joe, on the dead. No, no, I'm just no. Saying, no, no. If you're already known as a con artist, the story that you're one of the most famous uh, heist guys in history, it's, it's going to take a little more to convince me anyway. Right, right. I'm just saying that she may have uh, also been convinced of that, and then once you're stuck on that uh, record groove, that's it. So uh, everything lines up, no need to look any further. But what I was going to say about uh, deathbed confessions is that if, especially uh, towards end of life situations, uh, a lot of people are delirious a little bit. Uh, I will say that about some uh, some relatives who've uh, nothing confessed, but towards the end have said some very unusual things. And we talked about this in the near death episode uh, in that uh, that was more supernatural stuff. And you can say, well, they're just imagining, but a lot of talk about relatives coming back to meet them. Yeah. But there's also a lot of at death. And I'll say this from experiences in my own yeah. family and loved ones in my family. There's also, depending on the nature of the illness they're succumbing to, there's delirium, there's hallucination, yeah. there's That's what I'm all saying. that kind of yeah. stuff. And it, there's, I mean, there could have been a line between if this guy's on his deathbed and anyone is, it's to your point, I'm just agreeing with you here. Yeah. Like when you're yeah. in that 
frame of mind and you're looking back on your life and reflecting uh, maybe with grandiosity as you're about to, you know, cross the threshold, you might be like, right. oh yeah, by the way, I was D.B. Cooper, you know? So. Well, yeah, absolutely. That's what I'm saying is that a uh, very close friend of mine whose father, you know, sadly was passing due to cancer, started to make like minor admissions, nothing big, but, uh, you know, there was a point where they had expressed something that they regretted doing as a young man. And never mentioned it to the family. No one ever knew about it. It was nothing big, but it was something that they regretted having done. And my friend was like, wow, I, I can't believe dad would say that. But you're trying to get stuff off your chest. And this person, the, my, my friend's father, was you know in tremendous pain and a little bit of delirium, but you're going over what you've done in your life. And like you said, it's it's either you want to get something regretful off your chest that's been bugging you, but you never told anybody about, or you're going off with some imagining. And this person may have been fantasizing here and there throughout their life about uh, having pulled off uh, a good caper. And uh, it doesn't, my point overall is that it doesn't mean that it's absolutely the truth. However, we're all interested in deathbed confessions because at that point, it's like, well, what else you got to lose? Might as well tell the truth. Don't be surprised if I say it. If I manage to live <laughs> when I'm on the edge and I'm about to go, right. don't be surprised if I say I am D.B. Cooper. All right, we're down to my last two suspects here. I know it's been a long journey. I want to thank uh, those of you that haven't clicked stop for <laughs> continuing on. This is in after this. We'll get to our conclusions in a nice little wrap-up uh, overview, but you probably have your own at this point. This guy is one of the major players on the suspect list. A lot of people think he was the man, and um, I, you can see why. I call him the mercenary, although mm -hmm. he wasn't really a mercenary. He was in the military. He did do some side jobs, it would seem, while he was, <laughs> but I don't think he got paid for him. He did them uh, in trade for uh, weapons for CIA operations and that sort of thing. Uh -huh. uh, this gentleman's name was Robert Rackstraw, and I read an entire book about this guy. The book, which was extremely compelling, is called The Last Master Outlaw, How He Outfoxed the FBI Six Times, But Not a Cold Case Team. It's written by Thomas J. Colbert. Um, I don't believe that's Colbert. And Tom Zolosi, S-Z-O-L-L-O-S-I, published by Jacaranda Roots Publishing which I thought was a very good name for a publishing company, especially for this book, because those roots mm. will destroy your house and plumbing if you plant the tree too close to your house. I planted a jacaranda, jacaranda tree. Yep, and I had, to, I had to take it out because the the uh, arborist came by and was like, oh, that's too, isn't your sewer line right there? And I was like, yeah, he's like, that's got to go. Which is, of course- It's still up there, isn't nah, it? No, it's on the, yeah, it's the on the side that it's safe to be on. There were twins, remember? Originally, yeah. there were twins. Yeah. I've told you this from the beginning, and I apologize to those who might be fans, but I make no secret of it. The jacaranda is my least favorite tree. You can't stand that tree. I forgot about that. It, it, it smells like, uh, for, for a lot of the year, it smells like pee-pee. It looks it great two like weeks out of the year. Oh, come on. <laughs> it's a floral scent. The, 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 purple, the lovely purple petals fall, and then they're sticky. Okay, this is all apologies to Jacaranda Roots Publishing. For our <laughs> I'm sure they have nothing to do tangent. with the nature, the, bi the botanical nature of the tree, but yes. So let's talk about Robert Rackstraw. I guess the FBI considered this book that these guys wrote a, a very professional investigation. Now, the book has a lot of details. I mean, life story, all kinds of stuff. I read all of that, but I there's no way we're going to get into all of that here. But if you want to know more about this guy, uh, you got to check the book out. He's a real life uh, sort of um, bad guy version of Jason Bourne. 
uh, with a lot of exaggeration thrown in and some real stuff. I don't mean he's that adept at, yeah. you know, survival. Would you, uh, would you liken him to the Tom Cruise character uh, in the, uh, remember when he was the, uh, the cocaine flyer? Oh, God, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty good. similar, yeah. but the thing was, the thing about Rackstraw was that he claimed to be doing all that stuff and he wasn't really. But he was right, still right. he was still in country and doing a lot of bad things. Yeah. Um, so well, let's just talk about him a little bit. A, a lot of this mm-hmm. story centers around um, an ex-Columbian cocaine runner who took a polygraph saying that he witnessed the planning of the burial of the $5,800 of skyjacking ransom money found on Tina Barr. So that actually comes from Last Master Outlaw. And he said that the mastermind, D.B. Cooper, would be in planting that money, would be doing it to prove to the authorities that he didn't survive the jump. Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you got to read the book. So uh, anyway, okay. one of the characters in this book who's claimed to have buried the money himself, a drug trafficker, bragged about it, but he wouldn't say why to his friends. Well, the authors of the book then uncovered that the trafficker was good friends with a, quote, badass Vietnam vet who had been one of the original suspects, Robert Rackstraw. So keeping this straight, and this book is complicated, all these relationships are complicated, and it's hard for me to convey all of it, so I'm just touching on a few things. But the drug trafficker, whose name was Briggs, knew this and claimed that this money was buried there by the person who was D.B. Cooper. And then the authors figured out that that guy, Briggs, who is now deceased, knew Robert Rackstraw. Okay. Colbert speculates that Rackstraw is technically a psychopath. (laughs) And in the book, he suggests that the guy, who was also a serious adrenaline junkie, was also a consummate liar, a con artist, and would do anything to get ahead. And he draws circumstantial connections between Rackstraw and three pseudonyms of con men pulling all kinds of elaborate scams in the Pacific Northwest. One of them was very similar to the stories of David Hampton, who was the con man that inspired the movie Six Degrees of Separation and that play as well. He quotes an undercover state investigator whom his co-author had known for 10 years as saying, quote, A master criminal like Rackstraw appears in America once every couple of years. Between July and December 1971, you've documented three within 100 miles of each other in the Northwest. Real estate aerial pilot Robert Rackstraw, vacationing Swiss pilot Norman DeWinter, and D.B. Cooper, a hijacker with obvious aviation skill sets. Many Norman DeWinter eyewitnesses claimed he looked very much like Robert Rackstraw, and your investigative team says Rackstraw is a dead ringer for the FBI Cooper sketches. Also, your detailed timeline reveals that whenever one vanished, another popped up. And after Rackstraw went home for good, the other two disappeared forever. It's statistically impossible for three master criminals to all be operating within 100 miles, let alone three that look alike, have the same flying skills, and their arrivals and departures are synchronized like whack-a-mole. That's from The Last Master Outlaws in the book we mentioned um, in the Kindle edition, page 86. So what I'm saying is that in the book, they've... They track down three operators who all are doing the same kind of things. And the author actually points out that DeWinter, the name DeWinter, that pseudonym was taken from Alexander Dumas' novel, The Three Musketeers. There was a Baron DeWinter in that. One moment here. So yes. this person, the author, the co-author, in conjunction mm-hmm. with the undercover agent, they're proposing that D.B. Cooper, Robert Rackstraw, and Norman DeWinter, a Swiss pilot, are all the same person. 
Yes. How do you fake being Running How do you fake being Swiss? I mean, it was just like six degrees. You have to really. He had an accent. Uh, he had a. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. All that stuff. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about a sophisticated dude yeah. here. So, but here's the other thing. He was a serious individual. He had tons of medals from Vietnam. Uh, a lot of them were real. A lot of them were also <laughs> right. made up. He was also a crack helicopter pilot. And for most of his life, he had access to both helicopters and small aircraft. However, he was prone to making mistakes too. Uh, during one delivery of a new helicopter where he was supposed to be transporting it by flying it. And he brought along a friend to deliver it. He made a basic fuel miscalculation and it crashed. It ran out of gas and came down. But he brought it down in such a way that he managed to keep him and his buddy alive on a ranch. And the ranchers who were coming up noticed as the helicopter was totally trashed that this guy was standing outside high-fiving his friend. <laughs> well, of course you would. Yeah. Well, as so, they say, any, again, any uh, landing you can walk away from is a good landing. Anyway, this paints a fascinating, highly detailed portrait of Rackstraw's life as kind of a maniac. And along the way, he is abusing wives um, mm -hmm. violently. He's undertaking high-profile rescue missions under heavy fire for like a trapped general in Vietnam who we actually rescued. Right. He would steal weapons and gear from the base that he was at and then hand it off to CIA operatives that were in country, but only if they agreed to take him on covert missions so he could be a part of the action. But those missions were all off book and unsanctioned by his superiors, so he was in direct defiance of orders when he went on them. But at that point, he got exposure to how the CIA worked and probably made some contacts. He was an expert jumper. Uh, he had pretty much no fear of anything. And the book, again, The Last Master Outlaw, is very quick and compelling read. And the picture it paints is pretty convincing, but for me, the most compelling part but for me, the most compelling part of it really comes down to one incident, and that's the setup for the Ingram family to find the $5,800 on Tina Barr. This is where you're going to be freaked out. I see you reading it right now because mm. this is the first time you're hearing this, I think. According to the book, the drug trafficker, Briggs, uh, got drunk, and in an effort to show off to some friends, he, uh, his name was actually John Richard or Dick Briggs. Um, I'm actually going to quote this from page 168 of the book. In it, he's trying to convince his friends that he is, in fact, himself, D.B. Cooper. And to prove it, he does the following. Quote, on November 24th, 1979, Briggs suggested a trip, 79, right? This is the anniversary. This will be mm -hmm. the eight years after the kidnapping. Think about the date also, 79, right before 1980. Briggs suggested a trip to the 8th annual D.B. Cooper Day celebration in Woodland, Washington. He told us he had gone up the year before. And this year, he wanted me to go with him. He's talking to his two buddies. Upon arrival in Woodland, Briggs put on a T-shirt he purchased with I am D.B. Cooper emblazoned across its front. As he mingled with a sizable group of Cooper legend devotees, Carlson watched him carefully. He never broke character. The real D.B. Cooper secretly rubbing elbows with the faithful. All he kept telling me was, I just want to tell these people who I am. We spent the whole dang day and night, and all he wanted to do was jump up and say, hey, I'm here. The next time Carlson was in a crowd with Briggs, it was at a Jam to the Walls party on February 7th, 1980, in Shell's apartment building on Portland's Hayden Island. Spotting something he'd been looking for, Briggs took the still skeptical Carlson and Burke, these are the two friends, aside, and said, quote, I'm going to prove to you that I am who I say I am, end quote. He said, pointing discreetly to a couple across the crowded room. The pair looked like a nervous hippie couple, in quotes. Out of place, Carlson recollected. Before you guys get to Phoenix, talking to his buddies now, they and their little boy are going to find some of my money, Briggs said. 
He then walked to a window overlooking the Columbia and pointed, quote, over there on the Vancouver side of the river, end quote. He then gave the runners a meaningful stare to make sure they knew exactly what money he was talking about. Their expressions told him they did. Carlson and Burke didn't know what to say, each thinking this was a gigantic load of malarkey, even for Briggs. Moments later, he wanted to introduce them to the couple, but the runners somehow managed to decline and leave the party without incurring Briggs's wrath. Their boss, it seemed, had really gone over the edge this time, and they were relieved to get away. So that's pages 167 and 168 in uh, The Last Master Outlaw, uh, the Kindle edition. Well, four days after that, the couple that Briggs' friends saw him talking to at the party were making international news about how their eight-year-old son had found $5,800 in missing D.B. Cooper money in the sand on Tina Bar on the Columbia River's North Shore. Later in 2015, the family was asked about it for the History Channel documentary that the authors of the book had a part in producing. So again, this is from The Last Master Outlaw. This is on pages 188 and 189 in the Kindle edition. When the question came up about how his son discovered the money on the Columbia River, the father took a big breath. I said, let's build us a fire here and burn some logs. Brian said, yeah, okay, pappy. So I grabbed up some driftwood and I'm looking around and stuff. And he runs up and gets on his hands and knees. He says, let me clear us a place, daddy. And I said, not right there. Let's do it right over there. You see them two little sticks over there? Let's do it right there. Why Dwayne thought the two sticks were an important detail for his 35-year-old retelling, we didn't know. But the instruction certainly raised Forbes's eyebrows. The reporter followed up with a surprise. With their permission, he pulled out a laptop and played the footage of former runner Ron Carlson's 2011 interview, queued up to the part about the Ingrams colluding with Dick Briggs on the Tina Bar money stunt. The documentary cameraman zoomed in on Dwayne as he suddenly removed his glasses, closed his eyes, tightened his facial muscles, and grimaced. Then he turned away from the rolling allegation and wrung his hands over and over. At the tape's end, Brian was silently side-glancing at his father. Dwayne nodded toward the screen. That guy was tweaking. He's a drugster. He don't have no idea what he's talking about. Forbes was ready for him. Well, I'm wondering why years later he would come out, and I'm presuming he would say, concoct this story. I don't know what to say, muttered Dwayne. All right, so coming back to the big picture here, coming out of the book, less than a year after Briggs did all of that, he was running around paranoid that he would be killed. And in the small hours of December 12th, the cocaine trafficker's car ran off the road and flipped, killing him. A friend of his had been with him up until 4.30 a.m. that night because Briggs was so afraid he was going to be killed, but by who? Well, the implication is Rackstraw wanting to protect his secret. Who else could have planted that money? Colbert details how Briggs was an excellent fence, too, laundering money by the popular method of turning it into South African Krugerrands at the time, which are made of pure gold. If Briggs was laundering money for Rackstraw, that means that he knew everything that was going on. They all worked together at a flooring company at one point, apparently coating floors for basketball courts and gymnasiums, including Pepperdine. Can believe that that was in the book. But did Rackstraw talk Briggs into planting that money on the river and then kill him for being sloppy or loudmouthed about it? Hard to say. Was Rackstraw a killer? Well, I'd seen a lot of action in Vietnam, but Colbert's book also goes into great detail about the distinct possibility that he murdered his own stepfather and buried him in a shallow grave on his own land. That's Rackstraw. But in what appeared to be a kangaroo court, Rackstraw was acquitted of that charge. So that's 
the whole story there. The other thing about Briggs Forrest is that the witnesses, everyone that knew him said, you know, even though he was a cocaine dealer and all that stuff is that he didn't drive fast. He wasn't a crazy driver and that the accident was out of character for him and uh, that he was pretty sure that he was going to be killed soon. So there's something about the book I can't get past, even though I loved reading it personally, and I highly recommend it for anybody that's interested in this story. Aside from the river story and the $5,800 being found on Tina Barr, I feel like the whole rest of the book is about circumstantial evidence. And this might make them mad. Maybe they're going to want to contact us. So all due respect, because I think it's a great book. Tons of research. A lot of work has gone into it. And they'll replant that jacaranda tree in your yard. Yes, I know. Well, unless I'm misunderstanding something, it's entirely possible because also I have to admit I inhaled this book in about 24 hours. But there's a part of me that feels like there's a bias towards Rackstraw. And there's cases like this with many of the suspects because he so perfectly fits the idea of what criminal investigators think D.B. Cooper as a right. person would have been like. Uh, Rackstraw could be charming, but he was also a misogynistic jerk, according to the book. Uh, he strangled, he was strangled. I know he's strangling his wife in front of his children at one point, one of his yeah. wives. So the question is, would this guy really be as polite as D.B. Cooper was supposed to be to two flight attendants? Right. Um, you know, it's, it's hard. That's hard to say. It's just, it's a little bit of a leap for me, but he's been considered a strong suspect for a long time. However, he was ultimately dismissed by the FBI but according to the authors of the book, there was internal controversy over dismissing him. Mm -hmm. So I just want to read this sum up on Wikipedia about Rackstraw. Uh, in 2016, Rackstraw reemerged as a suspect in a History Channel program that was connected to these guys and a book. On September 8, uh, 2016, Thomas J. Colbert, the author of the book and attorney Mark Zaid, filed a lawsuit to compel the FBI to release its Cooper case file under the Freedom of Information Act. The suit alleges the FBI suspended active investigation of the Cooper case in order to undermine the theory so as to prevent embarrassment for the Bureau's failure to develop evidence sufficient to prosecute him for the crime. In January 2018, Tom and Donna Colbert, that's his wife, they worked on this together, reported that they had obtained a letter originally written in December 1971 that says that codes that it contained were deciphered and matched to three units Rackstraw was a part of while in the Army, and the FBI refused to acknowledge the findings because, quote, it would have to admit that amateur sleuths had cracked a case the Bureau couldn't, end quote. I'm going to go on to point out here that one of the Flight 305 flight attendants reportedly did not find any similarities between photos of Rackstraw from the 70s and her recollection of Cooper's appearance. Rackstraw's attorney called the renewed allegations the stupidest thing I've ever heard, and Rackstraw himself told People.com, it's a lot of expletive, and they know it is. I'm going to go with BS being the expletive there. Hmm. The FBI declined further comment. Rackstraw stated in a 2017 phone interview that he lost his job over the 2016 investigations. When approached by Colbert about claims that he was D.B. Cooper, quote, I told everybody I was the hijacker before explaining the admission was a stunt. Well, there you go. He just admitted uh, it was a hoax, so case closed. Case closed. Uh, in May 2019... Fairly recent, Colbert came out with some additional information. This was again published by our friend Douglas Perry, who's not our friend. He's probably mad at us now for using every article he ever wrote. <laughs> and, uh, and massacring this, uh, yes. this story. <laughs> published by the Oregonian. Uh, hats off to you, Mr. Perry. Please don't be mad at us. But I want to read this from this particular article, which was titled DB Cooper Letter, newly released by FBI, offers startling coded clue that might reveal Skyjacker. This was published on May 17th or Right. Excuse me, posted January 2018 and updated May 17th, 2000. Didn't this also appear as an article with New York Magazine, I believe? Oh, yeah, I think it might have. Yeah. Yeah. So this okay. is this is a pretty interesting little segment, and we're, we're wrapping up Rackstraw here, so bear with me. 
The letter offered up details of the Northwest Airlines hijacking case that hadn't made it into press reports, such as the fact that the FBI was not able to glean any usable fingerprints from the plane. Agents carefully combed through the December 11th letter. The writer's claims that he wore a toupee and putty makeup and left no fingerprints, as well as the admission of feeling hate, turmoil, hunger, and more hate. Colbert says this hate was Rackstraw's anger at being booted from the military for lying and other transgressions. Then there are the seemingly random strings of numbers and letters at the bottom of the page. The Bureau's investigators didn't know what to make of them. In a December 15, 1971 internal case memo, the FBI laboratory wrote of one of the sequences, the significance of the number 717-171634, asterisk, appearing next to the copy count in the lower left corner on the face of the letter, remains unknown. It has remained unknown for 46 years until quite possibly a month ago. Rick Sherwood, a relatively new member of Colbert's team, has made sense of it and the other odd number letter combinations in the letter. Sherwood served in the Army Security Agency, the military's elite signals intelligence outfit during the Vietnam War. He describes the training as the equivalent of two years of college in 16 weeks. It was tough. Rackstraw briefly served as a chopper pilot in the ASA at the same time Sherwood was with the unit, though Sherwood says he didn't know him. After the FBI released the December 11, 1971 letter last November, Sherwood began studying the possible ciphers in it, using his ASA code-breaking training to search for links to Rackstraw. It took him about two weeks to figure out the code, with the initial light bulb moment coming when he simply added all the numbers up. Surfacing out of what appears to be a mishmash of unrelated numbers and letters were Rackstraw's Vietnam military units, the 371st Radio Research Unit and the 11th General Support Company, as well as the Army Security Agency. It wasn't a sophisticated code, but Sherwood wasn't surprised the FBI couldn't crack it in the early 70s because it would have made no sense to them. For the FBI to do it, they'd have to know a lot about the individual. I was trying to connect the numbers and letters to him. Could Sherwood have accidentally created this solution to the code because he was trying to find a connection to Rackstraw? It's not impossible, Sherwood says, but what are the odds that these digits would add up to this? Astronomical, a million to one. Rackstraw didn't think anyone would be able to break it. And this is parenthetical. Sherwood walked the Oregonian through the code-breaking process he used with the understanding the details wouldn't be included in this article since they are a key part of the second D.B. Cooper documentary Colbert is working on. Paraphrasing here, Western Illinois University's criminal science professor Jack Schaefer, a uh, former FBI agent and psychologist, found Sherwood's code-breaking work to be first-rate. Since these correlate with identifiers in Rackstraw's army life, I'm convinced this letter was written by D.B. Cooper, he told Colbert in an email. This is your strongest piece of evidence linking him to the hijacker. Rackstraw himself, it should be pointed out, often has refused to rule out that he's the legendary skyjacker. He boasted back in the late 1970s that given his skill set, he should be on the FBI's list of suspects. I wouldn't discount myself or a person like myself, he said. They say I'm him, Rackstraw told a California reporter last fall. If you want to believe it, believe it. Narcissist. Yeah, and here's one of the last things said, right? They're paying me to tell the story they want to hear. He died three months after that on July 9th, 2019. From a heart condition. So that's the question. Like you just said, is he bragging? He told a lot mm. of lies in the course of his life, according to Colbert, right. uh, uh, both Colberts and Solosi. Uh, you can read the book for yourself and decide The Last Master Outlaw, how he outfoxed the FBI six times, but not a cold case team. So this is one of the strongest guys, even though the FBI has dismissed him. I think a right. lot of people uh, on the backside of this investigation think that Rackstraw could be the dude. <sighs> I mean, I, I, I think the money story is compelling. But I'd, I really want to know more about that. I think the letter, 
you know, the letter is compelling too, but again, does it connect back to the actual crime? I don't know. Yeah, this, and, no. and um, the 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 description of Rackstraw's personality. Yeah. Uh, and again, if it's DB, is he just playing a part during the commission of the crime for five hours, being cool as a cucumber and polite, like you say, and courteous? And really the only threatening thing is he, he said, like, uh, you know, no funny business or I'll do the job. Right. Or does it sound uh, like the behavior of this purported psychopath and obvious mega narcissist? just or sociopath just doesn't care about certain things has that uh that weird adrenaline junkie thing where they they don't fear death uh would he be more calculated in planning uh a, a jump with better supplies on him yeah that's yeah and here's the weird thing so so yeah the the weird aha moment in in your in your sectional tale here is about Brian Ingram okay so to back up because this could be significant you're saying the the cocaine drug runner, this guy named Briggs, he's drunk and he's bragging to his buddies, look, I, I can prove to you that this hippie couple's going to freak out because they're going to find the money. So at this party, basically, going back over this again as I listen to you read this, yeah, he goes over to the couple and uh, he tells them something and he looks back to his buddies and they see that the, the hippie couple's freaked out. This yeah. would be the Ingram parents. Yeah. And he's basically saying over there, you're going to, cause they were on the banks of the river, the opposite bank. He's saying over there, you're going to find you. If you look around, you're going to find this money. Okay. So there's no other, uh, implication. It's not like, uh, Briggs was paying them off, uh, to find the money. No. Because here's the other thing. You could plant the money as a way to possibly, like I said, divert FBI attention saying like, well, there you go. We found part of the money. Maybe he's dead. It's not, it's not a, a direct uh, proof. You'd probably bury a shoe or something, you know, something else just besides the money. It's weird that some of the money's missing. It's weird that the money got separated from the main pack, but the money has to be found. So to ensure that Briggs is saying like, look, I'm going to make sure that the money is found by this one uh, couple that happens to be camping or, or, now is encouraged to go camping at Tina Bar. Yeah. How did Briggs know they were going to be there? Right. A few days later. Oh, because he told him to go there. Right. So now they just plan. A, he didn't they, know it. He told just, him. He said, there's money. Right. You should go over there and look around. There's money. But here's the thing. Okay. He so wasn't now we predicting go back to the where they would be. He was saying, right. you need to go over here. Here's where I have a problem is that now you're hearing the tale. Okay. Answer me this. Who's telling the tale of Papa Ingram? looking all nervous in the documentary when they go over this. Because, um, right, in the History they, Channel show, they went and and uh, that's an excerpt from the, what they actually said in the History Channel show, which you can watch. Okay, so, yeah. right. So then uh, Briggs's buddies happen to notice, like, oh my gosh, there's the hippie couple. Yes. And they're, boy, they're talking about they're the story. The he looks really nervous. Yep. Okay, aside from all that, you have to go back to the money, okay? So now the money's found. If he tells the guy, well, you're going to find a pile of money, is, is it spendable? No, it isn't. Right. So here's the other thing is that go, going back to science, and here's, here's where I'm going to leave it, with, at least with that part, and we talk about this all the time, you hear a legend, you hear a, a long, drawn-out, complicated story, and some parts could be true, some parts could be 
embellished. Some parts could be totally false. It, it could all be a mishmash. And when you latch onto a couple of things that turn out to be true, or at least very interesting, that fuels it. Doesn't mean it's completely true. But if you look at science here, now we know uh, recently here about the diatoms. So if you're going to trust the, the Cooper research team that diatoms were found and therefore the money could not have been well, two things about the money. The money could not have been planted in a wet condition, exposed to the natural water elements at any point other than the spring. So it wasn't, so So Cooper would have had to plant the money there. The other thing There's is that- There's a supposition there though, is that the diatoms yeah. were deposited there after the money was put on the riverbank. So if they had the money all those years and it was- exposed to the diatoms in the spring, whatever other location it was It could at, have been any other and spring. And then brought yeah. to the river, right? Because they don't, they're not carbon dating them. So what, so then it's brought to the river and it's found within 30 days or so or, or whatever from when Briggs put it there to when he tells the hippie couple to go over there and look for it. And Briggs also right. scientifically may not have had any idea that it was already so deteriorated. He might've thought, oh, they'll dig it up. It'll be fine. Because he's yes, a scientist okay. by any means. Well, no, but the the other part of it is that the bills obviously show hyd hydrologic wear and tear. Right, they're rounded, they deteriorate around the corners. That means they did spend some time in the water getting beat up. Right, uh, but it's so, not clear in the story. I don't think when yeah. Briggs put it there. Right. But he's putting then old, uh, like they 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 weathered, they water weathered some portion of the bills, then planted them. No, in the he spring? might he might have he might have had them, and they were exposed to the diatoms in the spring wherever they were, and then he put them over there six months ago, and then told the couple where to find them. Well, that's what I'm saying. So then he's got a plant already pre-weathered, pre-diatomed in the spring. Diatomed, but not necessarily weathered. The weathering could have happened after he put it there. No, no, that's what that's my point here is that uh, at least with the, the army hydrologist and also Tom K, uh -huh. they're saying that the the rounding action of the bills means the corners and the edges were roughed up by rocks in the riverbed, uh, the water action, roots, all the stuff of of having traveled or at least been eroded right. uh, erosion properties from water. It wasn't just sitting in a pool of water; they weren't just wet and moldy is that it got beat up. Uh, they just don't know when it got deposited or, or right. how long it spent in the water. So that's what I'm, that's my point is that, yeah, you could do that, but he would have had to have planted already deteriorated, weathered bills at that spot for them to find. Right. So that's the kind of thing that doesn't stick with me, but uh, the rest of it, yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, he's, yeah, he's one of the most fascinating suspects so far. Well, let me tell you where I'm at on this. Yeah. Not that you asked. But and not that anybody. Oh, else. I will be asking. Everybody's so pressed well and stop that. already. Anyway, but here's where I'm at. I don't <laughs> think he did it. I don't think Rackstraw did it. I think he again is another one of these guys who was kind of a con artist and a liar and wanted to make himself out to be bigger than he was and maybe a, like a psychopath and a megalomaniac and all that stuff. But uh, to your point, I can't see him being this sophisticated veteran with all this experience uh, jumping out of this plane in a suit with loafers right. on. I, that doesn't connect for me. Also, right. the picture doesn't connect for me. And a lot of people right. think Rackstraw is the guy, but Rackstraw in the picture looks to me like Paul Giamatti if he lost about 20 pounds. It <laughs> does not look like D.B. Cooper. He's got a Giamatti right. look, um, and I'm, I'm right. kind of making a joke, but but seriously, I know. he does. So yes, I, but yeah. 
here's the other thing, and this is the thing that you never, you know, something that's come up for us in the past is the intermingling of multiple theories. Right. I believe there's a couple of ways that this could be a different theory. I think that there's a lot of ways to look at it. I'm about to talk about my favorite suspect coming up. But before mm -hmm. we even get to that idea, let's say my favorite suspect managed to get out of the plane with the money, but then lost the money on the way down and someone else found it. And then that person fenced the money with bricks. Or let's say Rackstraw, let's say Rackstraw did do it and he was fencing the money with bricks and that Cooper didn't put him up to burying it on the bank. It was money that he fenced it. He laundered for Briggs. I mean, Briggs laundered for Rackstraw, gave him the Krugerrands, but then never properly laundered the 5,800 himself for whatever reason. Maybe he laundered all the rest of it, but he kept this behind or couldn't get it, you know, laundered or whatever. And so right. then he put it on the riverbank, no, com no connection really to Rackstraw. Or maybe he was laundering it for Rackstraw, or maybe he had nothing to do with Rackstraw, or maybe someone else got the money out of the plane but lost it on the way down, and the money has its own separate tail entirely. All those things are possibilities, in my opinion. But I just don't see Rackstraw as Cooper based on behavioral observations. All due respect to these guys who've done a ton of work and have a very yeah. compelling story, and it'll make a great movie. But like, I don't, I don't, for me, I don't make it. So I'm not like necessarily, just so you know, when you're asking the counterpoints about the money on Tina Barr, I don't know. But I do know that there is some weirdness about it. And I also know that when you take a team of scientists out there and they're looking at it, they're trying to uh, reverse engineer its arrival in a way based on its destination that might preclude an unnatural chain of events or a man or interference from man mm -hmm. on the chain of events that led the money to be there. So like the diatoms, okay, they had to happen here. Maybe they didn't. I'm not a scientist, uh, obviously. Right. But like it just, it's just, a, well, it's a time of year. So it could have happened anywhere. That's what I'm saying. That The mystery is still, how did the money end up there? That doesn't right. answer the question. The diatoms don't answer that question. That's so right. the Ingrams were camping there on Sunday, February 10th, 1980. That means the money would have had to have been exposed in the previous spring in a watery condition. Yeah, and I'm not sure, based on the story, it, this might be in the book, and I'm not going to go back and try to look it up now. People should just read this yeah. book. I don't want to give away the whole book or whatever. But right. like, I don't think it's clear when the money might have been placed there. It's just that he knew it was there. Yeah, but obviously somebody had to plant it there. So right, that's, and that would, would go Briggs. with... Yeah. Right, and I, I'm just going to go with geologist Leonard Palmer. now. Tom Kay and his team, as we said earlier, disagree with Leonard Palmer's estimation that the clay that it was it was found in or that layer of clay was from the dredging. They said that right. could have been a natural process. But right. both of them, I believe, unless I'm getting this wrong, both of them have ruled out that it could have been placed there uh, purposely by a human, that it did arrive through uh, hydrological processes from the river. But here's, here's the thing, and I'm looking back now at the book, The Last Master Outlaw. The night of the party, when he ostensibly identified the Ingrams and said, there's money over there, that was uh, four days before they found it on Tina Bar. Mm -hmm. However, what these two guys that knew Briggs also said was that he said on November 24th, he suggested they go to the 8th Annual D.B. Cooper Day Celebration in Woodland, Washington, and quote said, he told us he had gone up the year before and this year he wanted them to go with him. There's a possibility there, I think, and I can't, like I said, I can't remember if the book points this out. I don't know if he, do, he does a supposition here, but that um, 
it was the year before that he planted the 5,800. So if he'd gone mm. up for the festival the year before in November, it would have been there right. through spring. It might have even been sitting on top of the sand in the spring and then sank. Uh, so there's a possibility that it had been there that long. And he was actually concerned no one was going to find it. Again, the question being, did Rackstraw order him to put it there? Or Well, yeah, but I'm, what I'm saying is that if you bury the bills, you uh, the other the fact is that you want them to be found. So why wait a year? You know what I'm saying? It's like you're... Well, it's the thing. They don't it's do like anybody if you good. go tell somebody where it is, you're implicating yourself in the process and in right. the skyjacking and the statute. There's no statute of limitations. So yeah. you tell somebody because you're drunk and a cocaine dealer and showing off to your friends. That's why you tell them. <laughs> like, well, no. I, I mean, because he wasn't... No, he, Briggs was not the brightest bulb, with my understanding, no, no. from the book. My so. saying is that uh, the gag doesn't work unless you tell somebody. So somebody had to be told. You can't just wait around for somebody well, to... Well, you to might think that, but the book, on chance. the book also indicates there was a guy that went fishing there every day, was always there, a guy with a beard, was like out there right, right at that spot. It might have been a high-traffic area, and he couldn't believe it wasn't getting discovered. Mm. A lot and of maybe he's getting impatient. Here. A lot of speculation. Agree. Yeah, I, I'm with yeah. you. I'm, I agree with right. you. I'm just yeah. It's an interesting story. I hear you. Okay, it is. No, it's it's one. Of, that's what I'm saying. It's one of the best ones to be uh, left for last. In that it it's all uh, very dramatic. A uh, lot of uh, danger and weirdness and uh, and psychology. Yeah, I mean, here. I think Rackstraw is a fascinating dude. I just I still don't see him as the perpetrator. But hey, you know, I have absolutely zero experience solving uh, skyjackings. So. <laughs> Um, well, after this, after this uh, eight-hour uh, binge here, yeah, at, uh, yeah, yeah we're at four. Some. We're at four hours raw, so I'm going to get okay. to our last suspect here. All right, um, Kenneth Christensen, and I, I call this one the inside job. Kenny, yeah, Kenny, KP, actually, to his friends. So this is from the book Into the Blast: The True Story of DB Cooper, written by Skip Porteous and Robert Blevins. And Robert Blevins, uh, you're going to be hearing a lot about tonight. This is out of Adventure Books of Seattle. We had the Kindle edition. I read this entire book as well. I, I found this greatly enjoyable. Uh, neither one of these two books, Into the Blast nor uh, The Last Master Outlaw, are particularly long. So if you're super into this, you could probably finish both of them in a week, especially if you're quarantined. I tried to cram them down in a couple of days, but I just wanted to get to the broad strokes here. So here is mm -hmm. this uh, quote. There is something you should know, but I can't tell you. These are some of the last words spoken by Kenny Christensen to his brother Lyle while Kenny lay dying of cancer in 1994. Lyle assured his brother that everything was all right and that whatever confession Kenny wanted to make was unneeded. Kenny Christensen passed away a short time later. His family was surprised to discover that Kenny had a substantial estate that belied his relatively modest income. There was a house and an adjoining lot in Bonnie Lake, Washington, owned free and clear, as well as valuable stamp and coin collections. His bank account showed a balance of nearly $200,000 in savings and an additional $21,500 in checking. It was true that late in life, Kenny had made a couple of minor land deals that brought in a modest profit. However, his family wondered how Kenny managed the transition from poverty to a man of relatively good means with no visible signs on how he did it. So here's my thing about Kenny. This guy is my guy, frankly. This is the <laughs> dude, I, and I'm going to tell you why. The main reason for this, I'm just going to cut to the chase on this, is the photo. He is a dead match for the sketches, in my opinion, more than anybody else. Now, people have said that the eye color is off. Because his eyes are brown and Cooper's eyes were described as hazel or vice versa. I can't even remember now. Yeah. But I'm telling you again, I have hazel eyes and they look brown sometimes. And brown eyes, like, I, that's not, it's not like blue and brown or whatever. It doesn't make sense to me. But 
Um, there's also, he was more bald than Cooper's portrayed in the pictures. And that was the thing I said earlier. However, his family said he would wear a toupee from time to time. Right. Uh, it's my opinion though, even though I like Kenny for the crime, uh, in 1971 toupee is not going to fool anybody. That's just what I think, but Hey, what do I know? But listen to all this other stuff. Hold on a second. What about William J. Smith? His 1985 photo, yeah. to me, looks like a dead ringer for a, uh, a 40-year-old DB. I think Kenny looks more like DB than Smith. Mm. I do. Okay. But if you if you look at them side by side, like I said, I'm going to make a big matrix of everybody, and we'll put okay. that up. But, um, well, listen to this. This is uh, Agent Carr. There's a little quote from Agent Carr. This is from the Star Tribune out of Minneapolis. Uh, headline, How the DB Cooper Mystery Got a Minnesota Twist, Yet Another Theory on a Mysterious Case. A retiree in Morris, Minnesota, thinks that the missing hijacker D.B. Cooper was his brother by John Tevlin uh, from November 19, 2007. Agent Carr, Special Agent Carr's quote from that article. He had brown eyes. He was too short, Carr said. The stewardess who spent the most time with Cooper said he had hazel eyes and that she looked up to him and she was five foot eight. I'm not going to say it's not him, but I probably won't put a lot of effort into an investigation, end quote. So that's Carr's position. Again, Right. I'm not sure his angle, and maybe it's just the height. It's interesting about the height, but by the same token, uh, uh, maybe Carr th- thinks it was Rackstraw, even though FBI dismissed Rackstraw, so he's leaning that way. It's hard to know, or they have someone else in mm-hmm. mind that's not even public. But let's talk about Kenny a little bit. He worked for Northwest Airlines. In fact, and we alluded to this earlier in the series, he was on the Shimya Island in the Alaskan Aleutians, and that was a refuel point for Northwest He stayed there on this island called The Rock for four years, and during that time, he met a lifelong friend named Bernie Geestman. More on that in a sec, but he was there a long time working on refueling planes for Northwest and maintenance, and he certainly would have learned a lot about them at the time. Bernie, his friend, was a flight mechanic, so higher up than Kenny, but but later they were notedly together a lot in life, including at Bernie's wedding. Here's another thing about Kenny, and anybody that looks at the picture of the tie will know this. The tie clip is from a left-handed person. Kenny, too, was left-handed. Is there, I guess there's no, right, from looking at it, there's no up or down uh, position with the the tie clip. Right. So when the hijacking happened, Kenny was making $600 a month. He had no savings. Eight months after it, he bought a house. Now, the book, Into the Blast, says that the house was $16,500 and he paid cash for it, but that's actually not true. So a lot of people say that since he didn't pay cash for the house, that poo-poos this whole theory. But this was actually written by Robert Blevins, one of the co-authors of the book. He wrote in, co-wrote Into the Blast. And this was from the D.B. Cooper hijacking website. And I'm going to take a, an excerpt here. This was in March of 2018 that um, Mr. Blevins posted this. These days when I do interviews, I often direct the media away from the book and toward the actual 54-page report we sent to the Seattle FBI in June 2015. The reason being, it is much more accurate than the 2011 book. However, the truth on how Kenny actually managed to buy that house in Bonnie Lake just seven months after the hijacking is actually more convincing and better evidence against him than just plopping down cash for it. That type of purchase could be explained in any number of ways, none of which points to him as the hijacker without additional proof. When we discovered the full truth on the house, it was better evidence than just the idea of a cash purchase on approximately $15,000 home. Our error about the house purchase has been brought up time and again, and often other Cooper investigators use it to try and discredit the entire investigation into Christensen. In fact, it was another investigator who first brought this mistake to our attention. He presented a document showing that Christensen financed approximately half the purchase price by assuming a mortgage through Seattle First National Bank and took almost 19 years to pay it off. 
This investigator was right and we were wrong. However, the same investigator couldn't explain where the other half of the purchase price came from and we wanted to find out. The best way to do that, we decided, was to investigate the previous owners of the home. Their names were Anne and Joe Grimes, and that's all we knew about them. After a while, we approached one of the major witnesses, Helen Jones of Sumner, Washington, a family friend of both Kenny and Bernie, and asked her if she knew anything about how Kenny bought the house. Jones said no, she did not, but that Bernie Geestman had been best man at the Grimes' wedding, and then presented pictures of Bernie at their wedding. And here's the thing about Geestman. When you see him being interviewed, you realize that he is nervous as a cat and cagey and... It's, it's very strange. I'll just say that. We'll have a mm. link to all the films associated with this, but you have to watch it. So here's a little further background on how this house might have been paid for. Helen Jones and her family hosted Thanksgiving dinners each year where both Kenny Christensen and Bernie and Margie, his wife, Geestman, always attended. Kenny and Bernie did not attend the Thanksgiving the Cooper hijacking occurred. And Jones said that when she saw Kenny a few weeks afterward, he admitted he was with Geestman that week, but wouldn't tell her where they were or what they had been doing. Checking further, we discovered that both Anne and Joe Grimes had passed away around 2005. I could not interview them, so I went to the next best source, their son, who lives in a small house near Rochester, Washington. He said that he didn't know a whole lot about the house sale, but there was a promissory note involved for about half the price of the house. When I asked him if his father was the type who would wait 19 years, like the mortgage company did on the other half, to get paid off on such a note, he laughed. Not a chance, he said. His dad was a cash-on-the-barrel-head kind of guy and would have been paid off in a very short time or he would have foreclosed or taken other action based on the note. Was there a copy of this note anywhere, I asked. He didn't know. Did Kenny ever pay it off? He said that if Kenny had failed to pay, his dad would have certainly taken back the house or forced Kenny to obtain an additional mortgage to pay his dad. He was just a young man at the time, he said, and didn't know all the details, but the one thing he was sure of was that his father would have wanted payment on that note, and in a quick, fast New York hurry, he was certain on that. So that goes to the whole point, because like people say, oh, we didn't pay cash for the house. That's one of these, they're saying, well, no, he did. He, he, he financed half of it, and then the other half was this promissory note. They can't find right. the note, but it makes more sense honestly, and it's a little bit less suspicious. There were other things going on, though. And again, I'll come back to the fact that when he died, he had almost 200000 in the bank. So that's the other interesting thing about Kenny. Now, there's a timeline here from the, the website, the D.B. Cooper hijacking. This is on a, a blog. And again, this is from Mr. Blevins, who co-authored the book on Christensen. In this timeline, it talks about how in September 1949, he arrives on Shimya Island to work as a laborer for Northwest Airlines. Bernie Geisman was already there. And so, by the way, there's an implication from this book that these two worked together on the hijacking. So uh, we get further into this. On, in March 1st of 1954, the Castle Bravo test is conducted. That's on the Bikini Islands. This is a nuclear test. April of 1955, Kenny is recruited from Shimya for a job working on Bikini Island. Geestman had ended his tour on Shimya and returned to work in Seattle, first for Northwest and later for Boeing on the 727 program. This recruiting was done by a company called Holmes and Narver, who walked hand-in-hand with the AEC for many years. That's the Atomic Energy Commission. They were an engineering firm who performed all kinds of duties for the AEC in regard to atomic testing and nuclear facilities, both in and outside the U.S. We don't know whether Kenny saw an ad in the newspaper was recruited by a rep of the company. We know that the job somehow originated on Shimya. So at the end, and then it goes on to say, at the same time this was all happening, government was doing secret research among the Marshall Islands, native people testing and recording their exposures to the many tests that were going on down there at the time. Later, this research was made public, but at the start, it was a secret program. So all of this is to point out that he was sent 
possibly from Shimya to the Bikini Atoll to see how he would react to being present a year after a nuclear test had happened. The bombshell, one of the bombshells at the end of this uh, particular segment that's uh, that Mr. Blevins put on the website is um, that, you know, that this is obviously very unfair. And he says, some payback for a decorated World War II era army paratrooper who was gay and kept it hidden to serve his country. This is not in the book. And it goes on to say, that's right, Christensen was gay and his family knew it when he told them he was joining the army in his senior year of high school. They warned him that could happen. If he were discovered, it could mean anything from a dishonorable discharge to prison in Leavenworth. He joined anyway, and the army never found out a thing. Kenny had told his family he could do it, and he did, passing some of the toughest training ever done with U.S. Army paratroopers because they were preparing for an invasion of mainland Japan. Very few knew the atomic bomb was coming and would soon end the war. Kenny was one out of less than 80 who passed training out of a group of nearly 300 men. He was certainly no slouch, and after the Japanese signed the surrender on the USS Missouri, Kenny was sent to serve in occupied Japan. He did parachute jumps to qualify for the extra pay and an occasional jump for civilians as well while he served in Japan. His letters home to family in Minnesota are clear. So he works on the Bikini Atoll, and this is important because uh, later he's going to die of cancer, and his family thinks that that's where he contracted it. So coming back now to Seattle in 1955, he's doing odd jobs. He's hardly making any money. He gets uh, rehired at Northwest as a purser, as a flight attendant, essentially. Northwest decides to count his previous service on Shimya as still valid and discards the time he was either between jobs or on Bikini Atoll. Because of this, he got a congratulatory letter from the CEO of Northwest and a silver bowl on the same day the FBI bypassed the statute of limitations on the Cooper hijacking, November 24, 1976, five years after the hijacking. The letter notes his failure to attend the banquet held in Minneapolis for the other 25th anniversary with the airline employees. The famous John Doe warrant was obtained by the FBI on the very last day before the statute was due to expire and is available at FBI.gov. So he's saying here, if Kenny was the hijacker, it was probably the lowest day of his life. Since this news was broadcast and printed all over the Northwest when it happened, if Kenny was Cooper, it must have been crushing to say the least. Because the point was now he couldn't go. He didn't want to go to that ceremony. So he thought maybe he was going to be free and clear. The statute of limitations was expired, but they extended it. So all of this, there's, there's more details that go on here. And we have links to this article. But what it comes down to is that Bernie Giesman and his wife and Kenny were all friends. And it's funny, when I read the book, I thought, or I was speculating, it wasn't implied in the book, but it was clear that, that Kenny and Giesman's wife, Margie, were very, very, very close. And uh, Giesman was abusive. And at some point, uh, Kenny had helped her to buy a house and get moved out. And that's why Giesman, when he's interviewed in these documentaries, he's, he's, or in this one documentary, you look at him and you go, oh, he's hiding something. This is all very weird. This is strange. What is he hiding? And it's, it's possible that he was Kenny's, uh, he helped Kenny with the, either directly with the kidnapping or after the kidnapping with the money or whatever. And I thought for a minute that because Kenny and Margie were so close that maybe Kenny and Margie had had a relationship so that they had sort of a love triangle situation going on where Kenny and Giesman were, had been on the crime together, but were at odds because of differences over this woman. That was my internal speculation that I might have even put forth. But then reading this recent post from Mr. Blevins about Kenny being gay, I understand now that Kenny and Margie probably were just really close. And 
he was trying to take care of her because what everyone is saying about Kenny, all these witnesses, whether he did this or not, was that he was a sweet, kind, and generous man. And he helped people out with all this money that he mysteriously got. So this is all coming back around. So when you look at the timeline of events and the talk to these witnesses about Kenny, what you find out is that they were not present for this Thanksgiving dinner that they should have been at, Kenny and Bernie. They weren't there. And after that, Kenny seemed to have a ton of money. So I want to come down to this one last interview that's in the book that I thought was interesting. This is a witness named Dawn Jay. She was a sister-in-law to a um, woman who was divorced from Bernie, the sister-in-law. When I asked her whether she had received a $5,000 cash loan from Kenny in early 1972, she said yes. He gave it to Mike, and then Mike gave it to me. I used it to put a down payment on a house in Sumner. Kenny said I could have four years to pay it back, but I paid it back in two. How do you think Kenny got the money, I asked. His job, I suppose, she said. He told everyone he made good money at Northwest. At the time he gave me the loan, I said, he was taking home less than 600 a month. She was mildly surprised at this. Well, I don't know. He just told me people made a lot of money with the airline. She pointed to a very nice clock on the wall. He gave me that as a gift after one of his trips to Japan. It was an expensive-looking handmade cuckoo clock. I asked if she'd received the clock after 1971. She said yes. I took out a photo that I downloaded from the Seattle FBI's website entry on the D.B. Cooper case. It was a picture of the black JCPenney tie with the mother of pearl tie class that the hijacker had left behind before he jumped. I pushed the photo across the table and said, does this picture mean anything to you? Well, I don't know about the tie, she said, but I saw Kenny wearing that tie tack a couple of times. Are you sure? Oh, yes, he had one just like it. I could hardly believe my ears. No one had ever linked the tie or the clip to a specific person before, and Don had just dropped an ID on it as casually as anything, and she had done it before she understood the significance of it. I hadn't told her anything about Kenny being a suspect in the hijacking. So he goes on, he takes her on a little bit further, and then, then he starts to indicate that he might have been the hijacker, and she says, well, it could be true. It would explain a lot of things people wondered about Kenny. I asked her if she ever suspected that Kenny could be D.B. Cooper. Yes, I wasn't the only one who wondered about it either, but none of us ever asked him. Some of us were friends back there in, in Bonnie Lake. We did things together. Now everybody's gone or moved. Kenny never talked about the hijacking. I always thought that was strange because everyone talked about it for months, and he worked for the airline, so you would think he might have an opinion, but he never said a word about it. Well, why didn't any of you ask him if he was the guy? It would have been bad manners, she said. He worked for the airline, and he was a nice guy. No one was going to ask that to his face. Besides, he didn't look like a criminal. You said he was a paratrooper in the army? Yes, ma'am. Funny, he never said anything about it. How sure are you that D.B. Cooper was Kenny? I'm not sure. Maybe 60-70%, I said. The investigation is ongoing. So that's where he got all that money, she said. Figures. So <clears throat> he goes on to say, uh, did Kenny ever wear a toupee? She told him yes, but he never wore it on the job. It's only socially sometimes and not very often. And she also said she hadn't seen him wear it after 1971 that he took to wearing hats instead. Uh, another witness that he spoke to in the book, uh, Helen Jones, she had told a whole story that uh, explained how Kenny wasn't in the right place for Thanksgiving that year. She also had said that she thought he smoked camels. She got back in touch with um, Mr. Blevins later. I was wrong on something about Kenny. He didn't smoke camels. When I smoked, that was my brand. He smoked Raleigh's. I remember that because he saved the coupons. All the butts on the plane were Raleigh cigarettes. So we're coming back down here to the end of the line. And this is what I think about with this. I think Kenny couldn't make any money with Northwest. I think his story is really fascinating. He's out on Shimia Island for four years. Then he goes to the Bikini Atoll. He's exposed to what eventually will kill him while working there. 
He comes back. He's um, he's working at Northwest, which strikes so many times. They go, they go on strike. Their union goes on strike so much, they call it Cobra Airlines because it will strike at anything. And he can't make any money. He's actually digging ditches for his friends to make ends meet, making a couple hundred dollars a month. And uh, when he died, though, he had $186,000 in his main bank account. The thing about him is, though, everybody speaks really, really highly of him and said that after he got this money, he was helping everyone out and that he was a nice guy. Um, for example, listen to this, and we might have mentioned this in an earlier part. I can't remember because it was five years ago. After Tina Mucklow instructed him on how to lower the stairs, Cooper startled her by pulling two or three bundles of the ransom money from the sack. He held it out to her. Take it, he said. It's yours. Each bundle consisted of $2,000 in 20s, although some were slightly more and others slightly less. She refused the money. All right, he said. Go up front and stay with the others and close the curtains between first class and coach. That's from Into the Blast uh, by Skip Porteous and uh, Mr. Blevins. So that is, that's the guy he was. And one of the things that they, these people all said about him was that he was a kind-hearted person. And the thing that seems to be coming out about Mr. Geisman was that maybe not so much. In fact, there were documents associated with the purchase of Margie's house that supposedly the uh, Kenny had uh, had a hand in, the, the divorced wife of Mr. Geisman, that after Kenny died, her ex-husband, Geisman, Bernie, came to the house and stole the papers. And there's the idea that that could have somehow connected him because now the main suspect for Mr. Cooper is dead. The statute of limitations isn't up. Even though they told him when they interviewed him, it, you're not Im implicated because you're not the hijacker. It is up. He didn't want to say anything about it. And he also was cagey about how close they were. Then once he was confronted with pictures of them together, including at his wedding, he said, well, yeah, I knew him. Also, when he was digging the ditch for his friends for money, that was the Geesemans. So they clearly were all connected. And I think that, I think that for me, uh, especially when you look at the picture of Kenny and you look at the sketches of D.B. Cooper, for me, my money is on Kenny Christensen being or having been D.B. Cooper. Well... Have I convinced uh, you? Well, I mean, what do you think of the all picture? The people, when you look at that picture, uh, what do you think? It's close. Yeah. Like I said, I think if you're, <laughs> well, here's the thing. Okay, you're. We're going to have the photos up. You're going to make that. I don't know when you're going to do it, but you're going to yeah. make that uh, side by side comparison. Uh, I just now looked up uh, pictures of Kenny Christensen back in the day, and there is a composite here. I think New York Magazine has one. Um, it's close, and then you look at the the aged photo. But I said, I, you know, if you're just going by looks, to me, and again, it's very subjective. But if you're going by looks, then uh, Mr. Smith is the one who looks to me like at aged age progressed photo, William J. Smith. But uh, he has less things going on. And I'm talking about like the squareness of the head. Yeah. Uh, if you look at Cooper's hairline. Yeah, you're right. And again, there's, some of those there's similarities. Yeah, there are there's similarities. And and that's what I'm saying. If you go by Robert Rackstraw's photo, uh, that doesn't really fit Cooper. Yeah. Um, if you look at, uh, like I said, if you're just going by looks and an age progression, I'm going to bet my money on William J. Smith. But again, a lot of those things don't line up. So if you're looking at uh, Kenny... Yeah, it's in the ballpark, and but it's the rest of the story that is a lot more compelling. 
uh, everything else that happened. Let me ask you this. After 1971, and I may have missed this, but how long was Kenny not on the scene? How long was he missing, let's say, after the crime? I'm just trying to picture if he did do the hijacking, where does he pop up again? He popped up a few weeks later with the family. Okay. Yeah. With the family. But reading the book, what was the reason for him going missing? He wouldn't make it clear. He just changed the subject and said he was he just doing changed something the subject, else. But, yeah. but to his family, he was gone for two weeks. Yes. And then uh, his buddy Bernie, where was he during Also time? gone. So from what I know of the story, they didn't make Thanksgiving, which would have been in the next day. And they were just both gone for a week. Yeah. Right. And then the other uh, the other knock against this is that, what you're talking about, the money, is that suddenly he seemed to have a lot of cash, but some sources say, well, yeah, half that cash that he bought that house for, he got a lot of that cash from making these real estate trades on the side. Right. And then the real truth, uh, or what people who knew him said, is like, well, half that was in cash, and then the other one was from all of his investments and such. He may have lost some of the money, but here's the other thing is that he... Well, here's an interesting thing. In that book, they when the book was published in 2011, they didn't name Bernie Giesman. They used a pseudonym for him, uh, but now everybody knows about Giesman because he was later in this documentary. This is the pseudonym is Mike, okay? And so Mike yeah. is the one here uh, in this section. I'll read you this section. After about 30 minutes of patiently listening to this, I decided to take a chance and try and pin her down. And he's talking to Mike's ex-wife who calls Mike, which is Bernie Giesman, a liar and a crook, all right? Everything but the right. hijacking. So he says, uh, I asked her what she was doing on Thanksgiving weekend, 1971, and how she remembered the hijacking. Well, I was at home in Bonnie Lake. We didn't have a television at that time, but I remember listening all day about it on the radio. Where was Mike? And that would be Bernie. He was gone yeah. for a few days. With that, she told me an incredible story. Not long before the hijacking, she said Mike, again, Bernie, had bought a used mm -hmm. station wagon from a car lot near Aberdeen, Washington, and an Airstream trailer at a bank sale. He told mm -hmm. her they would use it for camping, but instead of bringing it home, he drove it down to some property they owned in Oakville, 60 miles south of Bonnie Lake, and parked it. When she asked him why he was leaving it on the empty property, he said, I know what I'm doing, and gave no other explanation. <laughs> okay. She said that someone might come along and either steal it or vandalize it. Mike told her to quit worrying. Two days after the hijacking of Flight 305, Mike took off in his car and didn't tell Katie, that's Margie, mm -hmm. or Margie, Yes, could be Margie. It could be Margie. I know a Margie, and she spells it the same way before people come after right. me. Uh, two days there's also a Marky post. Yes, there is a Marky, which is just Marky. But two days after the hijacking of Flight 305, Mike took off in his car and didn't tell Katie where he was going. Any plans for Thanksgiving were abandoned. Mike Watson, that's Bernie Giesman, Kenny Christensen, and Katie Watson, again, Margie, uh, or Margie, were supposed to have Thanksgiving dinner with some mutual friends in Sumner, Washington, a family both Kenny and the Watsons knew. Mike Watson returned a few days later and told his wife he had gone camping with a friend, but refused to name the friend. So um, that's the whole rest of the story. So right. what's happening here is the idea, Mike being Bernie, is that Bernie said he was camping with a friend, and the friend that he was camping with was Kenny, and it was Kenny rendezvousing with Bernie after he jumped out of the plane with the money. And then later he had a bunch of money, and he loaned money to pretty much all these people and also bought a bunch of stuff for cash, even if it wasn't outright, but he clearly had more funds at his disposal than he had ever had before when he used mm -hmm. to have to dig ditches just to pay his rent for a small apartment. Right. Right. Okay. So, so I'm not saying it's Kenny. That. I'm just saying it's Kenny. 
Yeah. <laughs> that's me. That's where I'm at. <laughs> Kenny Christensen. That's my... Uh, I think he's... Yeah, I think he's the most likely suspect. So in this pretty compelling story, then, Bernie is also sharing in the loot. Yeah, I think things went well for Bernie, too. Like, everybody got a little something. It seemed like Kenny was, right. you know, was described as generous. Okay. And then their story has no explanation for the money that, uh, the 5,800 that ends up on Tina Barr. No, I don't, I don't believe it does. If it does, I don't remember it. Right, right. Uh, and, um... Blevins might have said something about it on his blog. I mean, this... Right. Just to tell people, there's just absolute tons, I'm leaving out a bad word there, of information about this, <laughs> about this crime and all there's these suspects. There's a lot of... Yeah, it's, it's just, it's you weird. Just, it's the deepest rabbit hole there ever was, which is why we're doing a bonus show that took us over four hours to record and has, oh, you my know, goodness. and is not yeah. producing any revenue because we want to entertain you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if and it's we had to say this. this we got to say that yeah. we had to get this out. Yeah, it's not. We've lost people. It's, I'm going to try to cut it down, but you know, that's okay. It is what it is. Well, he, 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 look, if you're, uh, just put us on the background while you're vacuuming, you know, <laughs> yeah, we should have said really that what you're doing, or you fall asleep to this because we didn't, uh, Scott did not post another ocean waves, uh, audio recording. Yeah. Um, hopefully this is just as soothing, but uh, yeah, if you're into the subject at all, uh, I think this was the person of interest to do the deepest dive on. He's certainly the most compelling and he ends up dying of cancer because of his bikini atoll exposure. I was thinking that you were leading there before that he was terminally ill and didn't really care. So he did the stunt. Um, uh, but yeah, the motivation I is, I don't think he necessarily knew that at the time of the crime, no, but again, I, I don't get have, that. it's hard for me to pin down all these timelines and all these people. I, there's probably yeah, holes sure. in what I've said. I'm sure we're going to get a lot of corrections and, and people who disagree with things, but we did our best to give the, the broad overview on it. And, you know, and I can, I can get into my, conclusions which are pretty brief at this point um if you if uh so yeah inclined. i just uh, just a couple more questions i yeah. think as so uh so the story ends basically they end up with a little bit of money they they no one ever really explains uh, i guess they wouldn't come forward with the getaway plan other than the trailer was involved the trailer that was purchased for the camping trip yeah right yeah and let me ask you this and it uh well this probably should have been covered in the book why did the fbi not really drill down on Kenny. I don't know. I mean, you heard Special Agent Carr, you know, said he was too short and his eye color didn't match. Yeah, that was, well, that was one of them. Yeah, he he did not totally fit the uh, the description. Plus, he was thinner. I think he was uh, around 150 pounds at the time. DB was described as being stockier, 180 to 200. Yeah, but Kenny also was described as having olive skin. So he was swarthy. That uh, he was, they were both swarthy. That's what I'm saying. There's, there's a lot of elements but that do line up. There's a lot of other things going on here. And especially with a lot of these suspects, really, there's lots of ways that you can have windfall income that right. isn't necessarily on the books. And it, and it is one of the things that suggested is that Kenny made some savvy land deals and made some money from right. those. However, that's a lot of money to have in 1971, even on the savviest uh, sure. land deal. So, you know, just because somebody bought something for cash and, you know, right before that there was skyjacking doesn't mean that it's the same MO. No. <laughs> but <laughs> that's that's my point. I just thought of something here. You, yeah. you tell me if this probably has no application at all to what we're talking about. Uh, but I always thought, uh, you know, when you're a kid, like picking lottery numbers, which you're trying to solve, you're trying to crack that code. Yeah. And what we now know statistically is like if you pick, it's six numbers, right? The lotto. 
and you play the ticket that has the most picked six numbers, that rarely wins at all. Maybe a few times, but I've just, everywhere I've read, it's like, yeah, if you pick the six most popular numbers that uh, come up all the time, that combination doesn't work. My point being here is that if you, out of all these characters, like if, as I'm saying, you took all these coincidences that happened about all the suspects that you just mentioned, and you compile them into one person, is it now overwhelming, or are you still missing the mark, and that it doesn't make it any more likely? Well, that's a good question. I mean, the real perpetrator might not even be on this list. Right. All right. Right. Well, uh, tell me about your final conclusions, then. Well, I guess my conclusions are, I mean, I've already said that I thought it was Kenny. Out of all these people, he's the guy I like the most for it. I love that you reminded me that when they used to say in the old days, I like the, I like him for this crime because I, I do. <laughs> well, I, the, I like no, him for to, to that to that to that point, though, uh, and yeah, we I get we may be missing something here. But what you're saying is that all the FBI said about Kenny Christensen as a suspect is that he does not fit the physical profile. That's the main point why they dismiss this. They that, didn't go into it. And... No, there there may be more details than that. I'm not sure if there was a fingerprint check with him um, right. right now. I can't recall off the top of my head, but like that I know and, that, I mean, yeah. and I just read it a few minutes ago, Special Agent Carr said, well, his eye color doesn't match and he's not the right, right. height. So if I'm going to look into it, I'm not going to look that hard, essentially. was, you know, yes. we just read right. a few minutes ago. So right. And there may be other factors. And of course, uh, as we said, we're not going to dive into the conspiratorial tone, but yeah, a lot of people would say like, well, yes, they didn't check into him as a suspect because he's somehow involved in some kind of plot that benefits the FBI, or there's something going on while they wouldn't want to look at him. Uh, people will do that. But I would say just at face value, uh, there are reasons we may not know why the FBI has dismissed him or cleared him as a suspect. Well, yeah, they may have somebody else that they're really zeroed in on or they're, they're convinced right. as the person, but they can't yeah. quite uh, bring charges or do anything about it right now. So well, that's, I'm, yes, and that's the whole point about this. We said at the beginning, at the end, towards the end of part one, is that that is the FBI's stance, is that this is all very juicy, sexy stuff, but not enough to bring a case. Yeah, which Not again to prosecute. makes it the perfect crime again. And the, what people like about it is that he got away with it. Whoever this person is right now, he got away with it. There's some other things. What's your definition about getting away with it? But we'll talk about that in my conclusions. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, the other thing I'm going to say, and th this won't take me long, is the, and it's something we've touched on before when it comes to great uh, fortunes found in the woods dangling from a dead guy in a parachute. Uh, <laughs> right. A lot of times you find $200,000 in the woods, and if you can spend it, you might just uh, take it upon yourself, some people, to disappear the guy in the parachute and take the money sure, uh, and not report it. Uh, you still have the problem with the serial numbers, but you know they, they said themselves in all these investigations, they probably stopped looking at those after about six months. So you just lay low for a while. Yeah. You can go right out and spend it. So, and well, you, there's uh, not going to be any story about that if that happens. Yeah. Well, that's one quick thing here I'll say about uh, the serial numbers in that I was old enough at the time, I remember us kids checking our bills. I mean, of course, I wasn't that old uh, in 1971, but I remember it's a thing in that uh, just for fun, us kids like, hey, what if we got any D.B. Cooper bills? And there was a list of serial numbers that uh, would occasionally get reprinted in the Northwest papers. And, and uh People would look, but I don't think that we did any research to find out if there's an automated way, like say the bills came back to a bank, a Federal Reserve Bank, where they're scanned, if they're scanned automatically, 
to look for those numbers, much like a zip code is scanned on a piece of mail by the post office. Yeah, but going back to the, the Record Act and what they used supposedly to scan the serial numbers in the first place before the money was distributed, that was right. only a method of capturing it and putting it on a small storage uh, format like microfiche right. or microfilm. There was no AI component. So the only way that it would be scanned would still involve a human. It would just be... Uh, the pictures would be taken, but you'd still have to look at them to identify the numbers and compare them. Okay. That's my only point. There was here no software that, uh, to do anything like that. And so, no, that's what I'm saying. I, I don't think there's any scanning technique uh, or machinery to look at the bills as they pass through uh, the system going from bank to bank, because then that rules out Kenny being afraid to spend the cash on anything right. or finding a way to launder the money. And we don't know that, but. It's probably just out there. And of course, to the FBI, nothing's ever been reported. Nothing's ever been found except for the Tina bar cash. Right. Which is interesting. So again, I, like I said, who knows? Somebody could have found the money and not reported it, uh, found the body, disappeared the body of whoever it was and disappeared the evidence and made off with the money. The other thing is a lot of these suspects, a lot of them look a lot like the sketch. <laughs> yeah. A lot of them do. Yeah. So this is where I come up with my multiverse theory. I think they all did okay. it in different <laughs> different realities. And there's yeah. a rift in space-time centered around this crime. And we're all looking into the different possibilities for D.B. Cooper. But I, I'm joking about that. But seriously, one thing that you see when you look at all these suspects is that a good portion of them had the skills to do it. And they could have right. done it if it had occurred to them which is what makes an investigation like this so hard, I imagine. Um, because it's like, you know what? Uh, you know, six or seven of these folks are experienced at jumping out of planes. Uh, these three yeah. are reckless. These ones are known liars and con men. This one's a gambler. This, there's, all, there's motives all around the board, you know? And right, I, right. The other thing I'll, I've been sort of alluding to all the way up to this point is that people that did these kind of crimes all wanted to be this kind of person. They all wanted to be yeah. the guy that pulled this off. So of course, right. they're all bragging about how it was them because they're already living a life of mystery and they want to be bigger than they already are. They want to be remembered, uh, respected by people that maybe knew they were never up to much or they gambled all their money away or their family knew they were a con artist. And it's like, oh yeah, but I did this. And we've already said that a few times. And then right. you've already made the point uh, about the deathbed confessions. I can't mm -hmm. think, uh, especially if you're a con artist with a good sense of humor, like I could see my grandfather, you know, God rest his soul. I could see him thinking it would be funny right before he died to say that he was D.B. Cooper. <laughs> That's what I'm so, saying, I yeah. Mean, it's just, yeah. it's just, there's a lot of ways that it, that it could have gone down. But out of this list and based on what we've learned in just a month, which isn't a lot of time or three weeks really, and I want to read all these other books, the other suspect yeah. books, because yeah. I only read two of them and I skimmed the other ones and the rest of the research was web-based. But my money for now is on Kenny and, you know, Rackstraw's probably a runner up because there's a lot to that. But like I said, that story feels a lot circumstantial to me and it feels like heavily laden with confirmation bias. Although the the right. uh, the book about Kenny feels laden with confirmation bias too, but I still felt sure. like it. I still felt like it held up. I mean, and you don't write yeah. a book like that if you don't believe the guy you're writing about did it. But still, it's uh, you know looking at the big picture of everyone. And then again, maybe it's one of these people that we don't know much about, and I dismissed right at the top of the suspect list. I just don't know. But Kenny is no, my but, favorite. But That's the, what I'm going to yeah. say. Keep in mind, uh, the author uh, is also the private investigator contacted. By Kenny's brother, Lyle, right? Yes. Uh, that's another interesting side note. Lyle had tried to convince the FBI that his brother uh, was the man, I believe, after seeing a documentary in 2003 
Right. Right. That. Yes. That uh, is that the one we we're talking about? So I think so. Yeah. Uh, he sees that and says, "Oh my gosh, that's Kenny!" Right. Suddenly, the light bulb goes off. He tries to convince the FBI. They're not that interested. They're not buying his uh, his story. Then he reaches out to screenwriter, director, and novelist Nora Ephron, which is kind of funny, in that uh, he was hoping that she would do a movie on it. And of course, if you don't know that name, uh, some of the famous films she's written, Silkwood, You've Got Mail, Sleepless in Seattle, When Harry Met Sally. So that's, yeah, that's who yeah. she is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think she ever bid on that or uh, didn't want to be involved, but it's just interesting that uh, we know about this really because his brother Lyle came forward with the, with this with the conclusion. So anyway, well there you go. I think that out of all the people you presented, Kenny is the strongest. I'll give Rob Rackstraw a runner up, and almost, and the rest are kind of almost rands. All right, you still haven't said what you think. What's your final <laughs> conclusion? What do we, you know? Let's. Uh, I what I think is most likely in something like this. He did not survive the jump. That's what I'm going with. Uh, If he had, then, yeah, these two dudes, Kenny, Robert Rackstraw, runner-up, that's my final offer. That's what's on the table. But most likely, after looking at everything, yes, I do believe it's possible, certainly, he could have survived the jump. But I just think in those conditions that, well, I don't, look, I'm not an expert on this. I would say his chances at survival were probably 10 to 15%. And you think after all this time and in this day and age, and even back then with satellites and, and uh, being to, able to look at dated satellite images and also all the people, all the larger population now that's out in the woods camping and doing all that stuff that no one ever found a trace of his body, his parachute, or the money or the bomb suitcase, or any of the stuff he left the plane with, it just all just disappeared into, and so far has never been found. No, if you t- if you take all that into account, uh, well, part of the money was found in a really weird place that explains nothing. It adds it adds nothing but more questions uh, to the case. But to that other point, that's why I brought up the the tragic case of Barbara Ann Derry, who is the eighteen year old student found in the in the grist mill in the mini silo there and that here you have all the authorities searching the area uh you have the army sheriff's deputies you've got volunteers you've got fbi you've got all these people searching and here's an abandoned building where most likely if somebody's on the run good place to hide to duck out get out of the weather out of the rain at least and they didn't check it or if they checked it they didn't find her there and it took a woman uh, and maybe her friend who were out looking for old bottles to discover her. So my point is that if you're diving into the woods, maybe they would have found your parachute hung up in a tree. Maybe not. That's We've covered this quite a bit in that things out in the wild can disappear very easily and are never seen again. And in very dense woods like that, it's very possible that, uh, yeah, it's out there. It's just no one's ever tripped on it because no one's ever taken a direct route through very dense brush in the woods. And on the other hand, parachutes were found buried and, and dug up, but not the ones that would match the ones that Cooper had. So stuff's out there and it gets discovered. You can't count on it. It's like when people say, oh, look, hunters are all over the woods. How come they haven't seen Bigfoot yet? It's like you can't possibly cover 
that vast of space. And also, as we said earlier, Mount St. Helens may have covered up a lot of the evidence or the body itself. That ash was six inches to several feet deep in places. So you'll never see that again. That's also a definite possibility of why you've never seen it again or, or he'll never be found again. So I just, I'll take the FBI stance here in that it's just not enough yet to convince me 100%. But if I had to pick two people, yeah, I'll go with your two picks here as being the most likely suspects. In the end here, I'll just leave you with this quote from Margie Geestman to Skip Porteous and Robert Blevins for their book, Into the Blast, The True Story of D.B. Cooper. You're not going to make Kenny look bad, are you? No matter what he may have done, he was a nice guy. That's going to wrap up our series on D.B. Cooper. We're dark until October 10th when we'll return with our first show of the spooky season. However, we do have a very special announcement coming up near the end of the month, so keep an eye out for that. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.